I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you know, listen to? Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. Hey, up you pop crazy youngsters and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hands right down the back of the settee on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and by my side today are Taylor Parks and rock expert David Stubbs. Howdy doody. Boys, the pop things, the interesting things. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me now. Well, um, there is one little thing. Um, Ooh. At the Shepherd's Bush Empire, Scritty Politi were playing. Oh, fucking hell, yeah. And David probably didn't go, when in fact he did. He did. I went to a oh, gig. Oh, fucking yes. Yeah, it was, well, it, it, it was a gig. It was, it was Scritty Politi. It was pretty immaculate. Hung around near the back, you know. I didn't really want to sort of join the throng at the front. I uh, thought that might be a bit much. Mm. It's funny, though. I mean, I was probably about average age. Yeah. <laughs> at one point, uh, Green from the stage said something about, um, anyone here remember student grants? I think everyone would not only remember <laughs> student grants, but have had one. Um, I mean, John Peel talking at one point about, um, you know, he felt self-conscious being at a gig, being 40 years old a rock gig I mean god even if it was a 40 year old there now he'd say hey kid what are you doing he weren't even born when Sweetest Girl came out yeah you know it's too unlimited doing a you know, gig around the corner fuck off there <laughs> yeah, shouldn't uh, you be playing with your Nintendo game and what <laughs> <laughs> It must be fucking weird going back to gigs, though, David. Yeah, I was a little phased, and I'll be honest, I won't be hurrying back, you know. But I tended no. to go to sort of free improv gigs anyway, and there was no problem socially distancing at them, I can assure you. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, something where there's a throng, a sweaty, adoring throng. Yeah, I'm still mm. a little bit wary of that. Taylor? Yeah, you know, I'm all right. Same as usual. The only interesting thing that happened to me was the other day, I was out and about, and um, what with one thing and another, uh, had to have a piss. So without wanting to give away too much detail i went into a toilet mm. and as I was there in the process i heard the door behind me fly open <gasps> someone pushed past threw themselves onto the floor in front of me just sort of sprawled there with their eyes and mouth Fuck. open uh-huh. pushing their face into uh, a now unstoppable torrent of piss <gasps> uh, just getting totally drenched with this sort of blissful look on their face i thought wait a minute i recognize that white hair and <laughs> that sort of long bobbly nose and horsey face you know like the crown and the the, the orb and scepter i thought <laughs> fuck it's the fucking queen i, d- I thought fuck, i didn't expect that yeah incredible um i mean it wasn't even a very nice toilet 
you know, it's only in Stratford Westfield. But you know what? You say what you like about the Queen. She looks so regal. You can't buy that sort of breeding. It made me so proud and grateful to be British. So afterwards, I washed my hands and I went outside and straight away I got my phone out and I rang a couple of my friends and I said, mm. you won't believe what's just happened to me. And I was right, <laughs> they didn't. <laughs> and it struck me. It's so hard to share anything with your friends mm. because this is the thing. This is the experience of everyday life. That that separation and that that screaming gulf between your experiences and your private world and those of the only people that you have to turn to. And all you can do is try to bridge that gap with words and stories. And mm. to a greater or lesser extent, you always fail. And that's how I feel all the time so this was just another day i forgot all about it no. i went home i got on with my ship in a bottle but i tell you what she's still the best diplomat we've got <laughs> she works harder than what you do or i do or the rest of this country and anyone who criticizes her ought to be removed from the discussion i say mm. i say god bless you mom <laughs> and uh, see you again next thursday <laughs> Yeah, oh, indeed. Actually, I, there was a couple of other things, actually, eh, rock and roll related, oh, because, you know, there's there's not a lot of rock in my life, I sometimes think. Which is wrong for a rock expert, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, well, my daughter Alicia went to um, her first gig. She went to, um, yeah, she went to Reading. Um, it was it was very strange, and, of course, there's all that kind of sort of paternal concern, you know, for um, a teenage daughter, um, you know, yomping off to these uh, dubious uh, vortex of sleaze and what have you. But, um, no, and, you know, and it, it's weird. I mean, she showed me some of the videos. And, you know, she's just like shivering in his videos. I'm cold. I haven't slept in 48 hours. I haven't been to the toilet in three days. No. You know, it's just like, you know, please just pay the ransom. <laughs> um, but you know, she absolutely loved it. You know, she said, you know, I'd take a jumper next time. But otherwise, yeah, do it again. You know, mm. why? I, I, I just never went through this phase. I think I just went straight from childhood to whatever I am now. Really, I didn't have this kind of intermittent period where something like that would remotely appeal to me. No. The other thing was that when I looked at like, the lineup, apart from Stormzy, I didn't recognise any of the no. names. You know, it was just like Emily Bland, you know, Rob Real, you know, um, <laughs> Tyler, the XXX, privately educated or whatever. You know, it's very strange <laughs> listening to that kind of music when Alicia plays it. And it seems to me there's, there's no euphoria anymore. There's no, no banging euphoria. It, it all seems to sort of vacillate between melancholia and fury. Uh, and they listen to the sort of two dominant motifs. But then again, even I'm talking, I feel like, you know, J.B. Priestley talking about rock and roll music or something like that, you know. Yeah. No, Ted Rogers talking about Mick Jagger, you know, I'm completely <laughs> out of touch, basically. And, and the only other rock and roll thing that happened to me was um, I went up north. I sort of see my dad. He's not doing too well at the moment. Oh. And um, just turned 86. Yeah. Um, so there you go. Yeah, I had to go, go out and do his, his window cleaner. And, uh, you know, he got chatty. He was pretty chatty. But, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't George Formby. You know, he wasn't strumming a ukulele. You know, mm. he was uh, quite erudite in his tastes. You know, he was talking about Tangerine Dream. Fucking know, hell. Was, there were pioneers. There were pioneers. Tangerine Dream. Okay, fair enough. And um, who else? Yeah, Kraftwerk, you know. And he said, yeah, yeah, Kraftwerk. There were pioneers. There were pioneers. And it went on to um, The Who. And um, yeah, and he said, yeah, yeah. You know what? You know what they were? I think I can guess. <laughs> pioneers. There were pioneers. You know? And it just occurred to me that, like, yeah, we need window cleaners, no doubt about it. But we do also need, um, contrary to a lot of opinion, music journalists. You know, we mm. need... Just that supply of language, you know, I think. Otherwise, you know, it's either pioneers or, of course, iconic. Yes. Um, 
So there you go. You know, even if you're into the music, you might not necessarily have the language. Yeah. Yeah, I've only got one pop and interesting thing to import this episode, but it's very pop and fuck me, it's interesting. Ooh. Now, we all have this conversation over Skype, don't we? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. okay, in that case, I'm just going to put my video camera on. Mm-hmm. Say what you see. Oh, hello. Oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I am wearing... A Judy Zook satin tour jacket. <laughs> Fucking yes! Oh, that is glorious. And it fits. Did you get it tailored? Is it? It's medium, and I'm not. Ooh. So I'm absolutely terrified of breathing at the moment. Yeah, I was going to so, say, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll take it off as soon as I finish this bit. But yes, all praise is due to pop crazed youngster from around the way, Justin Doddsworth. Mm. His mum ran a record shop in the Oswestry area. Yeah. Apparently a lot of arty fuffkins of the Salop area used to uh, swing by with Bounty, <laughs> and uh, he got given a load of stuff from it, wow. and unbelievably, this was one of them. The golden fleece of chart music <laughs> has been unearthed from a back room in Oswestry, ladies and gentlemen. Wow. That is quite superb. Yes. I'm impressed that you managed to kind of climb into it with such a plomb. Of course, the downside to all this is the thought of all the sex yeah, that's oh, going to be offered to me I when know. I'm going about tying in my Judy Zook satin tour jacket. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, they'll be coming up to me and saying, is, is that a Judy Zook satin tour jacket? Yeah. And I go, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, fuck, how yeah. did you get that? I do a music podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's right. <laughs> Shall I just lie Absolutely. down here now and let you get on with it? Yeah. It's, it's going to be like a high karate advert, isn't it? Also, keep away from naked flame. Mm, definitely, <laughs> yes. He told me yeah. that his mum used to get loads of picture discs, which he used to give out to mm. girls he fancied at school. And more importantly, loads and loads of bottles of whiskey. <laughs> it was like when Brian Clough won Bell's Manager of the Month every fucking month for about two years. <laughs> that was his mum's record shop. <laughs> <laughs> for the newer pop craze youngsters, Judy Zook satin tour jacket has been for a very long time chart music slang for payola. Mm. From the World in Action documentary uh, called The Chart Busters about chart rigging in the Aventis. And uh, we started using the term Judy Zook satin tour jacket and not believing that such a thing existed, but here it is on my shoulders. Oh, it's extraordinary. It doesn't fit me at all. No. But uh, let me tell you, there is no operation too life-threatening <laughs> for me not to take it to fit into this fucker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is Sharp Music's own amazing technical dream coat, really, isn't it? It is, yeah. Even yeah. though it's just one colour. Yes. Blue. Yeah. Royal blue with blue sleeves. Yeah. Yeah. And a nice white love heart with Judy Zook's logo mm. across it. Mm. Sadly, no embroidery of an overbite on the back. <laughs> it must have been kept in a very safe place, because I imagine all the others have uh, perished. Oh, it's an immaculate condition. It's pristine. I think the V&A could do an exhibition with this as the single exhibit. You know? Yeah, I think definitely. So. Yeah, it'd be queen round yeah. the block, like it's Tutankhamun. Mm. <laughs> if we turn up at number one in the iTunes podcast chart anytime soon, uh, <laughs> that will just have been under our own steam. No need to worry about yeah. that. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the only pop and interesting thing I truly care about is the latest batch of pop crazy youngsters who have stuffed a handful down our G-string this month. And this time, in the $5 section, we have Mark Cowan. Burt Bacarackums, Andy Hurd, Spencer Rogers, Will, Gigantic Station Master, Cy Smith, Matt D, Sean Moran, 
Beck Dodd, Matthew Duggan, Paul Mongan, Tim Ward, Matthew Mara, Joe O'Donnell, Lorcan Connolly, Michael War, and Richard Willemson. Thank you, babies. I love each and every one of you. Magnificent people. Mm. And in the $3 section, we have A. Provost, Steve McKevitt, Peter Adams, Tim Frings, Stephen Dyer, and James Doors, oh, you lovely people. Oh, and Matt Savine, Victoria Cleste, Lynn Robb, Dr. Greggles, Toaster in the Bath, and the Blood and Mud podcast. You jacked it right up this month, didn't you? And for that, we thank you so very, very much. We are the mountain, you are the rain. Amen. Step back inside me, pop craze youngsters. <laughs> Amen to all There's of that. a lone raven just outside my window staring at me. Oh, no. That's good to see. <laughs> and one thing those brand new pop craze youngsters get to do, along with all the other Patreon people, is to rig and a jig the chart music top ten. Are you ready, boys? Yes. Yeah. Hit the fucking music! We've said goodbye to the Cupertino Kid, Friar David, Fox Biz, and the pink people of Charles Moore, which means two up, two down, two non-movers, three new entries, and one re-entry. Down eight places from number two to number ten, Sharks Piss Fire. Oh. <laughs> A new entry at number nine, Oven Ready Women. Down three from number five to number eight, it's Jeff Sex. Yes. A re-entry straight in at number seven, Taylor Parks has 20 romantic moments. Good. And it's up one place from number seven to number six for rock expert David Stubbs. Rock. Into the top five and back up from number six to number five. Here comes Jism. No change at number four. Bummer dog. A new entry at number three. The Continuity Westlife. (laughs) This week's highest new entry straight in at number two. Romocop, which means... Britain's number one. They're still there at the top. The chart music number one. The bent cunts who aren't fucking real. Yes. Oh, what a fucking chart that oh, is. Glorious, yeah. glorious. Mm. Uh, the bent cunts who aren't fucking real, they're not going anywhere, are they? I bet they played Reading Festival. Nah, uh, I bet they didn't. Mm. <laughs> I bet they weren't allowed. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe. Actually, I think it's just a, a really dirty pigeon. so chaps oven ready women what's their game feminist isn't it yeah Yeah. sarcastic feminists oh the worst kind oh yeah continuity westlife speaks for itself doesn't it yeah 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 yeah. and and romocop clearly electro clash yeah so if you want in on all the sexy top 10 action as well as getting the full episode in one go without adverts ages before anyone else see that keyboard use those fingers mash out patreon.com slash chart music and make our g-strings bulge Ooh. Oh, 
You two finished. Are we, I, 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 I thought, Taylor, you just think you can join in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, join in with that? Yeah. It's fun. Right. It's fun, honestly. You know, Got just let, you, let your hair down. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. That was well funky, yeah. Gibbon. That was Taylor. Don't bother. <laughs> <laughs> now, chaps, before we get stuck in, I need to make a couple of clarifications because I made a right balls up last episode and I need to beat myself with the rod of correction. <laughs> so you may recall that I said I'd done some work about 20 years ago for Maxim and hadn't been paid for it. And I gave them a nudge and they said that they thought that I was Alex Needham. Well, the minute I published that episode, remembered it wasn't Maxim at all. It was for a pullout that I did for a magazine that shall remain nameless, uh, which I got paid for in the end. Anyway, me and Alex Needham have had a chat about it and it turns out that it was the first he'd ever heard of it he didn't get paid anything and i'm of the opinion now that um said accounts department of said magazine was stringing me along or something like that i don't know anyway just want to make absolutely clear that no one at the enemy received money on my behalf or took food off my table (laughs) and i'd like to take the opportunity to apologize to alex needham the accounts department of maxim and to you the pop crazed youngsters because i hate being wrong about this sort of thing man it it just fucking gnaws away at my soul Oh, and I also implied that Freddie and the Dreamers came from Liverpool when they obviously (gasps) came from Man... I know. They obviously came from Manchester. And to be honest with you, I don't know which city I need to apologise to the most. So (laughs) I'm like Kurt Cobain this episode. I'm all apologies. So, this episode, Pop Craze Youngsters, takes us away from all the modern rubbish we did last time and plunges us straight back into the comforting breast of November the 3rd, 1977. Oh, nom, nom, nom. <laughs> I mean, chaps, on the surface, there's nothing particularly special about this episode for the era. There's a, a lot of regular acts and chart music favourites that pitch up, and there's a, a fuckload of cover versions. Clearly, this is an episode where punk needs to happen and happen soon, except for the fact that it already has. Yeah, I think at this time, I didn't have rock critical consciousness. That was a few months away yet for me. Um, and in fact, you know, no. th- this episode of Top of the Pops is pretty close to my kind of pop sensibility at the time, much more so than the music press I wasn't really, really aware of, you know. I, hadn't, you know. Mm. I mean, I, I could pretend later on that I was all about sort of throbbing gristle and wire and suicide in 1977. But, but yes. I think everything had equal merit as far as I was concerned if it was in the charts, as long as it had a bit of velocity. And Paul Nicholas and Bob Marley, you know, it was all much the same sort of thing, really. All part of the same sort of, you know, spectrum of entertainment. Well, yeah. It felt very 1977 to me, I would say, this episode. Very much very so. Nice. You know, if it was a stick of rock, it'd have 1977 running through it. Yeah, that's mm. the real 1977, mm. as <laughs> yeah, opposed yes. to, oh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, if you want to see the, the sort of the enemy world 1977, you have to watch Top of the Pops from 1978. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I watched a random Top of the Pops from 1978 last week, and it had X-ray specs and the lurkers on it. Ooh. This is the real 1977. This is full of monster acts and, uh, yeah. you know, records that people remember and stuff. Mm. Like, I've actually got quite into this period of time lately. But mostly the American version, which we don't see all that much of in this episode, but it's useful as a comparison. 
I think. Because mm. uh, this is one of the periods of greatest distance between British and American pop culture, right? And in the way that we had the Avenses, which isn't quite here yet in this episode. No. But that was when the changes came, and that was how things shifted and, and settled. In America, they had this distinct period between Watergate and Reagan, which I mm. just think of as uh, bicentennial, you mm. know. It's like yeah. big cars with brown interiors that look like wood and uh, those suits that weren't just wide lapel they were also about four inches thick the herb tarlek look yeah 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 and and you you couldn't drive your car down the street without seeing a, a native american chief standing by the side of the road weeping about pollution <laughs> and it was you know the bionic man acting yeah. like he was going to make a fucking difference you know mm. when we had punk they had rumors by fleetwood mac and it yeah. was it just looks nicer and smooth it's just as depressing mm. it's like a heat haze of sex drenched hairy qualude addicted malaise you know mm. but i quite like it I quite yeah like they it. had afternoon delight we had Angel Delight. I was just going to mention Afternoon Delight, actually, the Star Vocal Band. If you, have the, if you go on YouTube, there's a sort of video of them performing this, and they're performing in the middle of a city. And it's a tremendous sort of time capsule, really. And it exudes a lot of, you know, that's 1976, mm. minus the um, Native American chief. But, um, you know, if I ever want to sort of get a sort of dose of pure America, 1976, that very far-off pre-Freddie Laker America, yeah, um, I always dip into that. And if you want to do it in a less classy way, also on YouTube, there's all these compilations of trailers and opening titles for the new network shows of each new yes. season from like the late 70s so like it's like the, the 36 new shows of the hellish mid-season of 1979 <laughs> and things like that and they are chokingly evocative yeah. of this period there's yeah, all these yeah, yeah. like short-lived sitcoms and they're all shot in smear vision you know with the mm. uh, They've all got theme songs that explain the premise of the show. Yes. So, like, if the show's called Mickey and it's about a bloke who works in an abattoir <laughs> and he's got an extra arm, it goes, do-do-do-do, uh, oh, Mickey, you work in an abattoir and you've got an extra arm. <laughs> like, yes, I know. <laughs> Why are you telling me this? <laughs> Your best friend is an incubus yeah. who came out of a cursed bassoon. <laughs> and every show has got a distinct american location like which you see in the titles like snake handlers of pittsburgh pa <laughs> yeah yeah isn't it's, it yeah yeah it, it, or it's, it's shot in, in in philadelphia or portland oregon or somewhere and you mm. get a helicopter shot in the titles yes. which you're just supposed to recognize where it is and there's a really short list of themes and and tropes is put upon every man surrounded by loonies uh neurotic modern woman looking for love mm. and trying to make her way in the 70s um yeah. you know good luck with that dog semi-unusual <laughs> place of work fish out of water battle of the sexes and as you get to the late 70s every show features one black cast member but no more or less than one mm. or else it gets confusing um, that's, that's the, how it is unless it's one of those shows where the gimmick is that they're all black and it's called like Good Brothers or something and the only mm. point of the show is that they're black they don't do anything mm. except be black what you talking about Taylor yeah you know what I mean at, at, the, at the beginning of every show all the cast appear in a little circle one by one and then at the end mm. it says 
and introducing Linda Pucarelli as Sandy. Um, <laughs> I couldn't sit through a whole episode of any of these, but when you watch the the titles en masse, they're fascinating as a, mm. this evidence of a culture that had made a certain amount of progress towards a decent society and then got tired and just fallen yeah. into a slump. So it's almost time for everything to get nasty again and wake everybody up. But unfortunately, when that happens, it's always a bit too late. But that's what you always get. You get a period of modest improvements to standards of living and personal freedom. And then everyone gets progress fatigue and it all starts to sag and slide back towards the, the reactionary, you know. And then you mm-hmm. get that period of empty, sort of upbeat, bollocks which uh usually heralds another clampdown you know like oh, it's morning in america yeah yeah i think there's a link between progress fatigue and prog fatigue in a sense you know because you know that's what that's <laughs> punk happen you know and it's- yeah it is the, the response is a lot of these new possibilities are boring mm. Mm. <laughs> that realization really hits people yeah people were actually comfortably often there was relative social equality yeah. but people got bored yeah. people just got bored um, but i mean actually going back to sitcoms i think that taxi was the one that perhaps came along to drive out all of the kind mm. of, you know, tropes that Taylor was talking about. I mean, the theme music, again, is pure distillation of that. that, that yeah, kind of Bob James. Bob James, you know, but there's a continuum from Taxi through to Cheers and then Frasier, obviously. Mm. is the era, of course, when they had a checkered thing on the side of the New York yeah. cabs, which then, then they discontinued. I mean, what mean spirit... Yeah. In what council decided, now nah, we don't need them anymore? Yeah, it's like when they stop British police cars from going, Nino, Nino. Yes. <laughs> Why did you do that? Uh, Why? Yeah. There's something to be said for that period just before things go backwards, right? When people stop being hungry and harassed enough for just long enough to reflect on, in the end, the emptiness of society and their own existence, which is always what it comes around to. Like in early lockdown... I was watching quite a lot of Seinfeld, but I had Mm. to stop because I realised how much I miss living in the affluent West in the untroubled (laughs) 90s. That's right, the untroubled 90s. Not having to care about anything opened Mm. up all these fascinating vistas, you know, Mm. all these these in-depth conversations about being human and attempting to operate as an imperfect being in a twisted society, you know, and all these deep dives into intriguing trivialities and it's you don't get it now nowadays everyone's so fucking boring and strident because there's actual immediate things to worry about Mm. you know everybody's really Mm. one-dimensional because they have to concentrate on survival Mm. there's no time for anything interesting or uh, discursive but what i would say about this episode of top of the pops if nothing else <laughs> oh we're talking it, about an episode of top of the pops somewhere yeah <laughs> and it, <laughs> it, it, sorry it does show us albeit british style some of that thumb twiddling malaysadelic variation of thought and expression mm. right because whatever else 1977 is it's never entirely predictable mm. and there's always a few things what the fuck is this yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you could say that this episode represents the absolute crest of the late 70s with record companies getting ready for Christmas by pushing their biggest acts to the fore and they've, they've all got single releases to promote those albums. And they're all here. And we're about to tuck into them. Let's go! Yes. Bye. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Radio 1 News. In the news, blackouts have been going off all over Britain this week due to unofficial action by power station workers. Meanwhile, BBC staff have joined in the fun, blacking out coverage of today's state opening of Parliament and this evening's episode of Nationwide. But thankfully, they've left Top of the Pops the fuck alone. Michael Barrett is still alive, Nationwide. Is he? Yeah. It's like Kiss- Kissinger or something, yeah. He's still with us. Jesus. Yeah. He's still dandin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 300 tonnes of contaminated tinned corned beef that was imported into the country from Australia have resurfaced across grocery stores and corner shops across the UK. The Metropolitan Police have recovered £3,000 from the home of Andrew Newton, the hitman who was paid £5,000 by an associate of Jeremy Thorpe to kill Norman Scott in October of 1974. Security forces in Northern Ireland report that the IRA are having a clean-up in their ranks by rounding up all the gangsters, rapists and muggers and administering punishments such as kneecapping, breaking fingers with hammers and shooting folk in the penis. Hey, let's hope they don't get the wrong person. <laughs> but I'm sure, they, I'm sure they went through a lengthy detection process to make sure that didn't no. happen. Meanwhile, Roddy Llewellyn, Princess Margaret's current shag, has flown out to Mystique to be with her, unaware that she's been spending her time looking at John Bindon walking around with six pint pot handles around his cock. <laughs> Hercules, the horse in Steptoe and Son, has been saved from the knacker's yard thanks to the International League for the Protection of Horses, who stepped in to buy him before he was turned into tins of catamite. He will now be living on a farm in Surrey. Oh. 
Ray Cooney, the producer of the forthcoming West End musical Elvis, has unveiled the man who will be playing the 30-year-old king, a club singer called Shakin' Stevens. <laughs> he joins Tim Whitnell and PJ Proby in the star role, with Tracy Ullman as one of the dancers. FBI agents investigating an illegal gambling ring have released film of Lee Majors gambling on American football while getting friendly with a blonde waitress, leading his wife, Farrah Fawcett, to kick the fuck off on him. He was last seen jumping over a building to get away from her dead slowly. <laughs> a nightclub owner from Blantyre, Scotland, has announced that he's about to hire a submarine from an undisclosed European country with the intent of charging 150 Scotland fans £595 each to take them to Argentina for next year's World Cup. Brian Clough has erected a sign on the pitch of the city ground which reads, Gentlemen, no swearing, please, Brian. And Nottingham Forest go on to batter Middlesbrough 4-0, opening up a four-point lead over Liverpool at the top of Division 1. But the big news this week is that the Sex Pistols have just released Nevermind the Bollocks and Virgin Records' advertising campaign is already causing mither. Them big posters in the window, chaps. Do you remember them? I certainly do, yeah, yeah. Oh, did you have one in your area? Oh, we have, yeah, two or three, yeah. At the Seen and Heard record shop in Leeds. Ooh. Various hoardings and what happened. You know, there was nipple erectors, buzzcocks. You know, Good Lord. Filth. The cunt. All <laughs> along the Cologne. Filth. Yes, I'll tell you mine, never mind the bollocks story. Yeah, yeah. So a few years ago, I was doing bits and bobs uh, on Inside Out on BBC One. You know, the local magazine show that used to be... Yeah, on yeah. Monday nights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I fucking loved it. I used to do all types of mad shit. And one time they asked me to do a piece on the Nevermind the Bollocks trial, which happened in Nottingham because the manager of the Virgin Record shop here had put up all these massive Nevermind the Bollocks posters. Mm. And then he got arrested and, you know, they had the obscenity trial there. So, you know, Nottingham once again being the cradle of punk this time (laughs) and yeah they asked me to do a piece on that and they got someone lined up for me to interview richard fucking branson oh yes well yeah that was that was my reaction both of them because you know apart from johnny rotten he was going to be the absolute best person to talk to about this so said yeah you come down on a monday morning and uh richard will be there and you you can have half an hour with him and all that kind of stuff so oh brilliant so if if it's a monday that means i can go and see my mates uh, in London for the weekend. So, yeah, got hammered. Monday morning, I feel like absolute dog shit. I've got this <laughs> fucking evil racking cough that won't go away. You know one of them really oh. proper tickly ones? Yeah, a, yeah, yeah, a, yeah. A Malcolm cough, if you will. Mm. I pitch up at the Virgin offices, you know, meet the camera crew and all that kind of stuff. We get there and says, oh, uh, Richard's not around at the minute. He's still in Cambridge. Did you want to sit down and, you know, get comfy in that? And fucking hours and hours tick on. And it's it's obvious that he, he can't even be fucked to get into an helicopter to talk to me. <laughs> so they said, right, we'll do it online. We'll put you in a little office. We'll set up the screen and all that kind of stuff. So when they're, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. They've got connection problems on their internet, haven't they? Ah. They call us back. And before he pops up, they say, well, you've only got 10 minutes now. And it's like, oh, for fuck's sake. So I've got a right cob on. Mm. He finally pops up on screen and introduces himself. And the first thing that comes out of my mouth was... 
bloody hell, Richard, your internet's not very good. Who are you with? <laughs> Which put a bit of a frosty edge on the interview, it had to be said. But I, by this time, I didn't give a fuck. Mm. Also, it was uh, punk rock, isn't it? Yes, very much so. You know, mm. you should have just given him the yes. V sign and gone... <laughs> we start the interview, and I've got a list of questions. I want to know about the trial. And he immediately launches into this spiel that he must have given thousands of times about how he was the only person who um, gave the Sex Pistols a break and all this kind of stuff. And then he says, oh, I can see you want me to move on. And I look down and I realise my hand's giving the wind it on gesture. (laughs) (laughs) But afterwards... I had another interview. We had to go right across to the countryside to interview Trevor Dan, and he was miles better. Mm. You know, Trevor Dan, the sidekick of Matthew Bannister, Radio 1, because he was a Radio Nottingham DJ at the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. was a far superior interview. I could have spent all night listening to him, yeah. especially as you could, you could tell that he, he really didn't like Dave Lee Travis. Mm. This is just when chart music had started, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't on my game as much, but uh, oh, I'd love to pin him down and hear his tales of Travis. I bet they're brilliant. <laughs> I mean, one thing he said, we got talking about Top of the Pops, and he said there was a plan for BBC television to actually launch a Top of the Pops network mm. where you could get all the episodes available on the iPlayer. Oh. Why didn't they do that? Yeah, yeah. Good grief. Yeah. It's, it's weird. Like, something like Branson, it's just awful the fact that, you know, he has to be engaged with because of his role in the formation of punk. You know, it's like mm. Tim Martin or whatever, you know, Weatherspoons, you know, being constantly having a sort of founding role in, like, in introducing techno in this country or something like that. It's just, yeah. you know, it's just horrible. On the cover of Melody Maker this week, don't know, think there was a printer's strike. On the cover of Disco 45, The Carpenters. The number one LP in the UK at the moment is 40 Golden Greats by Cliff Richard, 20 Golden Greats by Diana Ross and the Supremes is at number two, and the highest placed non-compilation LP, Heroes by David Bowie, is at number three. Over in America, the number one single is You Light Up My Life by Debbie Boone, and the number one LP, of course, is Rumours by Fleetwood Mac. So, boys, what were we doing in November of 1977? Right, well, um, I was 15 at the time, and I was just getting over, at this point, one of the bitterest disappointments of my life, almost a formative one. So what happened is I'd got a holiday job, you know, around in the autumn time in Barrack and Elm in, in near Leeds, my um, my home village. You could earn a little bit of extra pocket money um, by doing potato picking in the school holidays. Oh. Grim, back-breaking work, working for some of Britain's worst bastards, northern farmers. <laughs> we used to have a little field called Jack Heap's Playing Field. It was the one place where, like, kids could kind of go out and play football because they weren't allowed in, like, you know, the sort of the main football pitch, you know, that was by the village hall. No. which just this slope of, you know, that's all we had to kind of, you know... Own your skills. Own our skills. That was exactly the, the cliche I was reaching for. Uh, <laughs> good enough for the Charlton brothers. And this bastard, right, you know, it's always his name, Fred Thorpe. And he'd come round and, and he'd sort of shoe us off in the middle of a game so he could ride round in his pony and trap. No, this farmer. No. You know, he had acres of his own land. Bastard. And that's it. And he'd just drive us off and he'd go round in circles. You know, you... Bastard. Man, that's terrible, man, because you've been brought up thinking that all these farmers were like the Wurzels. Yeah, oh, totally, exactly, yeah, absolutely. Fun-loving yeah. yokels. I was just thinking, is it wise to mention him by name, but he'll be dead now, won't he? Oh, he's always long gone. Put a shotgun in his mouth about four years after. <laughs> We'd heard about people getting a pound an hour, you know, potato picking, and, he's, and I just remember him saying, no, I'm paying you, you normal on 50p hour, 50p hour. That's all he Fuck. wants. 
And you better work in fucking day. And, and it's just like, you miserable old cunt. How many Fu Manchus are you going to get out of that, I man? know. Well, this is it. Fuck all. So anyway, managed to sort of scrape together enough wherewithal to uh, buy a Scalectric set. Ooh. Unfortunately, I am not, not to sort of turn into a half-man, half-biscuit song, but... It never fucking worked. It just didn't no. work. And it wasn't just the dodgy transformer. It was the fact that you had this kind of um, overexcitable little gun. <sighs> you know, I mean, my fingers were sort of blistered already from playing Crossfire for a solid year, you know. So, I mean, perhaps my <laughs> grip was a bit kind of like sunky, you know. But it would overshoot. The pieces never fit together. And I'd basically blown my whole watch on this useless box of crap. How many potatoes? Oh, sackfuls, uh, two, three sackfuls a day, probably, you know. You, you should have got Jody Schechter racing. Yeah, yeah. This is why I play Mario Kart every day. I play Mario Kart for about an hour, you know. I'm chasing around those circuits, racing those monkeys and skeletons and two-year-old girls, um, like an hour <laughs> a day. Um, and it's to compensate, basically, for, for that huge section of my lost childhood. Who do you go for in Mario Kart? I'm one of these terrible people. Somebody said that on Twitter <laughs> that, like, one of the characteristics of a centrist dad, and I don't think I'm that, was that they're always Mario when they play Mario Kart. Yeah, fuck that. I am always Mario, unfortunately. Why? I don't know. I tried a few of the others, and I tried to be, was it Donkey Kong once, and I just no. couldn't get on with it. Um, I don't know. I don't know, really. I'm a Wario kind of guy. Ah, okay, yeah. Simply because of the N64 version, because his laugh is so fucking filthy mm. and gleeful at other people's misfortune. Mm. It's just, that's the kind of person I want to be, Yeah, I think. <laughs> Taylor? Yeah. Well, as I think I mentioned before... In 1977, I was living in this cheap, falling-down cottage in the middle of nowhere. Yes. Just extending the natural, introspective maladjustment of the adopted only child into new realms of hallucinatory alienation by living out there for three or four crucial years, no one to play with, uh, just unsupervised in the 1970s style. (laughs) Just wandering around forests and streams and farms on my own, you know, with my head illuminated, just thinking and processing everything wrongly. Like walking through the set of every public information film. Yeah, but having to invent an inner life, just like now, except with forests and streams and farms uh, and a future. (laughs) But it was all right, except when my dad chucked all my crayons out of the window in a rage. What? Yeah, because I'd written the word warship on the new carpet. <laughs> um, Why? Right, we'd moved into this place, and the reason we could afford it was that it had no staircase and no carpets, and it needed loads of work, which my dad took on as a, as a project. And because he worked at a carpet factory, Kidderminster's one and only uh, now long-departed industry, he got all these wall-to-wall fitted carpets, sort of fawn colour. Um, Dad, why does my new jacket feel like Axminster? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but he he was not best pleased to get back from the pub and find this. I'd been sat there drawing pictures with my crayons while mm-hmm. my mum was watching the telly, and at some point they showed a preview of that evening's viewing on BBC One, which included <laughs> the, uh, the dreary ocean-going drama serial uh, Warship, oh, yeah. co-created right. by uh, Ian McIntosh, author of incredibly brilliant spy series The Sandbaggers, and Anthony Coburn, talented 
hack writer of the first ever episode of Doctor Who. And so, for some reason, feeling like it was totally natural, I got a red crayon and wrote the word warship in block capitals on the carpet in front of me. And I mean... What colour was the carpet? It was pale. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, look, I was five or four or five, so I must have had some sense that this was not completely acceptable. Mm. But I think I only realised the extent of the problem when my mum turned around and saw it and went apeshit, right? I mean, there's two (laughs) possible responses when you turn around and see something like that. One of them is, ah, my kid is Danny from The Shining. (laughs) Ah, And the other one is fuck you little shit you fuck the carpet i think my mum went very much for the second option Um, so i got (laughs) sent to bed and when my dad got in there wasn't much to suggest that he was creeped out either by the (laughs) eeriness of the scene Uh, so much is furious about the price of a steam clean so the upshot was number one my dad stormed upstairs and threw my box of crayons out of the window and two to this very day, I start laughing whenever I hear this song Breaking Glass by David Bowie. Because <laughs> uh, he says, don't <laughs> look at the carpet. I drew something awful on it. <laughs> My only regret, right, the only, the only thing that could have made this better is it wasn't the Grand National on TV. Won that year by mm. Red Rose. Yes, yes, which yes. Which might have set up the most beautiful, perfect scenario, mm. which would mm. make a far better story. But... But things like that just don't happen in real life. Mm. I'm nine years old and I'm in the third year at junior school and I just about remember this episode because it was the one relief in a very turbulent week. All all involving, like you, Taylor, an art project. (laughs) Because on our estate, there was a big concrete staircase at the bottom of the street next to us, which was like built into a grass bank. And round about this time, me and Ian Jarvis, my mate, we discovered that if you dug into the grass bank, there was a huge clay deposit underneath, and we couldn't believe it. It was like finding a, a, a lake of school glue or yeah, something yeah. like that. We didn't realise that you could get clay out of the ground. So we spent an afternoon playing with the clay and eventually making nudie women and cocks and balls out of clay <laughs> and showcasing them on the staircase. And we were about 60% through the whole staircase. <laughs> and fucking Braggerjag, whose house was next to uh, where we were, he came home, got out of his car, and just saw a staircase of cock, and he went fucking mental. <laughs> Grabbed hold of me, dragged me up the street by the tab, banged on the fucking front door, told me mum I was a dirty bastard and I wanted me arse tanning. <laughs> he was called Braggerjag um, because he's only topic of conversation was his car oh i thought he was hungarian (laughs) he had a jag he liked to brag (laughs) but more importantly i'm pretty much convinced that this is the night that my granny was rushed to hospital after having a minor heart attack and we got the call just before this episode started my mum's going hysterical my dad's running around getting ready to take her to the hospital which meant that me and my sister were allowed to watch top of the pops to calm us down because we were both going hysterical as well because you know i'm nine and i've been really lucky so far to my mind the only people that ever died were people who were mentioned on news at 10 and pets she was my granny on my mum's side and she was fucking rock she brought up six girls on her own on the roughest estate in Nottingham and 
very opinionated about pop. Um, she loved the Rolling Stones. Ooh. She thought Mick Jagger was really leery. She was convinced to her dying day that all the Beatles were homosexual. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's not like the Beatles ever showed any interest in women. No. <laughs> I used to go round hers after school every now and then, and she'd always let me watch any pop programme that was on. I remember seeing every episode of Mark, the Mark Boland-hosted mm. uh, kids' TV show. Yeah. I remember watching the first episode with her, and radio stars came on and did No Russians in Russia. And she just sat there with a fag going, what the bloody hell are they going on about? There's no Russians in Russia, <laughs> filling kids' heads up with bloody rubbish. I would have told that it was based on a private eye cover when Gerald Ford said there were no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe during the presidential debate with Jimmy Carter the previous year, but I was only nine and I didn't know that. Mm. But she pulled through. She she lived another four years and she spent quite a bit of time afterwards stopping around our house while she was getting better, which was fucking brilliant because that meant my dad had got to the pub a bit earlier. Mm. So on Thursday nights, the living room telly was free for watching Top of the Pops, which she was quite happy to watch as well she always hated songs about suicide she'd just tut away when song for guy by elton john came on and uh the theme from mash and uh i I didn't ask why and i wish i'd have done now Mm. so music wise like many of my age i'm a granair i'm still trying to come to terms with punk if I'd have been a teenager, I like to think that I'd be full into punk. But, you know, when you're nine, it's teenagers' music. And teenagers are horrible cunts who kick your football into someone's garden or, or boot you up the arse for no reason. Yeah, they're always smoking and spitting. Mm. So my only source of information about punk was the same source where I got information about sex, which was the Sunday papers. And they made punk sound absolutely fucking terrifying yeah it's not just some kids who are kind of bored and want to dress up a bit (laughs) the greatest internet forum post in history was in the early noughties when someone on the word magazine forum said that around about this time it went round their school that a sex pistols concert consisted of johnny rotten singing we hate the queen because she's no use look out baby here comes the juice And then the band would all get their cocks out and piss all over the audience. (laughs) And if that had gone round my school, we'd have totally believed that. (laughs) So by this point, if an actual punk band had pitched up on top of the pops and didn't do something like shit on a picture of the Queen or throw a pig into a wood chipper (laughs) and shower Tony Blackburn with blood, we'd have been massively (laughs) let down. And of course, you know, as soon as the double whammy of Saplan Pour Moi and Jilted John came on top of the pops, so that was it I realised what punk was all about <laughs> oh yeah and like everyone else at school I was full into it <laughs> there was a lot of moral panic about sort of you know delinquency and hooliganism at this point wasn't there and I think that punk somehow ended up getting conflated with that mm. do you remember that um, public information film in set in a kind of suburb and like hooligans during the night have like absolutely trashed the whole area and the adults are just yeah do you remember that one yes and they were saying like can't call the police it's no use this is nothing you can do mm. half of them are in the police <laughs> yes first of all that happened precisely zero times in the area that I lived in you know the entire area getting trashed I mean if any kids had sort of turned out and uh, 
you know, there are enough sort of like hard nuts in my road who have absolutely got the shit kicked out of them if they sort of like, you know, they either yeah. might be kind of glowering from behind neck curtains, look at them, the hooligans smashing up our garage door. Yeah. But, you know, I think there was yeah. a sort of yeah, a lot of moral panic and um, punk somehow kind of got roughly treated, I think, in that regard. By this point, we're 11 months away from the Grundy incident. Yeah. There was the initial explosion of outrage over mm. that. And then there was a summer of scare stories over the punks, Ted's fighting on the King's Road. And, you know, by this point, punk has finally filtered out to the provinces. Mm. And yes, David, you're right. Vandalism and wrongness hangs thick in the air. Mm. For example, here's a dispatch from the Coventry Evening Telegraph a mere fortnight before this episode, which documents that havoc that's being wreaked upon the nation by the punk craze youngsters. <laughs> the headline, Down With Punks. Oh. <laughs> Rebel the Labrador has had just about enough of the punk rock craze he didn't mind when the punk rockers stuck safety pins through their noses and ripped their clothes but he is not happy about the trend of punk fans wearing dog collars around their necks and rebel's owner mr harold smith is not very pleased either because the four collars stolen from the pet in the past month have cost him about 20 pounds <laughs> i'm quite sure that it's the work of these punk rockers said mr smith who owns the beechwood hotel sam pitts lane kersler coventry very reasonable, right? <laughs> the first three that went were expensive chain-link collars with name tags. Then, rather than buy a new collar, the Smiths decided to use the brass-studded leather collar, which was worn by their last dog, Brande, who died last year. But within a few days, that was gone too, and they have had to fork out for yet another collar. It was bad enough when the first three went, but that last one was the only memento we had of Brande, who was a great old dog, said Mr. Smith. The trouble with Rebel is that he is so friendly and will go to anyone, but I can't understand the mentality of kids who would steal a collar from a dog. <laughs> Mr. Smith now faces a choice of letting 15-month-old Rebel go out without a collar and risk it being stolen again. <laughs> Meanwhile, he wants anyone who knows of a punk rocker wearing a dog collar tagged Rebel <laughs> or Brande to contact him or the police. Well, if you call your dog Rebel, you're asking for it, aren't you? But, oh, look at poor Rebel in that photo, chaps. <laughs> Sadness in his eyes. <laughs> he can't understand. He's only friendly. Mm. Yeah, yeah, they should have called their dog, uh, I love Pink Floyd. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or Genesis. Yeah, exactly, yeah. No problem at all, yeah. Mm. But uh, yeah. have I missed something here? How do you steal a collar off a dog? Is the dog out on his own? Yeah. Just wandering the street? Oh, but yeah, I mean, that was the 70s. That used to happen all the time, like the dog at the road, Glenn. I mean, he just, they would just let out in the morning. Glenn? Yeah, Glenn. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Who and, calls um, a dog Glenn? The, the Clarks did up the road, yeah. Anyway, you know. He's so he was always having his collar stolen by country music. Folks. Yes. <laughs> he would just roam the streets like a Beano character and then come back for his tea. Yeah, so yeah, that did happen. So it's quite plausible, yeah. You know, it wasn't, didn't live in the kind of surveillance society we do now, you know. 
Didn't the van come round with the dog water yes. on the side? <laughs> and they got a big net, like a butterfly net to get him with. If you let your dog out on your own, some you are going to smear shaving cream round its mouth, aren't there, for, for logs? Yeah. <laughs> no, but no, my dog never had a collar. I'll bet not, yeah. We yeah. would have a collar round our neck when he came around. Mm. Of his paws. <laughs> oh, I'd wear a dog collar with bummer dog on it. <laughs> so, pop crazy youngsters, you know how we go about. This is the time of the episode when we delve into the crates and pull out an example of the music press from this week. And this week, I have gone for the NME, November the 5th. 1977. Fucking hell, bonfire nights around the corner. Mm. What kind of bonfire night would you have around about this time? God, I can't believe that Jack Heaps playing field is getting two mentions on chart music, but oh. uh, that is precisely where uh, the bonfire took place, yeah. Cool. G- gingerbread Brent. Jacket potatoes, which are considered quite exotic, really. One of those mm. kind of once-a-year things, you know. Like <laughs> um, cranberry sauce or whatever. And, of course, a guy. Mm. Yeah, just the usual, you know, like the, the face scorching hot and your back freezing cold. Mm. You know, like some <laughs> plastic cups trotting yeah. into the grass. You'd think the NME would be uh, less enthusiastic as it does celebrate... Uh, the murder of someone who tried to blow up Parliament, which I, mm. I you'd have thought the enemy at the time would be all for that, you know. Yeah. yeah. Albeit in the name of a sort of Catholic Taliban, which mm. is what the <laughs> gunpowder plotters actually were, but people don't like to talk about that. On the cover, a mid-60s black and white shot of Pete Townsend. He's facing straight on. You could actually cut his face out and put it on your guy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what they were thinking of. You know, like Whoopi used to do. Yeah. Mm. They'd have a cutout of Guy Fawkes. Mm. But who's going to want to cut the comic up? Yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. In the news, the forthcoming Sex Pistols movie, Who Killed Bambe, is off. Shooting was due to commence last week, but after the budget escalated to three quarters of a million pounds and one of the backers pulled out, the sets and stages have been struck. Director Russ Meyer has returned to Los Angeles and the scripted drug orgy between Johnny Rotten and Marianne Faithful never happened. According to a Daily Mirror article this week, technicians walked off set after a deer was shot with a crossbow and the pistols are claiming that it's all the fault of Princess Grace of Monaco, a director of 20th Century Fox, having a cob on about the film. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the great missed opportunities of punk, that film at one point was going to be directed by Pete Walker, the British genius super hack behind films like uh, Frightmare and uh, House of Mortal Sin. Uh, like proper 70s British sleeves, but with a really funny, cynical, sort of anti-establishment, but not pro-anything kind of feel. Mm. Like really, like, it would have been perfect for the Sex Pistols. Also directed Schizo, the one true British giallo, and bangers Ooh. and mashed giallo. But unfortunately, it never happened. And Pete Walker was asked about this, and he said he met up with him and had some meetings, and he liked Johnny Rotten because apparently Johnny mm. Rotten admitted to him that he was only in it for the a laugh and the money. Mm-hmm. But he hated the other Sex Pistols because he said they were idiots who had no idea what was going on. Ooh. So that's sort of belief. I love Pete Walker, though. 
just don't bother watching any of his films if you're a big fan of satisfying endings. Mm. <laughs> Meanwhile, shooting has just begun on another film, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, featuring Peter Frampton, the Bee Gees, George Burns, and the third world superstar himself, Paul Nicholas. <laughs> oh, that's going to be fucking brilliant, that. Can't oh, wait. God, yeah. There's no possible way that could be a letdown. I know, no. Having never seen that film, I can state, nevertheless, with absolute authority that it's shite. I don't think anyone's ever seen all of it. Mm. Because I have. Have you, have you got through the whole thing? Yes. Wow. Because I like? wanted to see the end bit, because there's loads of famous people. Like Curtis Mayfield yeah. is in the fucking background at the end. Mm. It's a film I've never been able to get all the way through, and I once watched Andy Warhol sleep. Um, there's just... <laughs> something sort of queasy and wrong about it on every mm. level mm. but not in a compelling way mm. right yeah. it's just like you have a dream and the next day you can't quite remember what happened in it you just mm. have a a vivid memory of this indescribable atmosphere which you can't really put into words mm. and possibly frankie howard was in it yes but you try and tell anyone else about it and it's the most boring thing they've ever mm. heard it's what watching that film's like yeah pete waterman should have done a film about the Bee Gees with big fun in it 10 years later see how they liked it <laughs> <laughs> yeah put a quote from the from big fun saying yeah now the Bee Gees records no longer exist <laughs> that wasn't that one of yes. said about Sarge, yes. the original Sergeant Pepper <laughs> now it may as well no longer exist <laughs> Peter Gabriel and his band have been arrested on tour in St Gallen, Switzerland, after Gabriel stopped off on his way to France to make a phone call in the early hours, and he and the band were mistaken for bank robbers by locals. <laughs> but the police cleared it all up when they opened the tour manager's suitcase, discovered huge wads of four different currencies, and accused them of being members of the Bader-Meinhof gang. <laughs> After a four-hour interrogation, one phone call to a French promoter cleared it all up, and they were released without charge. Yeah, and Peter Gabriel said to the police, uh, did this interrogation really have to last four hours? And they mm. said, yes, see, now you know how we feel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, that pebble coming at you direct from a glass house. <laughs> Basically, if you're young in Germany, and West Germany, whatever, you couldn't go out, unless you had a short back and sides, you couldn't go out without being arrested. Mm. Yeah, a lot of people in the uh, German police at the time with, uh, shall we say, an interesting history. Yes. Mm. <laughs> a bit of a problem there. A bit of a problem getting them out. In other pop stars in the Nick News, Jet Black and Jean-Jacques Bernal of The Stranglers have spent the night in the cells at Brighton after six local policemen who were tracking two dozen Hells Angels from Holland who were mates of the band raided their dressing room with a police dog. When two of the angels were arrested after the gig, Black and Burnell went to the station to have it out with them mm. and were themselves arrested for disorderly conduct. Mm. Imagine sharing a cell with half of the stranglers. Yeah. yeah, it's funny that they were arrested for disorderly conduct because usually the plan, let's go <laughs> angrily and drunkenly to the police station and have it out with the police mm. as a much happier conclusion. Yeah, at least that dog kept his collar this time, though. <laughs> EMI have won the battle to sign the Rich Kids, the new group formed by ex-Pistol Glenn Matlock, while CBS have made do with signing the Cortinas. Meanwhile, the punk-crazed youngsters are finally allowed to purchase the new double-A-side Terminal Stupid, 
I Can't Come by a band who choose to call themselves Snivelling Shit. <sighs> They're a punk That's band right. formed by Sounds Jono Giovanni Dodomo, and it's available in all good record shops. Manufacturing problems forced Island Records to press it in France, and when the first batch was imported into the country, it was impounded by customs officers for being dead rude. I love how you say uh, the band called the Snivelling Shit. They're a punk band. Oh, really? Mm. <laughs> it's like I was watching uh, Hammer House of Horror last night, and someone says, uh, you need to meet this bloke, the Swami Gupta Krishna. He's an Indian. (laughs) (laughs) Inside the paper, well, Charlshaw Murray gets on the bus for the live Stiffs tour and discovers that Nick Lowe is reading Jack the Ripper for The Final Solution. Dave Edmonds is getting stuck into Elvis What Happened and Elvis Costello is leafing through the essential Lenny Bruce. On the way to Manchester, Costello nips into a Woolworths and comes out with two copies of Anarchy in the UK, a single changing hands for anything up to £15 in London for 32p each. (laughs) Meanwhile, Dave Edmonds is pissed off that Tony Parsol described him as dumpy and matted in the NME and gets thrown off the tour after an altercation in Leicester. And Ian Jury and the Blockheads are absolutely astonishing on stage and are going to be massive. Mm. Because of a dispute with the printers, the pagination has been cut down this week and regular sections are missing, which means that five and a half pages are dedicated to an article written by Pete Townsend, who takes the opportunity to talk about how shit being in The Who in 1977 is, his battle with alcoholism, how Danon is the best yoghurt in the world, but he's only ever seen it in New York, <laughs> his ongoing rows with Roger Daltrey, and bangs on about Meher Bob again Uh, although in fairness can you imagine being in the who in 1977 it's not exactly Mm. peachy i wouldn't have thought you know what Mm. i mean you got this Mm. constant brandy headache (laughs) your your ears are (laughs) permanently ringing uh your drummer can't play anymore because he's so full of champagne and elephant tranquilizer Mm. you're playing charlton football ground in the rain while your audience (laughs) kick the shit out of each other and they only want to hear boris the spider and then you you (laughs) whack a les paul off the stage until the the neck separates from the body and you have to be there on time just to look (laughs) at the ox's softening booze face and and who are you going to complain to roger daltrey he's just got off a nautilus machine (laughs) drinking water and eating a carrot he's golden all over and he feels like a shiny new penny you know and he only achieves peace and fulfillment through the mindless repetitive work that is literally driving you insane poor old dodgy Mm. pete you know what i mean i wonder he grew a beard (laughs) and tony parsons introduces the world to polystyrene of x-ray specs We find out that Identity was written on the spot one night in the Roxy when she was disgusted at the sight of a punkette smashing a full-length mirror because that's what she thought punks had to do. She stopped selling clothes at the King's Road Market because Ted's kept smashing up her stall. Brixton is the worst place in the world for a mixed-race kid to grow up in and she doesn't like the Stranglers. Mm. Single Reviews 
Due to the printer's dispute, there is no singles page in the enemy this week, so we whip you over to that week's record mirror. And in the chair this week is Rosalind Russell, who once dropped her notebook on the floor during an interview with Grace Slick so she could check if she had a metal scepter. <laughs> her single of the week is With You by Demis Roussos. You have to hand it to old Demis. Who else would have the gall to get on stage dressed in a tent and sing silly love songs? I'm pleased he has women after him all the time. He makes beautifully romantic records and proves to all ladies that they don't have to be skinny to be sexy. A massive hit. Open brackets. Failed to chart. Close brackets. <laughs> Railway Hotel by Mike Bat is a sensitive piece of writing that's made me go all weak at the knees. I love it. I hope he manages to lay the ghost of his furry friends once and for all. Oh, yeah, right. Mike, speaking of Pete Walker, there's a really lousy film of his called Home Before Midnight mm. uh, from around the period we're discussing here, which is a like a pseudo-moralistic drama about a pop songwriter who's having an affair with a girl who turns out to be underage, even though she looks 28. Um, And this character is a a successful writer, but not the public face of a load of bubblegum hits. Mm. And his name is Mike Beresford. Now, if I'd been the similarly named Mike Bat, Mm. successful writer, but not public face of bubblegum hits most notably for the wombles much love creation of elizabeth beresford oh, exactly. yeah. i yeah, might yeah. have felt a bit uneasy about this film <laughs> um but it is a terrible film actually it's not don't start with that one the best thing about it is that it co-stars des dyer out of no Jigsaw. oh not yes Ducky des. yeah he plays the singer <gasps> of a pop band called bad accident <laughs> <laughs> which is one of the greatest fictional or non-fictional <laughs> band names ever. And the other best thing about that film, someone says to Mike Beresford, it wasn't your fault, it was the filth and degradation of our profession. <laughs> you can't really argue. And it's got a cameo from Diddy David Hamilton. Good Lord. Um, but yeah, don't start your Pete Walker Odyssey with that one, really. I just don't. But it's a coat down for orgasmatic by the Buzzcocks. Oh, hell, good grief. Sorry, we're completely unshockable by now, and that's the only thing this single has going for it. As a song, it stinks. It has only one line to hold up the entire effort. The singer sounds less like he's having an orgasm, and more like he has a bad attack of asthma. That's, That's a bit weird, isn't it? You know, you big up the bat... And you kick the cocks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, I like the idea that she just assumes the only reason for this song is to shock you. Like, it doesn't cross mm. her mind mm. that maybe it's supposed to be funny. I mean... Mm. Really Free by John Otway and while Willie Barrett is described as Mike Son meets Judge Dredd and the collision is not a pretty sight. That's not on this episode, Pop Craze Youngsters. Don't get your hopes up. But, no. hang on, Mike Son meets Judge Dredd. That's... Judge Dredd's version of Come Outside, isn't it? Yeah. Uh. Equally short shrift is given to rip her to shreds by Blonde. <laughs> <laughs> All sex and sadism, sadly little talent, says Russell. Mm. Have you seen the press advert in Record Mirror for Ripper to Shreds? Yeah. Oh, Debbie Harry in a miniskirt. 
and over her head in massive letters, wouldn't you like to rip her to shreds? Oh Different yeah. times. Yeah. I'll tell you what, though. It's like uh, Rosalind Russell. I mean... <laughs> Why, I wonder why she was stuck on record mirror, eh? Mm. They say the championship's a tough league to get out of. But although she's meant to be a very, very good interviewer, actually. I mean, you know, it's possible that's yeah. perhaps more where a skill lay than, uh, than singles assessment. But Russell really, really hates Short People by Randy Newman. Let me tell you, Mr. Newman, I ain't too keen on you either. Keep your insults to yourself, or I'll come round here and I'll stand on a box and kick you where it hurts. Hmm. Alessi have finally followed up their top ten hit with their new single, All For A Reason, but Russell doesn't reckon it. A slick production, but the song doesn't have the charm of O'Lore, even with the cutesy lisp. Sorry, doesn't cut it this time. Sweet Music Man by Kenny Rogers is sad, but not gas oven sad. Annie by Pete Townsend and Ronnie Lane is almost like a Scottish folk ballad. Little Queen by Heart is a waste of time. Anything for You by Flintlock is one of the best and most commercial singles of this week's bunch. And Guns of Navarone by the Scarterlites is the Grimethorpe Colliery Band goes Rasta. Mm. Golden Age. Back to the NME and the LP review section. It's a huge week for LPs, but only one gets a full page. Never mind the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols. Unfortunately, they've given the review to Julie Burchill. Mm. She claims that she doesn't know where bodies comes from, but it scares her, and it will be open to much misinterpretation, and it was grossly irresponsible to release it. Mm. Open to much misinterpretation by Lost Punk Rockers, of course, Taylor. Yes, indeed. Immaculate like a terrine. Like a terrine. <laughs> I don't really know anything about music, but the Sex Pistols play as well as anyone I've heard, and I've heard Jimi Hendrix and Pete Townsend records she says but she claims that spunk the bootleg lp that also came out this week is better Mm. leonard cohen has got together with phil Spector for his first lp since 1974 death of a ladies man and roy carl reckons it the teeming of the tycoon of teen and the doyen of doom has proved to be a masterful collaboration This is an album of great maturity that has succeeded because a great deal of time and talent have gone into its making. From performance right through to production, there are no weak links. Makes it sound like a bloody Ford Cortina. (laughs) Yeah, and also the whole charm of that LP is that it is a peculiar weak link in Leonard Cohen's career. Mm. There's a bit William Woolard, wasn't it, that review? Yes, very much so. It's getting close to Christmas, so out come the compilations. And Greatest Hits by Roxy Music is Bags It by Julie Burchill. After sneering at the cover, a gold disc, and accusing Brian Ferry of lying in his lyrics, she changes tack and declares it the best compilation ever. This music is a precious relic, not relevant anymore, but at their best, Roxy Music were better than David Bowie, than the Supremes, than the Doors, than the Sex Pistols, than anyone I imagine I will ever hear. 
but it's a coat down for Out of the Blue by ELO. Three. Why why does the praying mantis eat her male partner after orgasm? Why do the Italians slaughter so many songbirds during shooting season? Why do Jeff Lynne and Electric Light Orchestra sell so many albums? Asks Angus McKinnon. Out of the Blue celebrates nothing but its own artifice. It will naturally sell the requisite billion and more. It scares me to the bone marrow. I think worse than to be scared of in 1977, but uh, Mm. I think the idea of celebrating your own artifice sounds pretty good to me. So this is the modern world. I'm glad they told me. For an instant, I thought I'd been transported to 1965, writes Mick Farron of This Is The Modern World, the second LP by The Jam. He then spends the rest of the piece having a gargantuan mod on about Paul Weller singing that he doesn't give two fucks about his review on the title track and only mentions one other song, In The Street Today, which he doesn't like. It's fair enough, though, that he's fucking hilarious in that song, the way Paul Weller goes, I don't give two fucks about your review. Yeah, I can tell. (laughs) (laughs) Volume six of Sing Along a Freddy turns out to be a good deal less limp than the current hit single might suggest, says Bob Edmonds of News of the World by Queen. But unhappily, the first two tracks are the songs on the single, We Are The Champions and We Will Rock You, with May and Mercury evidently vying with each other to outdo Rod Stewart's sailing and create new anthems for chucking out time. Once they're out of the way, however, Edmonds contends that this is an LP which, quote, rips out of the speakers in a way that makes communication sound broken down. In many ways, this is the most intriguing intriguing Queen album since their finest sheer heart attack whether all the obvious tension within the band will spur them onto greater things or simply pull them apart remains to be seen and Spectres by Blue Oyster Cult is their most cerebral LP yet and absolutely flawless according to Paul Rambale while Monty Smith reckons that Slow Hand by Eric Clapton is dismal stuff yeah fuck off Eric Clapton Mm. I bet Jimi Hendrix's anti-vaccination single would have been miles better than yours. <laughs> In the gig guide, wow, David could have seen the Stranglers and the Dictators at the Roundhouse, Elton John at Wembley Empire Pool, Shaking Stevens and the Sunsets at the Covent Garden Rock Garden, Mungo Jerry at the Music Machine, Dire Straits at the Hope and Anchor, Wire at the Rochester Castle in Stoke Newington, Slim Whitman at the Palladium, or Show Waddy Waddy at Hammersmith Odeon, but probably didn't. I'd probably have gone and see Mungo Jerry when I was 15 yeah. at that point, of that lot, mm. given that choice. Didn't, I wouldn't have yeah. known who Y were. Um, yeah. Just reaching their peak in 1977. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Taylor could have seen the Tom Robinson band at Barbarella's, Darts at Aston University, the Steve Gibbons band at Barbarella's, Kenny Rogers and Crystal Gale at the Birmingham Hippodrome, X-Ray Specs at Barbarella's, or Barbara Dixon at the Birmingham Town Hall. Oh, Birmingham, the centre of the world this week. Mm. Boston. (laughs) Neil could have seen Caravan at Warwick University, the Four Tops at Coventry Theatre, the Clash and Richard Helen the Voidoids at the Locarno, or plunged into Wolverhampton to see Smoker at the Civic Hall. 
Sarah could have seen Van der Graaf Generator at Hull University, Sham 69 at the F Club in Leeds, The Runaways and 999 at Sheffield City Hall, Jasper Carrot at Sheffield University, Generation X at the Doncaster Outlook Club, or Gary Glitter at Bradford St George's Hall. Al could have seen Burning Spear at the Palais, or nipped out to Darby to see The Clash and Richard Hell and the Voidoids at the King's Hall, or XTC at Blue Blows in Colville. And Simon could have seen The Drifters at Aberys with Great Hall, the adverts at the Cardiff Top Rank, or Max Boyce at the Stone League Club in Porth Call. While you were just reading those out, I just looked out my window and a dog went past <laughs> with a collar on. Oh. an owner just wondering well there we go Wee. were there any punk rockers chasing after him yeah <laughs> it was like the Benny Hill show there was a whole queue of them just going round and round and round in the letters page Neil Spencer is in the chair for Gasbag this week and the main topic of conversation is the other week's clash gig at the Ulster Hall in Belfast which was cancelled at the last minute due to the promoters being unable to get insurance cover Still not having a clue at what was happening, a large crowd of punks gathered outside the venue. They spilled out into the road, and so cars etc had difficulty getting through. A few of the more pissed punks started to stop the cars in protest, which is when the real aggro began, writes A. Greer from local fanzine Private World. Frantic pogoing broke out in the road, and when the Brits pulled up in their jeep, they called for the pigs to get us out of the way. When the RUC came, they came in force and charged straight into them with batons drawn. When we could, we got out of the scene and went round to the Europa Hotel and tried to see the band. We saw Joe Strummer, the great prophet of repression and society's failure, on the inside. This made a lot of people angry but what really got my blood up was when he deliberately turned his back on us all caps <laughs> i mean i can understand being a little bit pissed off with the very out of character behavior of the ruc there but i like mm. how they're just outraged that the clash are staying in a hotel in <laughs> belfast like rather than yeah. choosing to bed down in the comba greenway just yeah just wrapped mm. up in a in a coat with urban threat stenciled on the front you call yourself punk rock isn't it you sleep in beds uh, yeah i bet bad accident would have slept out on the yeah, streets bad, uh, you humped a minor that's death to a band like bad accident <laughs> that's what someone says to mike uh, ba- ba- beresford i hope the smug little bastard at the insurance company feels at ease with himself knowing exactly what he's done writes ian duncan communications officer of northern ireland polytechnic the promoters of the gig In the meantime, we'll have to pay the clash and sew up all the holes, and that will take £2,000 we can't afford. I feel sorry for the social secretary, sorry for the poly, but most of all sorry for the innocent kids of Belfast who just wanted to have a good time and escape reality for a little while. Bad move, go and see The Clash if you want to escape reality. <laughs> if escapism for you. <laughs> I say, you jolly chaps, what a load of jolly old cobblers the old gnarled grey whistle test thingy is. And that hairy rabbit teeth chappy Harris is quite revolting, says Rupert Ponsonby Farquhar Smith of Oldham. Possibly mm. not real name. 
let's have some jolly old new wave weekly pop programme instead of some poncing old hippies with cobwebs strewn around their personas. Mm. It's been two weeks since Leonard Skinner's plane crashed and the readership are paying tribute. No smart-ass one-liners, just a big thank you to Ronnie Van Zant, Steve Gaines, Cassie Gaines and all the rest of Leonard Skinnerd who have given me so much pleasure in the last few years, both on stage and on record, writes Ian Wilson. Dear Ronnie Van Zant, when you get up there and see Elvis on his gilt throne, munching his way to eternal obesity at his private pizza parlour, give him a good boot from us all. I'll tell you who was fucking king, says Hapadiep Melv of the Cambridge Corn Exchange Appreciation Society. <laughs> fucking so much death in late 1977. People forget about mm. Leonard Skinnerd. Mm. Julie Burchill and Tony Parsons have announced their engagement, but the two letters printed are too boring to read out. Why would you announce that? Mm. Like, if, if I was working on the music paper and I was getting engaged... To Neil, for example. To Neil, yeah. I, was, uh, I wouldn't feel it was <laughs> worth telling anybody about this. You know, why... <laughs> Court circular. <laughs> An angry feminist from Edinburgh has a cob on with the Stranglers for their outdated lyrics about women... A short-haired working-class student living on a minimum grant from Nottingham points out the similarity between something better changed by the Stranglers and we're not going to take it by the who. And Kev Bisco reckons the new Sex Pistols LP should be called Never Mind the Fans. Here's the singles again. (laughs) 44 pages, 18 pence. I never knew there was so much in it, even though there wasn't so much in it this week. (laughs) Didn't cost me fucking 18p off ebay let me tell you that fucking hell yeah. 1977 nmes go at a premium agree mm. so you you got to hear that pete townsend likes danon who danon yeah. <laughs> so dear boys what else was on telly today well bbc one kicks off at 9 41 with a quick blast of schools and colleges programs and then has a 10 minute break before displaying a caption for an hour which reads because of an industrial dispute we are unable to cover the state opening of parliament fucking hell thank god you weren't watching that at the time with your crayon and your aunt taylor <laughs> well yeah it could have been worse if it had been on and look around i've just written black rod on the carpet yeah i didn't think they had cameras in uh parliament in 1977 no it it would film them going in and out right yeah then it's the school's program milestones in working class history oh i think that was one of them just then (laughs) after a 15 minute close down it's on the move the midday news pebble mill at one heads and tails you and me and more schools and colleges programs and then it closes down for another 53 minutes After regional news in your area, it's Play School and Lippy the Lion and Hardy Ha Ha. Then Michael Jaston reads The Edge of Evening by Nicholas Stewart Gray in Jackanore. That's followed by Charlie Brown, John Craven's News Round. Then John Noakes and Leslie Judd get to sit in an open carriage being pulled down the mall while wearing the actual coronation robes and some coronets in Blue Peter. Fucking hell. Mm. I bet you any money the magpie wouldn't have had permission to do that. Or no. Pauline Quirk mm. and Flintlock. No. Going down the mall. Wrong. 
So wrong. <laughs> After Noah and Nella, it's the evening news, followed by a caption of Bob Wellings, which reads, Because of an industrial dispute, we are unable to broadcast nationwide. Yeah. And they've just finished the usual gaze into the future in tomorrow's world. BBC Two commences at 11 with 40 minutes of schools and colleges programmes, then play school, and then shuts down for six hours and five minutes. Coming back with Open University, the news on two headlines, and they're currently five minutes into your move. The Brian Redhead adult reading and writing show with special guests Sheila Hancock and Roy Kinnear. They've got On The Move, and then you've got Your Move yeah. on uh, practically at the same time. Yeah, getting people ready for CFAX, David. Yeah. <laughs> ITV starts at 9.30 with two and a half hours of schools programmes. Then here we come to Popland, here we come to Popland for a heavy session with Animal Quackers. <laughs> they didn't go punk at all, did they, Animal Quackers? They were terrifying enough, I mm. think. Yeah, yeah. Then top off... The emo monkey is the only one in Pipkins who hasn't got a place of his own by the top of someone's wardrobe. So Hartley Hare, Pig and Octavia make him a treehouse in Pipkins. After the special child, where Dr Kenneth Day looks at schooling and adult facilities that are available to the mentally handicapped, it's the news at one, followed by This Is Your Right, where Lord Wynne Stanley answers legal problems sent in by owners. Then it's Crown Court, then Afternoon with Mavis Nicholson, and then Agro breaks out at a wedding between the groom and the bride's ex in the Midlands police drama Hunter's Walk. Graham Kerr shows us how to make Calchas Amsterdam in the Galloping Gourmet, and I have no idea what that is at all, so... Oh, yeah, yeah, you're just the first sort of celebrity chef. Oh, I know who he is. I don't know what Calchas Amsterdam is. Oh, sorry, God, I thought I was, I was going to say. God, I don't know. Probably got drugs in it. Yeah. I don't think I'd have to stub-splain um, the Galloping Gourmet to Al Needham. No. My apologies. God, no. Then it's the cedar tree, little ass on the prairie, a second chance to see it's your right, and Meg Mortimer is badly in crossroads. <laughs> After the news at 5.45, it's regional news in your area, Emmerdale Farm, and they've just started the Bionic Woman, where Jamie Summers battles a robot replica of herself by, I don't know, squeezing a tennis ball until he bursts again. <laughs> I mean, I cast aspersions on that many a time and often on child music, but, you know, when you think about it, it's, it's actually quite clever because, you know, whenever the lads on the school playground started jeering the girls about the obvious inferiority of the bionic woman, you know, because mm. after all, she can she can only just listen and squeeze a tennis ball, one of us <laughs> would be drawn into proving how easy it was to burst a tennis ball and, you know, you'd come off looking like a right twat, so... Yeah. Was that a special <laughs> power? You've got to be Jeff Capes to do that. Yeah, well, it was in the opening credits, well, wasn't she, it? She'd squeezed a tennis no, ball no, and it burst. The fact that the Bionic Woman was very good at listening. Oh, yeah, she <laughs> kind of like pull back her flick back hair and cock a tab. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah, and I think yeah. some waves oh, yeah, came. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah she could that, yeah. make six cakes at once. Yes. <laughs> no, I was like, why isn't there a bionic man? <laughs> All right, then, pop craze youngsters. It is time to go way back to November the 3rd of 1977. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have. 
Hi everyone and welcome to this week's edition of Top of the Pops. Ten past seven on Thursday, November the 3rd, 1977, and Top of the Pops is into its fifth year under the reign of Robin Nash, who is still dividing his time between our weekly fizzy pop treat and producing the Generation Game. Oh, chaps, what a shame he didn't mix the two, eh? We could have had every band and artist in the top 30 rundown going by on a conveyor belt with, <laughs> you know, the Stranglers being portrayed as cuddly toys. toys. Yeah, That'd yeah. be fucking brilliant, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. This is purest top of the pops to my mind, isn't it? Gone mm. is the album section. Gone is the tip for the top slot. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Breakers and the interviews and the Star Bars and Jonathan King's Entertainment USA. All that shit is years away or years behind us. Yeah. There's no Rammel. There's no frippery. This is purest top of the pops, isn't it? And it's it's not going to change any time soon, no, is it? No, no, no. If it ain't broke, don't twat about with it, as my mum used to say. Over on Radio 1, on the other hand, change is definitely afoot. Because the BBC, after three years of merging Radio 1 and 2 together during the daytime in the spirit of her string-related minginess have finally decided to start separating them out once again, meaning that by this time next year, David Hamilton will have been finally released into his natural habitat of Radio 2, Andy Peebles and Kid Jensen are going to have their own evening slots, and the talent pool of Radio 1 is about to be enlarged. That was really important, wasn't it, chaps? It was kind of important, really, as a listener at the time. There were certain things that were almost given a deliberate legitimacy via kind of being broadcast through the lucidity of, you know, Radio 2. But I always liked the fact that with Radio 1 that you just had that kind of sort of gauze of static interference, I think, you know, as an added dimension, really, to the whole music. Yes. That's how we consume the music, you know. When that goes missing, it's actually a little bit weird. It's not quite the same. You really have to strain to listen to the music, don't mm. you, mm. back then? Yeah, you know, it, it was kind of coming over the phone to an extent. Yeah, which is why smart producers would, uh, before they signed off on the final mix of a single, would put it through a shitty speaker or go out and listen to it in their car just to make sure that it was going to sound good in the circumstances in which it was mostly going to be heard. Yeah. I mean, if you're listening to Radio 1 right now, you're being treated to Edmundo Ross and his Latin American orchestra, followed by an hour and a half of David Allen's Country Club before you can get to John Peel. And, chaps, no one ever talks about this, but surely one of the factors in the pop explosion of the Aventis has to be the fact that bands of that ilk were finally going to get a fair go on Radio 1 in the early evening, which was their natural habitat mm. all of a sudden bands like xtc and x-ray specs you know th- there's actually going to be a place on them on radio one that you know isn't after the watershed and bedtime yeah absolutely i mean you know it's weird to think that you know there was what well, effectively might as well have been dead air throughout the evening right through until whosoever mm. was listening to um john peel almost like the kind of gulf between the idea of pop and counterculture was um you know was, was, that was that was duly duly marked out um so yeah i mean yeah. that was a massive difference when there's suddenly um you know this kind of sort of gradual gradient you know from daytime into the evening and culminating in john peel yeah and i think that encourages yeah. a kind of feed between 
the so-called underground and the mainstream. Because to me, as a nine-year-old, the idea of stopping up until 10 o'clock to listen mm. to John Peel, I might as well have tried to stop up to watch open university programmes about physics. It just just wasn't going to happen, man. By 10 o'clock, I'm spark out. The only time I'd do it, it was, for football was I'd, I'd be sent to bed, but then my dad yeah. would whistle down for me when Match of the Day came on on Saturday. So it kind of worked for football, but there's no way he was going to whistle me down to listen to John Peel, you know, no. in the school <laughs> yeah. night. So, hey, David, he's playing a whole side of Tangerine Dream. <laughs> yeah. Hey, David, the snivelling shits are in session. <laughs> so your host tonight is... Peter Powell, who has just joined Radio 1 after three and a half years at Radio Luxembourg, most recently as their breakfast show host. He's been penciled in to take over Simon Bates' Sunday morning show, giving Pig Wanker General the opportunity to depose Tony Blackburn and assume his rightful mantle of King of the Housewives. That's not going to happen for another 10 days, but the BBC are clearly so taken by their new sign-in that they're giving him his first ever appearance on Top of the Pops, even though he hasn't played one record on Radio 1 yet. Mm. So, chaps, Peter James Bernard Powell, to give him his full name. Very much the new kid in town, even though he's already put in a brief shift in on Radio 1 in 1972 when he held down the Saturday afternoon slot. But... By immediately sticking him on top of the pops, they obviously think he's up to the job. It's, it's like it's got this kind of debut appearance smell about it, this whole, whole yes. appearance, hasn't it? You practically see him psyching himself up just before the intro, and energy, Peter, energy. And he yes. just kind of overdoes it, you know. You can just imagine him being quite ingratiating around the Radio 1 offices. I can imagine him making Simon Bates' tea for him and Simon Bates letting him, or even going out <laughs> on coffee runs for David Lee Travis and saying nothing when he doesn't get reimbursed, all that kind of thing. It's a sort of wet niceness about him <laughs> back then i mean as a kid i mean at that age i still ranked everyone all, all males anyway according to hardness and i reckon he'd been about right. the 12th hardest in our class theoretically but that's only on imagining how we do in a fight because he never actually would right and i kind of stuck with this idea of his essential niceness but um to be honest after watching this episode i've now busted him down to creep oh yeah right well look oh you sent um, a little little crib sheet before we recorded this. Yes. Like, okay, this is what we're going to talk about. Uh, yes. Next to Peter Powell, so this is his first Top of the Pops appearance. How does he get on? Mm. And I thought, yeah, well, combination of institutional cowardice and knowing the right people. I, <laughs> I mean, fucking poached from Radio Luxembourg. Yes. He should have been poached like an egg. <laughs> a dirty egg. <laughs> I mean, you, what a wanker. You know what I mean? It's, you look at this non-stunt kite mogul. Uh, I mean, look, I've met so many young men like this, like privileged, rather corny lads with no particular mm. talents who manage not to be wankers. So he's just got no excuse at all. Mm. It's, it's barely credible that someone like this ever really existed when you see him now. Mm. There's a lot of modern equivalents, but the modern equivalents aren't quite like this, right? With that crushingly affected, like, fake cherubic energy, you know? Mm. Mm. Actually, more like a biblically accurate cherub. (laughs) And that obnoxious, upbeat, uh, cheerleading for everything Mm. and therefore nothing, Mm. you know? Mm. Like, he does the intro, you see him, yeah, for a second, completely just still, and silent, awaiting his cue, you know, and yeah. then there's a deep breath, suddenly a fixed grin, yeah. and 
Hi everyone! Yeah. It's, well, it's like week, a, isn't it? Top of the pops. Yeah, that's it. It's like a crossroads type moment, isn't it? Or Acorn Antiques, that kind of thing. <laughs> Just before the yeah. action begins, yeah. It's a giveaway. It's rearing <laughs> up. He's like a jack in the box, but with a mm. rotting human foot on the <laughs> end of the spring. He's so <laughs> unreal, but at the same time, he's so basic mm. and mundane mm. and mm. undistinguished, you know, and banal evil spreads out from him like a smell yeah christ almighty what must his real personality be like you know if this is what he puts on for the camera Mm. he's got his radio on t-shirt on lest we doubt his commitment to being a company man it's like he's been signed by a football club isn't it he's got his radio one shirt on what a shame (laughs) he's not holding up a radio one scarf as well yeah yeah exactly (laughs) he's got that sort of like little muscle in his face he's like he's sort of physically fit in the days when when muscle bound meant someone who did 50 sit-ups a day and ate bananas you know what i mean and he's got that that insincere dimpled youthful pseudo charm you know but his eyes are blazing with this pure empty ambition you know and we're still in a period where the best way to appeal to everyone is to be nauseatingly ingratiating and oily you know, and it gives me the creeps, except that he takes it so far that it's yeah. entertaining, right? Mm. It's like a trip to the reptile house. Mm. You know what I mean? <laughs> makes, makes your skin crawl, but you can't take your eyes off it. Mm. You know? in, a, in a weird and horrible sort of way, he is on a kind of different energy level to everyone else, but that's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, he's kind of a paradox, really. He's at once vacuous and yet full of piss and shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also, I mean, Peter Powell is from Stourbridge, (laughs) which is proper black country, and there's Mm. not the faintest trace of Midlands in those vows. Oh, no, no. I mean, it's like he's he's from Malvern or something. Mm. That's a (laughs) bit bit of an in-joke for Midlands people. But look, I mean, like, I've lived in London. I've lived in fucking jellied eel country for 30 (laughs) years, and most of the time now I sound like I'm flogging stolen crockery off a market stall. (laughs) But... Even so, I still, to this day, inadvertently pronounce a rogue W after every letter O because, you know, I haven't forgotten my roots. There's something wrong here. It's like he's completely untrustworthy on every level. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And also, did we leave him out of the Russian doll? Yes, we did. I think we did, didn't you? I think in between Kevin Keegan and the old sailor mm. is where you'd find Powell. Mm. We've seen Andy Peebles and Simon Parkin making their debuts on Top of the Pops during our chart music odyssey, and they both had an absolute mare, but Powell's arrived here fully formed, hasn't he? This is the Peter Powell that you're going to get right through the Aventis and beyond. It certainly is. He's hit the ground running, hasn't he? Yeah, like a saw. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you had a competition to decide who's the worst pal, you wouldn't actually feel confident about putting a bet on the winner. That's how bad Peter Powell is. It's mm. Fucking Grant Bovey placeholder. But I d- fucking. Yeah, I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I do take your point, Al, you know, that it's almost like, you know, come on, guys, it's nearly the 80s, dealy bopper time. <laughs> yeah, the 80s is right, mm, David. Mm, definitely. <laughs> you know, there's notional 80s, which is going to be lots of white trousers. Radio Luxembourg is definitely the feeder club to Radio 1 right now, because would you care to take a guess who Luxy have drafted in as Powell's replacement in the breakfast show? Uh, ooh. Mike Reed. Mike Reed. Oh, wow. 
The other thing of note is he automatically becomes the youngest member of the current presenter pool on top of the pops. Mm. At the age of... Well, pal, 26. Mm. So-called kid, Jensen, 27. Uh. Edmonds, 28. Really? Good grief. Travis, 32. 32. Blackburn, 34. Ed Stewart... 36. Ed Stewart's doing Top of the Pops in 1977. Oh, Fucking dear. hell. Yeah. And, of course, Savile, 51. Oh, they're all uh, such babies. Uh, yeah. The BBC globe fades, and we are immediately confronted by Powell in a Radio 1 T-shirt, who bellows a welcome and throws us straight into the Top 30 rundown, accompanied by Turn to Stone by ELO. We've covered the Electric Light Orchestra loads of times on chart music, and this, their 10th single, is the follow-up to Telephone Line, which got to number 8 in two non-consecutive weeks in June of 1977. It's also the lead cut from their 7th LP, Out of the Blue, which came out the other week. A double LP which was written in a fortnight by Jeff Lynne in a rented cottage in the Swiss Alps and has already notched up four million pre-orders and instantly went platinum. The single entered the charts at number 43 last week and this week it soared 16 places to number 27. Now, before we let David into rave on about the ELO, oh. let's get the chart pictures out of the Ooh, way first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a few in here, aren't they? Say what you see, chaps. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mary Mason. I, I think I had a photographic memory this era. I, there wasn't a memory, Mary Mason. This is this is bullshit. This has been photoshopped in for some obscure reason. There was no Mary Mason. This is a lie. Angel of the morning. I mean, Giorgio Moroder. Oh yeah, that photo of Giorgio. Oh my God, it's like hideous Euro creation. Mm. You know, beyond the imaginings of the Fast Show, and of course flanked by two of the sultriest stunners 1977 yeah. had to offer. Yeah, I mean, but ended in this- an A. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stunners. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And, you know, there's got those huge tinted glasses, that medallion and that kind of right of hair. I mean, and he makes D- Dave Lee Travis look like Howard Devoto, doesn't he? Yes. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's just like ultra Hersu Alpha. And yet, you say that from this body and this mind sprang the reinvention of pop this yeah. very year. Donna Summer, the, you know, it came from this body. Yeah, it's, this uh, he's thing. entitled to all the lovelies he can get his hands on. Well, that's that's true. That's true. Yeah. Oh, Ram Jam. Now, Ram Jam to me a yes. pure nineteen seventy seven. I'm sure that midnight and New Year's Eve they were just they literally and physically expired. And that yes. was the end of them. <laughs> None more nineteen seventy seven than Ram Jam with the possibility of Wild Willie Barrett. Well, there's there's the wrong lineup of Roxy music. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, yeah, it's nice to see Brian Eno rejoining Roxy music, ditching all that ambient stuff. Yeah, that's yes. great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's those pictures from the first LP where Brian Ferry looks like Doctor and the Medic. Yes, and Phil uh, <laughs> yes. Manzanera playing his guitar like a World War One fighter ace flying his biplane. Yes, fucking great. It's the re-release of Virginia Plain. Ah, uh, okay. Well, fair enough then. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yeah, fair depressingly enough. accurate. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, oh well. There's, um, Carlos Santana, uh, suddenly remembering his recently deceased dog in the middle of a blowjob. Oh, um, <laughs> I put down, he's looking like he's trying to remember where he put his car keys while he's being given a nosh. <laughs> no, it's it's we, we got to the nosh bit in the end, though, Taylor. Great minds think alike. 
Wow. <laughs> uh, there's the Baron Knights uh, beaming with flinty glee as they hear that the charges have been dropped for lack of evidence yet again. Uh, <laughs> yes. The the Carpenters' spectral forms mm. uh, wearing those shirts so white that they don't actually exist in the visible spectrum. <laughs> it's like it looks like the Carpenters live from Three Mile Island. <laughs> the Stranglers pictured in front of precisely the appropriate shade of dirty, rancid green, mm. like a 1970s labour exchange toilet wall <laughs> smeared with <laughs> itinerant mucus. Um, and uh, David Soul looking just ever so slightly concerned about the moustache he's grown, uh, mm. officially recorded as the second ever standalone moustache grown by a blonde man. Um <laughs> And he is, you know, he's right to be concerned. Um, since you asked Brian McLean of love. Um, <laughs> oh, and status quo, all leathered and mustachioed and unhealthy. Yes. Uh, looking like the Albanian secret police yes. in about 1988, <laughs> inquiring as mm. to where you got that swing out sister record. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> this could well be the, uh, the debut appearance of that photo of the Bee Gees. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, look how unscratched it is. Mm. It's pristine. <laughs> I don't think the pistols are doing themselves any favours, you know. They're, they're no. Rather, rather slovenly and yobbish and uncouth. Yes. You know, in, a, in a kind of not really quite punk way. As if unless it's some sort of meta sort of yobbishness. Mm. I suspect John Lydon, maybe he's being meta-yobbish. Meta I think Steve Jones is being actual yobbish. Then you've got mm. Sid Vicious bent over like an untethered punk monkey. It's uh, yes. just an odd image all told, really. Yeah. So, dear boys, it's late 1977, and we are at peak ELO, don't you think? Mm. They got off to a good start in the early 70s, but they became more popular in America than they were over here. There was a bit of a brief lull in the mid-70s, but they roared back in 1976, and, and here they are following up an LP that sold 5 million copies last year, and, uh, and this is the opening shot out of that blue, if you will. Yeah, yeah. I can I can sense pricey already, kind of getting sort of angry in advance, you know, as I yes. sort of me- muse. Yeah, his pricey prongs are <laughs> vibrating right, yes, as I muse upon yellow. I mean, I would only say I, I don't think this particular thing is their finest. I remember it vividly from the time, and it sort of trundles along in a sort of clapped out boogie wagon type sort of device and you can imagine poor old Beethoven lying there thinking I rolled over for this <laughs> but the thing is I mean I, perhaps I'm a little bit over, overall a bit unfair to ELO because of like when this came out I mean I had a sort of Peter Powell type universal appreciation for absolutely anything if it was yeah. pop and I'd consider this first class opal fruits for the ears <laughs> but then of course a few months later when I gained critical consciousness they were one of they're, they're, they're one of Quite a few groups I felt I had to renounce, definitely. Mm. I probably actually read somewhere about how they celebrated their own artifice and nodded along and thought, <laughs> mm, that's probably a bad thing. Yes, <laughs> yes. And then the worst thing was, I've mentioned before, my younger brother getting into something didn't help at all, you know, because I always had to be one up. When he got his chipper, I got my chopper. Mm. When he got into ELO, it sort of behooved me to step up a notch. Um, so I think perhaps that has kind of coloured my appreciation of ELO over the years, in fairness. It was your brother's music. Yeah, exactly. Uh. So this album would have been ringing through the Stubbs household. Right about this time. Well, yeah, it was actually, uh, or, or over the next couple of years. It was a slight delay, really, because it was more 78, 79. You know, I was, and it, it was yeah. the, the great ELO versus Faust wars raged in a certain part <laughs> yeah. of Barrack and Elmet. Yeah, it's a funny one, this, isn't it, this record? It's like, for me, there, there's two ELOs. 
and I like one and not the other, mm. you know. Two ELOs sometimes in the same song. Mm. There's the, the chunky, lumbering, beard and pint of mild ELO. It's like the ELO that's very specifically a man from the West Midlands in a very expensive recording studio, as if it were the shed in his garden in Small Heath, where he tinkers with yeah. his 1962 Triumph Bonneville. <laughs> it's, it's basically it's driving music, isn't it? You know, you've got, you got your tinted glasses on and you're mm. driving on an A-road, mm. sort of heading for Spaghetti Junction or, you know, full of beef burgers. Or heading for um, Borton on the Water to see the model village, perhaps. You know, always worth a visit. Mm. It's good because it's, it, it's got a model village yeah. of the town of Borton on the Water, including the model village in it. <laughs> Then inside that, you can just about see another model. Fuck. If you keep going, you come to no. the smallest object in the universe. And, and then inside that is the lead singer from Airsupply. Um, <laughs> I bet the people who made Fantastic Voyage must have felt like right cunts when they found out about this. So there's that ELO. There's like the, you know, the driving gloves ELO. And then there's the other ELO yes. who sound celestial and otherworldly. You know, like there's no friction or gravity in this music. That's the best ELO. The ELO that sounds like yeah. the music is genuinely being beamed from the ELO spaceship off the record covers, you know. That spaceship which looked like the game Simon. Yes. <laughs> you know. Um, and this one is a mix of both. It's like there's some really lovely textures in it, mm. um, just sheets of blue perspex, you know, like which is absolutely my ELO and then there's also a lot of smoothly produced clatter which does nothing for me you know it's got that river dance rhythm in it for a start and Ooh. that's always a bit suspect in records from the 70s just because of the prog associations mm. the only two 70s records I can think of that have got that rhythm which I like are one of these days by Pink Floyd and the seven inch of the Doctor Who theme uh other than that, mm. it's right. Doom, yeah. Doom, 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 doom. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, yeah, I'm a bad yeah. judge because just as yeah. uh, just as David had his brother, I'd, ELO was the kind of music that my not especially musical dad thought was really impressive. You know, like it was a a, a great achievement. Right. It's not that I ever resented my dad or his musical taste or anything like that. I just felt that those priorities and those concepts of what music should be like or what was good music were not mine and should be rejected and rebelled against you know i thought that was what people who don't really get music just assumed was obvious right that this great production mm. and this uh, achievement was was you know that this was the pinnacle of what music could be and i thought mm. that's not true but i hear it now it's all right i mean it's ripping off the beatles a lot um and Queen, mm. which for English rock is pretty bass level, you know. But it's okay. It's a bit of a yeah. a carvery meal, but it's all <laughs> yes. right. You know, I can hear it and not implode. Yeah. When I watched this episode for the first time in ages, and uh, this came up, it's like I don't know this song. And then all of a sudden, of course, the chorus tips up, and it's like, oh yeah, there we go. I, I know you now. ELO very good at choruses. Yeah. Well, that's the trouble you see. So in the in the great ELO versus Faust wars, the whole one of the great maxims of Krauss rock is that you eschew you know uh, choruses. You know, there isn't. Yeah. You know, oh, God, yeah. You know, you plow motoric on. So you know that would have been a pointer against them for a start. There, kind of right. insidious facility for a chorus. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, there's, there's um, a compilation has just come out um, on Cherry Red and it's called something like 
Boston, um, and it's a three-disc <laughs> anthology of Brom Rock, you know, from 66 to 74. And I mean, wow. you know, whilst there's some distinctly variable stuff on it, you do realise just what a kind of civic force, you know, Birmingham stroke Wolverhampton was, and how much it actually mm. produced. And yet at the same yeah. time, as implied in the title of that collection, there's possibly always been this very slight cultural cringe around Birmingham, and it's almost like there's a sort mm. of built-in kind of modesty, in a sense, you know, despite, you know, the kind of strength of the achievements, you know, or perhaps, you know, in terms of it being sort of taken seriously and highly regarded, you know, you think that places like Liverpool and Manchester have been a lot more exalted. But in terms of, you know, quantity, at least, and especially in that era, but, you know, Birmingham and Wolverhampton produced a great deal, you know, mm. and they probably did more to fill out the early 70s than like, your Liverpools and your Manchesters did. Yeah, but unlike Liverpool and Manchester, uh, the area has an inferiority complex. Like the cultural cringe, like I say, yeah, definitely. The UK are finally catching on to ELO by this point, aren't they? I mean, a couple mm. of years ago, they were playing Madison Square Garden and then coming back here and struggling to get 300 people into De Montfort all in Leicester. But right. a year from now, they're going to be doing eight nights at Wembley Arena with a big fuck-off spaceship, which was clearly nicked from Funkadelic. Mm. Yeah, and uh, and being introduced mm. by fucking Tony Curtis of all people. I, I remember that footage. Yeah, the greatest rock and roll band in the world. Huh? Yeah, Tony yeah. Curtis, man, he was well up for the Midlands, wasn't it? ELO, yeah. um, Debbie Ashbear, and that's it. <laughs> but that's enough. I watched that at the time, and I was really bitter when I saw him saying that, and I lost a lot of respect for Tony Curtis that had really? built up during the Persuaders because Faust were obviously the greatest band in the world. Mm. And like how, how he didn't see that. What did know. Roger Moore have to say about ELO? He, he kept very quiet about that, didn't he? Yes, he kept his own counsel. Yeah. Yeah. So the following week, Turn to Stone nudged up three places to number 24, stayed there the following week, and then took three weeks to crawl its way to number 18, its highest position. Oh dear, Bodzil. But the follow-up, Mr. Blue Sky, got to number six in February of 1978, kicking off a run of three singles from the LP, getting to number six that year, and out of the blue would go on to sell over 10 million copies worldwide. Mr. Blue Sky, David, where do you stand on that? Inner noise. Ooh. Lovely. This is a modern world. This is a modern world. What kind of fool do you think I am? You think I know nothing of a modern world? Before Turn to Stone and the canned applause even has a chance to fade out, we're hit in the face with a Rickenbacker being played with fire and skill. <laughs> and the first performance of the evening, The Modern World by The Jam. We've covered The Jam in Chart Music 15, and this, their third single, is the follow-up to All Around the World, which got to number 13 in August of this year. It's also the lead cut from their new LP, This Is The Modern World, which comes out a fortnight after tomorrow, a mere six months after their first In The City. The single, which has been re-recorded for Radio Airplay, came out early last week and it's already crashed into the charts at number 38 and they've been rushed into the top of the pop studio. Well, boys, this this really is the only thing that's even remotely 
punk on this episode because, you know, even now, just after 11 months to the day of the Grundy incident, which was punk's coming out party, it's still not bossing Top of the Pops about, is it? No. I mean, here's a list of all the punky appearances that have occurred on Top of the Pops so far in 1977. And by punk, I mean bands who look as if they're personally angry with you for making them do this sort of (laughs) shit. So, The Jam in the City, 19th of May. The Stranglers, Go Buddy Go, 26th of May, 9th of June and 23rd of June. The Saints, This Perfect Day, 14th of July. The Sex Pistols, Pretty Vacant, also the 14th of July. First chant music we ever did, David. Mm -hmm. The Jam, All Around the World, 21st of July, 4th of August, 18th of August. Television, Prove It, 6th of August. The Rods, Do Anything You Want to Do, 11th of August and 25th of August. The Stranglers, Something Better Change, 18th of August. The adverts, Gary Gilmore's Eyes, 25th of August. The Boomtown Rats, looking after number one, also the 25th of August. Elvis Costello, Red Shoes, 8th of September. Generation X, Your Generation, 15th of September. The Stranglers, No More Heroes, 22nd of September. Tom Robinson Band, 2468 Motorway, 27th of October. And the Sex Pistols, Holidays in the Sun, also on the 27th of October. So, no Clash, Buzzcocks or Damned in 1977, but for Top of the Pops, the Jam were always in reception. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I was just purely a pop-crazed younger at this time, and so... Punk to me would have meant the Pistols, obviously, the Stranglers and the Jam, essentially. Yeah. The Clash didn't really have a look in because, of course, the Clash didn't do Top of the Pops. Uh, it was no. uh, you know, out of their militancy and what have you. But this cut through, this really spoke to me because I think for kids my age, so I'm, what, about 15, just turned 15. I mean, Punk wasn't really about bondage and Mohicans or any of that King's Road stuff. I mean, it, it's about the no. rise of the school kids and it's kind of been in the air for a while, we've been kind of ready for this. This look, you know, this whole attitude's been simmering us since, well, it's 1973. I mean, my first inkling of punk was in the Beano in Dennis the Menace, Dennis and the Din Makers, if you remember, oh, with yeah. Nasher on drums. Oh, yeah, the pioneers. That's right. Walter, of all people, on bass. And um, that was my yeah. kind of early, that, that something was about to change. And there was a little, I was a little bit off it as well, but there'd always been that kind of surliness and gobbing and repurposing a school uniform into something that's sartorially rebellious, you know, big ties, top buttons undone, Oxford bags, stacked shoes. Ugh. Yeah. And it was weird, but also, you know, these 70s things, because we all know, I mean, nobody was immaculately dressed in punk. There were loads of flares and centre no. partings and what have you. Mm. But for me, you know, the essence of punk was Kevin Burke from our class 4S knocking on the staff room door, yeah. Big Bill, French master answering it. And Kevin Burke and his flares and a safety pin through his nose, shouting, punk rock, at him and running off. <laughs> punk rock. <laughs> what was he into? What, what bands were he into? Oh, oh he didn't. David? He just knew about punk rock. He'd heard about it. Right. He understood the essential delinquency of it. I bet he'd heard about it in Cheeky Weekly. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it, I mean, there's a lot in this. It's about school, you know, and the song and his teachers and stuff like that. And so there is this schoolish attitude. They're like sort of rogue prefects here, hijacking the school disco. It's got that kind of energy about it really you know we don't know anyone tell us what's right and wrong yeah right mm. and i do like also um you know rick buckler on drums yes have I, t- have I told you my rick buckler related joke go on have i you want to hear it yes, yes. yeah really yeah the jam one yes please all oh, right okay because you know it's fantastic and i don't think it 
It just doesn't get the appreciation for some reason. It's never had. I mean, people have been left cold by it, but you, you wait until you hear it. It's, cause it's, oh, it it's, sounds like it's going to be brilliant. So, I, 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 yeah. Well, I think that's, that, that is the promise, yeah. Go on, yeah, go on, I'm, I'm ready so, to laugh. Let me put my tea down before it goes through me I nose. know. If, if you've got an aisle nearby, be ready to roll in it. Um, <laughs> so anyway, the joke is, if I were to open an estate agent... Oh, no, we burned it! it! No! Oh, no. Oh, no is that was, well, sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. That's the only one I've got. Okay. Every time the jump comes up, you do that joke, David. Oh. oh. And Taylor beat you to it. Well, are you sure? Come on, let's hear it again. I'm sure I'm sure. I'm going right, to laugh okay. just as no, hard I think, this time. E- exactly. Even with all of this, I think you're going to Go laugh. On. If I were to open an estate agent, I'd call it Butler's and only do business with people who got the joke. <laughs> oh, there we go exactly that is exactly i'm sure that's happening that's, that's resounding up and down the country among the pop crazed youngsters you're raising some very good points here shit joke notwithstanding because mm. you know me i would become a massive jam head but yeah. but not now not here because you're 15 years old you're um yeah. you, you're fucking leery aren't you oh damn it, yeah and surly yeah 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 but for me the modern world meant forest sabutio 2000 AD, actually being liked by the teachers and trying to get seven fizz bombs into my mouth in one go on the way to school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the modern world was fucking mint mm. for me. If I'd have written this song, the song would have been called This Is The Modern World, Hurrah. Mm. I always felt that my younger brothers got life just that bit better. All these kind of things just suddenly opened up a bit um, and they had a better quality mm. of life just two or three years down the line yeah, than yeah. I did, definitely. Because, you know, there was empty desperation, really, as far as I was concerned. The only other thing I'd say is um, I do, well, again, once again, I mean, politely received, you know, by the audience. You can actually see them taking a cue from the floor managers who applaud. You can actually see them turn heads as the floor managers clearly make, oh, I'm sorry, enthusiasm, enthusiasm. Not too much enthusiasm, but that's, sort no. of, I mean, that's always a thing. Not too much no enthusiasm, spitting. no spitting. Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing them do In the City on Mark, uh, the Mark Boland Granada TV show uh, with my granite, and just thinking that they look like the cunts from the secondary school up the road who mm. walk through our playground thinking there was summer. Mm. <laughs> the surliness and the snottiness is just coming off Paul Weller mm. and to a lesser extent Bruce Foxton. But Rick Buckler really lets the side down when they do a close up on him and he just gives the camera this gormless smile. Yeah, he just has that kind of look. I don't give a shit. I'm the hardest kid in the class, you know. I mean, he's also got a ring of padding around his symbols. Did you see that? Yeah. So he can give them a proper thrashing without, you know, pissing off the neighbours. Paul Weller looks angry and leery. Rick Buckler just looks confident in his hardness. Mm. I never felt scared of Bruce, though. He looks like a man flying through turbulence. You know what I mean? He's always got that slightly (laughs) look on his face. And it has to be said that. The Jam are not sharp-dressed men at the moment, are they? They've got button-down shirts, but, it, you know, if one of them buttons pop, they'd be on the verge of being condor collars. Hmm, hmm. The camera stays above the ankle, but I'm pretty sure there's going to be a bit of swing in those trousers. Oh, definitely, yeah. But that was just right. That was just perfect, because that's how all those kids looked in that old, you know, fourth-form class photos. If they'd look too smart, too immaculate, we wouldn't have related to them. And also, I love the, the Grange Hill image. Hmm. Of the early yes. jazz. It's like... Ripper Weller. <laughs> yeah. Whatever the logic of dressing in off-the-peg suits as a reaction against punk, mm. or, you know, a reaction against... Like, it's sort of utilitarian workers' protest yeah. against bohemianism, you know. Mm. The aesthetics of it are great. 
like jet black suits and not even that mohair suits so the light just disappears into them pure black suits gleaming white shirts washed by his mum uh jet black ties gleaming white socks and fire engine red guitars um it's such a strong vivid look you know although it's slightly spoiled here by bruce turning up with the white bass because it always looks wrong when their guitars aren't color matched mm. um mm. The, the rest of the image is so so perfect and symmetrical no you you have to have the same color guitars come on you're supposed to have an eye for detail it's a mod thing it is much better than the other top of the pops appearance they made for this song where Paul Weller's wearing a pair of dark glasses that look like he borrowed them off his nan, <laughs> you know, like who wore them with a knitted cap <laughs> and a plum-coloured leather coat, you know. <laughs> I mean, the, the appropriation of shirts, suits and ties is just one of the key things from sort of punk through post-punk onwards, you know, across the board in various ways and very specific ways. But overall, it is just a rejection of like what seems like a rather trite kind of anti-suit and tie thing that you get from sort of prog and hippie or whatever. So it's kind of represents a rejection of that. It has to be said that Weller's got a proper Weller dad haircut here. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and it's proper mullety, isn't it? Mm. Probably here by Robert at Schumann. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that kind of shit you just remember. Yeah, all those kids rushing into the shop, uh, holding the record sleeve, pointing at that picture of Bruce Foxton. Mm. <laughs> Make me look like this. <laughs> but this is the whole thing for all its massive imperfections it's perfect if it had been perfect it would have been imperfect sort of thing you know it's, mm. it's this is just right they just hit exactly the right sartorial note for people like me watching so well has got a, a red rickenbacker and he's one of the first artists of the era to have adorned his guitar with messages on top of the pops isn't it he scratched I am nobody mm. into the top right of the guitar body. Mm. Yeah, which you wouldn't do unless you thought you were somebody. Mm. Or what you're trying to say is people keep telling me I'm important. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's what that well, means. It kind of contradicts the thrust of the lyric, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, but more importantly, more, more intriguingly, he slapped a sticker with an address typed on it hasn't he at the yep. bottom right, which, shall I read it out? I don't yeah. know if I need... Uh, uh, well, it, it, it's Jill. Wag, wag, oops. Bromley, Kent. And as yeah. we all know, Jill was Paul Weller's girlfriend at the time and would be so right the way through the Jam's career because, you know, she's the one holding the white flag on the cover of Beat Surrender. But fucking hell. Yeah, it's a bit odd. One of many things about this clip that you probably wouldn't do the same way today. Yeah, look, the no. full address. Like when they report on uh, court proceedings in the local paper. Yes. Uh, or when they read out viewers' letters on the big match. It's like, and I, I went on, I'm sure you did too. I went on Street View. Of course, look it up. It's a nice. Google Maps. Yeah, it's a nice first flat for a young professional lady. You know, it's, mm. a, it's a purpose built behind some trees. You know, yeah, nice area. Yeah, they need to fix that gate though. <laughs> it's just as well there weren't video recorders around so much at that time because, you know, that house would have been laid siege by lads in jam shoes and parkers, you know, hoping to catch a glimpse of their hero having a row with his girlfriend <laughs> and having oh, to man. be taken to hospital because he smashed a teacup over his head in frustration, <laughs> as was documented in the Paulo Hewitt book, A Beat Concerto. <laughs> this isn't a very good song. Really? Do you reckon? No, it's all right. I'm arguing with you on beef, that one. Beef, I think, beef, beef. Well, I mean, it's clearly the best track on the new LP, isn't it? Uh, it's up there, yeah. But yeah. It's, you don't get much of a sense from it 
of what the jam would become. I mean, you do in a sense because the blueprint is very much already there, but mm. you don't get a sense of how strangely subtle and weirdly sort of brutalist beautiful they would become. Mm. It is just the skeletal jam. It's just angry bloke barking yeah. over this yeah. tangled, wiry cacophony. <laughs> um mm with these comical lyrics about how he still hates his teachers, you know, even though he hmm. left school years ago. But what it does show you is the base on which the jam's good music would be built in the, yeah. this is already a, like, it's an explicitly working class expression, which was specifically suburban rather than urban. Cause yeah. London has always looked down on the jam for their provincial naivety, you know, mm. which was real, but they were really for, kids from places like Woking or yes. Aylesbury or Bedford or Stevenage or Maidstone, you know, like mm. it was just council estates on the fringes of medium sized towns, you know. Yeah. And yeah. it's all they know he comes from Woking and they think he's a fraud. But his art is in the city where it belongs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also, already at this point, the jam are specifically aspirational in a in a sort of quasi-spiritual rather than materialistic sense, you know. Mm. But they're aspirational. They're not nihilistic or hedonistic, right? No. Which was quite an unusual thing at the time. And when you put all that together, it does explain why they meant so much to so many people, for better or for worse, yeah. especially at a time when there wasn't much else to do, you know. Mm. And even at this stage, you listen to the, the, the album that this is from, This Is The Modern World, with its ultimate new wave cover shot of them underneath the oh, Westway yeah. with some tower blocks in the background. Mm. Uh, yeah. And it isn't a very good LP, but even there, it's got stuff on it like Life From A Window, which yes. is a properly beautiful song about a very specific but universal experience of being young and alienated. And, mm. with, you know, with no self-consciousness whatsoever, they sing, I'm staring at a grey sky Ooh, I try to paint it blue, teenage blue, teenage blue, which is beautiful. <laughs> and it, oh, yes. and the the fabulous closing line: I'm standing on the post office tower, so I yeah. can see all there is to see. It's just pure yeah. possibility, you know. And you can chuckle at it, but it's great that that stuff's there. And you have to write yes. it down fast because once you're twenty three, it's not going to come into your head as purely as no. that. So mm. by that point, if you're writing about adolescence, suddenly you're writing about a character and it might as well be quadrophenia. Yes. You know, it's good to have a bit of the real thing when it's charming. Yeah. And pop is the one medium that can accommodate that sweet lack of sophistication and make it yeah. glorious. So, I, I mean, this is one of their weakest and silliest singles, but I like the way that it isn't just a song played by people who look like pupils at Grange Hill. It's a song that could have been yeah. written by pupils from Grange Hill. Yeah. <laughs> this is it. Again, it's the gauche adolescence, I think, that yeah. uh, is actually essential. You know, it's not rather than something you have to tolerate. Yeah. I'm only surprised he doesn't say flipping heck. Actually, he might as well, because they did censor <laughs> yeah. out the swear word, didn't they? 
Oh, yeah, it's a bit Scarlett O'Hara, isn't it? I don't give a damn. Yes. <laughs> Imagine how good Gone with the Wind would have been if Clark Gable had played a character called Rick Buckler. Mm. <laughs> to, to my mind, the best track on the new LP. This and Standards are the highlights of that album. Mm. But to my mind, this is Paul Weller saying, you know, this is the modern world and I'm part of it. I'm not a Who copyist. Mm. This is clearly the Paul Weller who read a review accusing him of being a revivalist and then cut it out, stuck it to some card, wrote, how can I be a revivalist when I'm only 18 over the top of it? And then wore it round his neck to the pub that night. Angry. Yeah. Angry young man. It also brings to mind Chris Needham sitting on the bog with his trousers still up after his blazing <laughs> set in the drama hall of Rawlins Community College, flushing the toilet and saying, flipping school, <laughs> and then uh, getting the arse of his jeans all wet. Yeah. Mm. Mm. But I mean, this, this is the modern world is the key, is, is the keynote, really. This is the modern world mm. and I'm making it. Yeah, convenient that it's got the word mod in it, though. Yes. He does want his cake and eat it here. But I mean, mm. yeah, they were obviously accused of ripping off uh, the Who, my generation, period, mm. which they obviously were. But the sound of it is completely inverted, right? Like the black and white look of the early jam is indivisible in my mind from the, the weird black and white sound of the early jam record yeah right? where the bizarre mix on them all where there's a, it's a guitar record but the guitar is mixed so low you can barely hear it um probably because it's so trebly that if you had it at normal volume it'd rip through your eardrums like a corkscrew um and the drums are always absurdly loud like thudding plastic skins walloping you know and this was the same on every song they never did anything different for about three years paul weller played guitar solos that might as well not have existed you know just in the distance somewhere uh whereas when you listen to my generation lp like the overdubs that pete townsend's doing on the 12 string rickerback sound like a plane taking off on the other side of the room yeah you know? and this is considerably less fearsome i guess you you got to thank the producer right vic smith um mm-hmm. whose real name or full name was victor coppersmith heaven yes but uh it, it, so that was i mean it's a delightful name but not something that he was prepared to reveal in 1977 probably the worst time in pop history to have that name. <laughs> so you know there's that goalkeeper bailey peacock farrell Mm. He's the he's the Northern Ireland goalkeeper. Like for a time, he he uh, played for Leeds United, and then I was thinking, this isn't right. That's, you can't you can't be Leeds United goalkeeper called Bailey Peacock Farrell. Yeah, but that's their nickname, isn't it? Mm. The Peacocks. Uh, well, that's, yeah, that's true. Yeah, Leeds Peacock. No one ever. It's one of those teams. You know, no one ever calls. Yeah, it's like the Throstles. Perfect name. Yeah, I remember saying at the time, you 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 might get away with that name in Chapel Allerton. But if you're out in town on a Saturday night, you better ask your friends to call you killer. <laughs> this really is the sound of a band who have been folded into the punk boom, whether they like it or not. And they're trying to kick on, but they don't really know who they are now. Mm. They pull the right shapes, but they don't want to be trapped in amber. Yeah, well, have you heard their demos from 1975? No. It's like from... Like when they're oh, like wow. kids, they're like 15, 16 year old kids, and they're doing like yeah. sort of Beatle yeah. type pop songs. And the, the singing and the playing is much better than it is on these records, right? It's like, is they're obviously like really good and just slightly dialed it down a bit for punk. Well, this is it. I think quite a few people had to pretend to be a bit less proficient than they actually were, didn't they? I mean, you know, this whole thing about people that can't play. 
you know, it was always <laughs> it was said. I mean, if people physically couldn't play, then it would just disintegrate after ten or fifteen seconds. But um, you know, I always thought it was just that people were playing in a very limited way, a del- or a deliberately limited way. You know, so to avoid um, you know prog excess, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, a bit like Dave Greenfield in The Stranglers. <clears throat> you know. But yeah, it's it's an interesting album because it is the sound of a band just trapped. Yeah. You know, like Nick Haywood said, you get your whole life to write your first album and then three months to write your second. And, you know, the, this is the modern world mm. is a prime example. And that No other singles released off this, you'll note. Yeah, but it, th- this little slump, this early slump in their career, wasn't it that he just met uh, Jill of yes. Romley Kent yeah. and uh, basically just wanted to spend all his time with her? Wasn't really into doing the band, and so it all got a bit half assed So you got like Bruce Foxton writing the A side of the next single, and yes. so on, which is really not. Yeah, not I mean, idea. by this time, Wellers actually moved to London to Baker Street, and the other two are still living with their mums and dads in Woking. Yeah. And Wellers put himself about a little bit in London, and he's already seen that punk's on its arse, yeah. and he's wondering yeah. whether the view has been worth the climb of being in the jam and uh, yeah he seems to be more interested in his girlfriend than his band not that you'd know it from the uh, fearsome performance here where he's he's doing that usual thing where he he rears back and then plunges forward with his mm. guitar like grimacing yeah baring his teeth like he's hacking the head off a 400 foot serpent you know yes. Which in his head he probably was. It's a serpent of complacency. <laughs> a pretty good start to this episode of Top of the Pops, I'd say. Yeah. But they were on the verge of becoming the real jam. Yeah. It's just about to click in the next year, you know. Mm. And I think part of it, and I mean, I've said this before, this happens to other groups of people too in the same way. But there's a problem for young working class songwriters and performers because middle-class songwriters are allowed to do and be anything that they mm. like you know whatever they feel it's their artistic entitlement to go yeah. in any direction they want whereas working-class songwriters are always expected to be symbols of and or spokesmen for the working class right mm. or else they're somehow letting everybody down it's like they, they're not granted that same freedom it's like no you have to be where you came from uh, mm. When, in fact, of course, the jam are good and interesting to precisely the extent that they're not trying to be symbols of or spokesmen for anything. They're just being creative and they're dull and prosaic to precisely the extent that they are symbols of and spokesmen mm. for the working class. The worst Paul Weller artistically is the Paul Weller with a chip on his shoulder trying to expre- uh, express his his commonplace confusion and uns- like his relatable confusion and uncertainty in this specifically tough street kind of way, you know, with a pugilistic huff and puff instead mm. of singing and all this yeah. scorching heat and, and lack of light, you know. And it's fun, but it's not good. And if that's all the jam had ever been, and if they'd split up after this album, as they almost did, yeah, um, they'd be one of the more interesting of the suburban yeah. hang around the adventure playground smoking and spitting type bands mm. uh but it's when he worked out that he could express that confusion and vulnerability and defiance in a subtler way yeah. and could work it into an aesthetic and a kind of cool sort of that's when they went from black and white into color like figuratively as well as sartorially yeah uh, 
But they always clumped when they tried to be ideological. That's the thing. Yeah. It's like partly because his lyrics are really painful whenever he writes general social comment, mm. uh, rather than doing it through stories about individual people, which is what he does on the best songs, you know. Yeah. And also it never worked when he tried to stitch his sociopolitical concerns into that kind of zap, pow, this is what's happening, sort of 60s pop art vagueness, you know, that kind of vague yeah. optimism. So all these songs about commitment and idealism and passion, but it's almost for its own sake, you know, mm. no definable goal, just this hunger for something which wasn't material, wasn't religious, wasn't politically achievable, couldn't really be defined in any way, mm. but it's, it's what we're yearning for, you know. It's, uh, mm. it's beautiful in mm. songs like mm. The Place I Love, yeah. where it sort of acknowledges its futility and melancholy, you know, and he just goes, I'm making a stand against a world, which is yeah. like the line you could hear in a million New Wave songs. But then yeah. the next line is, there's those who'd hurt us if they heard. Yeah. He's really paranoid and worried. Yeah. But, you know, it's, <laughs> it all goes wrong whenever it becomes pseudo-constructive. And that's the bit of the jam I never like, when he's trying to link expensive shoes and youth CND, you know, mm. and uh, have a cappuccino for international socialism, you know. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's sort of pushing on towards style council, I guess. So you've got, like, this cynical, miserable bastard who also thinks that, society is perfectible mm. you know and the, the best way to start is with a 200 quid haircut that yeah. looks like a novelty hat lyrically it's odd that a 19 year old lad is still pissed off with uh, what teachers told him at school mm. because when i was 19 I, things that happened at, at school just didn't give a fuck that was the past yeah, yeah, yeah only start getting angry about the way you were treated at school when you're a lot older and it's like oh fucking hell my, my life could have been so much better if i'd gone to a better school and all that kind of stuff but you can see this song as the prequel to billy hunt can't you mm. yeah yeah mm. yeah but it's he's still 19 that's yeah. the thing that he hasn't really developed an aesthetic yet mm. he's still groping around a bit and sort of like piecing together stuff that he likes trying to just waiting for it to click into a shape that is his you mm. know i think that's true in terms of his concerns as well as his uh you know artistic influences etc a lot of the strangeness of the jam, and by extension, the most interesting stuff about the jam, is down to the fact that Paul Weller is one of the greatest ever examples of a naturally bright lad with almost no education, mm. trying to inform and educate himself on the fly while churning out songs. Um, and I mean, there's countless examples of this in pop music from, you know, the Beatles on down, but... Paul Weller is almost the greatest example because he didn't write many love songs. He was desperate to communicate every idea that he read about as soon as he'd read about it, right? Mm. Like as soon as he got into a thing or, or an idea that was maybe slightly beyond his capabilities as a writer at that point. But no, as soon as he discovered something new, whether it was Shelley or, you know, Jeffrey Ash and his mushroom-headed, Pender's fan idea of um, Camelot and the vision of Albion. You know, mm. it would all go straight into a lyric or straight onto a record sleeve. And there was a total lack of context. Like you would, you always get with self-educated people. Like they read Shelley and it's right, now I know Shelley. 
but there's no wider understanding of romantic poetry or the context of the early 19th century or, or you know opposing critical views of Shelley or anything like that mm. um which I certainly don't mean in a sneery way because I went through all that stuff too I didn't go to university or live in an environment that was literary uh, university of life a Taylor yeah absolutely hard knocks and and tough surprises and the stuff that <laughs> I was writing at 20 is exactly the same you know yeah um but it means that you get all these strange straining lyrics where he's blazingly passionate but just slightly out of his depth and sometimes it's great and mm. sometimes it's hilariously awkward in yeah. a way that you just don't get with most other self-styled new wave poets right who mm. would tended to stick to what they knew and tended to be a bit older than they made out as well yeah 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 this is the the best thing as well as the achilles heel of paul weller he's always straining at the limits of his brain and the limits of his vocabulary mm. right, and the limits of his secretary modern education um you know which is why you get all those malapropisms and all those sort of lines like these the, like in down at the tube station at midnight when he says the glazed dirty steps repeat my own and reflect my thoughts which is sort of a horrible line because it's so overwritten and it falls foul of the basic rule of thumb of one image per image you know um mm. but you can see why you would have thought that was great you can see why you thought that was real poetry you know yeah musically you get something similar to that overreach you know there's loads of examples of the jam running before they're walking right which you usually get away with apart from when they do soul and funk you know well, like they, there's a few of their attempts at soul and fug later on in their career, which sort of make the top of the pop's orchestra sound pretty fierce, you know. But it's the, <laughs> but they had the same problem that most white guitar bands post punk had, which is that they are not from that generation that grew up playing R and B or pure blues to audiences of people who were dancing, you mm. know. It's like Paul Weller was enough of a soul boy that he could he could grasp how soul music worked even when he couldn't quite execute it. But Bruce and Rick so obviously grew up listening to Bad Company, you know, and <laughs> live in this musical world of straight lines and regular intervals. Yeah. Um, but here's the thing. This is the thing that, say, like indie bands don't understand. You listen to Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones, right? Mm. And we all know how that riff goes. It goes... <laughs> and every garage indie band on earth someone has that riff and instinctively when you're trying to work out an arrangement the drummer comes down hard on it and the bass player doubles it and you would get essentially a heavy metal track mm. um but when you hear the stones they don't do that bill no, wyman no. doesn't double it he plays something completely different it's syncopated against the guitar and drums he goes like do 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 and you put them together um and that tiny change makes the whole record move just mm. those the fact that the gaps are in slightly different places makes you want to move it makes you want to dance it turns into a dance record as well as a rock and roll song yeah. and it was second nature to that rhythm section to do that because of their musical background but this generation of musicians don't have that grounding in r&b so everything they play is straight lines right yeah. the best example in the jams case being start which everyone thinks has got the riff from taxman it's not actually the riff from taxman no. if you listen to taxman paul mccartney plays do 
and there's a gap at the end, right? Mm. And that gap is where the funk is, right? Mm. Because the, you leave spaces, right? In, in, in any sort of R&B or funky bass playing, where you put the silences is as important as which notes you play. Yeah. But on start, Bruce Foxton plays the riff that most people think they can hear on, on Taxman. He goes, mm. do, 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 mm. do. Yeah. And, yeah. and Rick Buckler compounds it by coming down really hard on that last note. Because mm. they, they don't understand the territory, right? So you get, do, 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 do. And it sounds like a fucking goose-stepping umpar band. It's yeah. not funky at all. But it's great, though. It's fucking great. It is great in its own way, but it's just sometimes bands wonder why they sound so white and unfunky. And it's like, oh, is it something genetic? It's like, well, no. it's not just the looseness or the tightness of how you're playing. It's the actual notes and beats themselves. They don't understand the musical nuts and bolts of no. what they're trying to play. And I strongly suspect that Paul Weller, who had an instinctive grasp of musical forms, did understand this stuff and... I suspect the fact that the other two didn't <laughs> may have had quite a lot to do with why the jabs split up when they did. I mean, obviously, I take the point about the Beatles and the Stones, and I think it was necessary that they be what they were and they have that proficiency and that background or whatever, and I think that is important. But I think that one of the sort of aspects of post-punk was kids who loved black music were fascinated by it sometimes on the sort of extremes you'd even like Carrie Voltaire's or whatever pop group or whatever finding a way an untutored way to come to this music and the fact that it was so sort of off beam as it were made it more interesting you know like a certain ratio for instance the thing about a certain ratio is they spent their careers trying to get slicker and slicker and better and better at playing that kind of dance music and as they did so the less and less interesting arguably they, they became you know certainly in the first mm. phase of their career they're now a different kind of band really they are more kind of proficient you know but but i think in that early stage it was when they were sort of feeling their way towards it and creating that kind of weird sort of gothic slight perversion of funk that, that was quite fascinating but i don't know if that, that necessarily applied to the jam though i mean what you say about Paul Weller just whacking everything down as soon as he comes into his head. You're totally right, Taylor, but, you know, that's because he's in a band that, for all he knows, is going to be a flash in the pan and could end any time soon. And he's also got a big record coming on his back saying, we want second album now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's got to think like that, hasn't he? Yeah, I guess. And also, but I mean, that immediacy is what he's into, you know. Mm. And I mean, look, I mean, it's anyone, including me, who wants to snigger at the youthful excesses and over-enthusiastic awkwardness of Paul Weller's lyrics or whatever, you know. First of all, you have to acknowledge the brilliance of his of his best songs, but also mm. the, you've got to see those creaky lines and those weird lines that don't work, not as blemishes, but mm. as living proof that this is a kid who came from an environment like where... You know, it came from a school where even the most creative and sensitive kids had to do 15 hours of metal work a week, you know. Yeah. From a, a an environment where you didn't read books, you didn't watch films, right? Transforming himself through sheer talent and application within about two years into yeah. an amazing songwriter, you know. And one who connected with a young audience of, like, you know, football hooligans and juvenile delinquents and bus shelter kicker inners mm. and fucking made them think you know yeah like and the fact that 40 years on half of those people are now carling drinking brexiteers you know with haircuts that look like they were tipped onto their head out of a bowl 
It's not really his <laughs> fault, is it? You know, there's something no. genuinely amazing about this that the biggest band in the country for a while certainly the biggest band with these kind of oiks used to put out songs that went i think we've lost our perception mm. i think we've lost sight of the goals we should be fighting for i think we've lost our reason we stumble blindly and that vision must be Being destroyed <laughs> and it's it's but he gave them all these songs that are ripping into male violence mm. and unthinking machismo and social deference and the class system and the grinding down of individuality, you know. And once he'd moved on from the the clumsy period that we get in this particular Top of the Pops, he usually did it without too much sloganeering or, Mm. you know, rabble-rousing. He led all those horses to water and some of them drank, you know, and some of them didn't. But it's a genuine achievement and he didn't have any help. Mm. Certainly not from the teachers who said he'd be nothing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and it's, and and then you get these amazing songs like Ghosts and and oh, Burning yeah. Sky and, and Start, where everything just comes together and it's perfectly balanced and it's proper, yeah. fully functioning, purposeful pop that actually got into millions of people's lives and minds. Yeah. And you look at a lot of those people now and you wonder what it was all worth or, or what it really meant, but that's... No, it's not Paul Weller's fault. I wonder what kind of Friday morning those teachers at Shearwater Comprehensive had <laughs> the day after this came out. Hmm. Did you tell Paul Weller he'd be nothing, sir? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yet, in an alternate universe, there is an episode of chart music that's going on right now where we talk about the jam and say, oh, what happened to them? Mm. Yeah, it'd be like the, the members or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it was really close. <laughs> yeah. It was really close, yeah. Well, I mean, by this point, um, they've started work on their third album and they've already been told that songs like I Want to Paint a Cat Shit <laughs> and they better do something about it or they're going to be out on their arse. Mm. And Bruce Foxton's having a chat with somebody from Sounds or something like that saying that he's thinking about going into the hotelier business. Oh, yeah. Going to buy a little bed and breakfast and work his way yeah. up from there. To estate agency. Yes. <laughs> so the following week, the modern world dropped eight places to number 46 but rallied the week after to number 36 its highest position meanwhile the lp entered the album chart at number 54 and the following week got to number 22 its highest position and the worst performing jam lp during their lifespan The follow-up, News of the World, got to number 27 in March of 1978, by which time they had scrapped work on their third LP, started again, and were putting together all mod cons. And the rest is history. Oh, and I promised the Pop Craze Youngsters I'd read that Bruce Foxen story, didn't I? Oh, yeah. This is a modern world. This is the modern world. Woo! Hey, that's the jam of modern world. Wild stuff, my jam. And let's just think about those occupants of interplanetary craft, shall we? The Carpenters, Richard and Karen together, and they're at number ten. In your mind, you have capacities, you know. To telepath messages through the vast unknown. Pow! 
demonstrating how au fait he is with the young idea, reacts to the jam by jumping into the air and shouting, Woo! Hey! Wild stuff from the jam. You fucking idiot. <laughs> he sounds like Bobby Gillespie. Yes. What a cunt. <laughs> I mean, it's the least ever spontaneous jump in the air, isn't it? And again, you can see, like, okay, three, lots of energy, lots of energy. You know, it's, it's, it's possibly, vaguely, it's meant to be pogoing. It's the one person in the studio allowed even to do a kind of approximation of pogoing. But it actually, it's more like Kevin Keegan leaping up to head the ball into the path of the onrushing Trevor Brooklyn. Yes. You know, it's good. And you can actually imagine Simon Bates, Dave Lee Travis, Noel Edmonds, all round at Travis's house with a pile of auto car magazines where a record collection should be. <laughs> and they're just saying to each other, who does this little prick think he is? Yeah. And, you know, and for once, I'd actually fully sympathise with them. <laughs> I bet when he saw that, Paul Weller had a swig from a can of lager and muttered something underneath mm. his breath. Mm. <laughs> yeah, see, all that shit you came out with, Taylor, Peter Powell's just summed up the jam like that. <laughs> mm. exactly, but yeah. this is Powell, isn't it? This is, this is the absolute <laughs> essence of Powell. Yeah. If you ever mm. want to write an essay about Peter Paul, all you need is an animated gif of this <laughs> looping mm. over and over and over and over. I'm surprised no one on YouTube has put up Peter Paul going woo yeah for 10 hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's on my to-do pile now. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, mm. It really is. Uh, mm. Does anybody remember laughter? Mm. <laughs> he then goes all serious and asks us to think about those occupants of interplanetary craft. <laughs> as he links to calling occupants of interplanetary craft by the Carpenters. Formed in Harold Carpenter's bollocks in 1946 and 1950, the Carpenters, <laughs> Richard and Karen, were born in New Haven, Connecticut and relocated to Los Angeles in 1963. In 1965, they teamed up with the bassist Wes Jacobs and formed the Richard Carpenter Trio, who won a Battle of the Bands competition at the Hollywood Bowl a year later and banked a contract with RCA. But after their covers of Every Little Thing and Strangers in the Night were deemed unfit for release, they were dropped by the label. After the trio disbanded and Richard Carpenter was sacked from his job playing covers at Disneyland for being, quote, too radical, <laughs> Richard and Karen formed the middle-of-the-road band Spectrum, becoming a regular fixture at the Whiskey A Go-Go and supported Steppenwolf before they disbanded in 1968. After Karen was knocked back as a vocalist for Kenny Rogers in the first edition, they acquired a new bassist and appeared on the talent show Your All-American College Show performing Dancing in the Street later that year, which led to a deal with A&M in April of 1969. Their first single, a cover of the Beatles' Ticket to Ride, only got to number 54 in America and did nothing over here, but the follow-up, a cover of the 1963 Richard Chamberlain single, They Long to Be Close to You, got to number one for four weeks over here and made it to number six in the UK in October of 1970. That kicked off a run of 12 top 40 hits in the UK across the 70s, including a pair of number two hits when Yesterday Once More was kept off number one by Leader of the Gang by Gary Glitter and Young Love by Donny Osmond in August of 1973, and Please Mr Postman was held back by January by Pilot in January of 1975. This single, the follow-up to I Need to Be in Love, which got to number 36 in July of 1976, is the lead-off single from their new LP, Passage, which came out in September. 
It's an LP that they've thrown the kitchen sink at, employing not only the Los Angeles Philharmonic, but all 50 of the Greg Smith singers. It's a cover of the 1976 album track by Claw 2, the Canadian rock band who were rumoured to be the Beatles under an assumed name, and is based on World Contact Day, a yearly event which consists of members of the International Flying Saucer Bureau attempting to send a telepathic message every March the 15th since 1953. It entered the top 40 at number 26 three weeks ago and then stealthily scaled the charts. And this week it's nudged up one place from number 11 to number 10, making it their first top 10 hit since only yesterday, over two years ago. Fucking hell. This this song, man. Mm. It's like a lorry of unboxed jigsaw puzzles has just shed its load all over this episode because there is a lot <laughs> to piece together here. To unpack and to piece together. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's weird because, I mean, at the time, the Carpenters represented almost the absolute MOR norm because they were played mm. on heavy rotation the whole time when my mum was, like, cooking or whatever on the kitchen transistor. The ultimate Radio 2 band. Absolutely. And so, you know, they've got these kind of, with their insidious clarity, um, you know, they'd be sort of playing round, round the clock you know, the whole time. Absolute fixture. Wafting around like the odour of slightly overcooked shepherd's pie. And so, you know, to <laughs> me, they just represented this absolute insidious norm from which even... Burnt cheese. E- yeah, yeah. E- ELO were almost like left field by comparison, you know, well left field by comparison. But you can actually see why people like Thurston Moore or whatever rhapsodise about the Carpenters, because there, there is others kind of Peter Brotsman or something like that in their own way. There's a genuine alienness about them, you know, with Karen's mm. oval face and that weird sort of eerie frictionlessness that they've got. Yeah, they're only the band the White Stripes could have been. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievably, this is the first time we've done the Carpenters on chart music, which is fucking mental, because they are a 70s straddling band, aren't they? I mean, you could mm. you could go round someone's arse round about the late 70s, and you could almost guarantee that the singles 1969-1973 by the Carpenters would be on their record shelf, on their unit, in between... Abbott's greatest hits and the sound of bread. Mm. But unbeknownst to us, the Carpenters are in the shit. Richard's become addicted to Quaaludes. Karen's grappling with anorexia. The hits are drying up. And, you know, being known as Richard Nixon's band isn't a good thing by 1977, is it? Absolutely. But, you know, this is almost like, you know, there's straightness in extremis. Well, this is very of its time in that it's Mm. another hopelessly optimistic close encounter style 70s idea of the likely outcome Mm. of a vastly technologically superior civilization meeting a comparatively primitive civilization hey Mm. no this time it's going to play out differently i promise you (laughs) um i've touched on this before when we've covered the mid to late 70s this is when the defining figure of scientific inquiry was Carl Sagan in a yes. polo neck with an anorak yes. over it, standing in a field going, how lovely is a tree? And the, yes. the dying days of hippie liberal optimism, right? And mm. even as the planet first began to groan and sweat under the weight of humanity, you know, still humanity was so bright and godlike, our destiny lay among the stars, you know? Um yeah. Where we could realise our cosmic potential and terraform Pluto or some shit, you know. This is is when we started 
like never mind the the fucking flying saucer bureau uh, putting their fingertips to their temples and trying to summon aliens. The actual fucking telescopes were beaming out signals into the cosmos. Yeah, saying here we are. Come and find us, you know. We're tasty, tasty, very, very tasty. <laughs> yeah, like just... We're very tasty. So certain that the cosmos is a playroom, not a jungle. Mm. I mean, I get emotional at the end of 2001, A Space Odyssey too, but I know that it's bullshit, and mm. the the yawning expanse of the universe isn't really an inspirational thing. The The... The key to understanding the universe is the knowledge that everything in it is moving further and further away from everything else in it, and the speed at which that happens is Mm. increasing, and that's the fundamental truth Mm. behind all others. But also, just because someone tells you that they're your friends, it doesn't mean they haven't got ray guns behind their backs, Mm. right? And (laughs) when you're you're only previous contact with someone is them terrifying a cow by lifting it up off the ground with a tractor (laughs) beam. I'm not sure that unquestioning trust is the wisest first response. And also, even in the sweet shop world of this record, these aliens that we're meant to be so pleased to meet sound like Davy Jones. Yes. That's the worst (laughs) bit of this record by Miles, is where it sounds like there's suddenly an unexpected cameo from fucking Davy Jones. Because we've been observing (laughs) your earth. It's it's like he's just smashed in through your window on a wrecking ball, you know, jabbing at you with his space maracas. It's... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's the one jarring moment in the Carpenter's canon. It's a bit like um, yeah. there's, there's a version of a crap that's the model, whereas it's it's got Emil Schultz comes in who doesn't normally sort of return and he goes correct like that. Goes, what was that? What was that? You know, this is the Carpenter's. <laughs> yes, it's one weird tear in the fabric is that moment. But the thing about yeah. UFOs and ufology, I mean, I think that. I knew it was part of it because I was that age, I can be forgiven, but John Lennon was going on about UFOs the whole time at this time. Mm. It was very much part of the mainstream. I would say that, like, it's in terms of ufology and that kind of fascination, there, there was a bit of a crest, really, the like of which hadn't been seen since the sort of mid-late 50s or whatever. Um, I think we understand these days that aliens, creatures from another planet, would have to traverse billions of light years or whatever to get anywhere near us, and why would they bother just yeah. looking at New Mexico? But back then, there was a <laughs> tremendous... I mean, for instance, another mainstream author was a fellow called Brinsley Poe Trench, the 8th Earl of Clancarty. And right. and the book I would have read on my holidays that year was his Secret of the Ages, UFOs from Inside the Earth. <laughs> it's theorised that the centre of the Earth was hollow, with entrances to its interior located at both the north and south pole areas. This interior, he suggested, consists of large tunnel systems connecting a large cavern world. Trent's also believed that the lost continent of Atlantis actually once existed, and these tunnels were probably constructed all over the world by the Atlanteans for various purposes. And that basically UFOs are emanating from the Earth's interior. Various ideas like that. I mean, he had another... Yeah, yeah ideas with, the, with the, the healthy and reassuring pedigree of some of the weirdest Nazis also believe yes <laughs> yes absolutely yeah but this was i mean you know the, but the, you know he was considered a pretty mainstream author and um you know all very credible ideas another idea he advanced i remember because i remember reading at the time was that the younger generation this rock and roll generation were themselves aliens you know, like <laughs> yes yes c- c- consider it he said you know because you know this would account for their sort of you know they've come here to kind of rebuild the world and it would account for their kind of strangeness and their long hair and their far away air <laughs> the, i remember reading this the top music yeah on the pop music of course and i remember um 
reading this on holiday in Bumaris and saying to my mum, hey, mum, according to this book, I might be an alien. And she said to me, nonsense, David, you were born in a hospital like everywhere else in Edgeware. It was a difficult birth, as befits a difficult child, alien. And she didn't actually say that. She's too nice, but I'm sure that's what she was thinking. Uh, and, of course, things like the pyramids, well, they weren't built by white people, so they had to be made by aliens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, of course. But, yeah, you're right. You're right. This song is totally of the moment because, you know, 1977, the year of close encounters mm-hmm. of the third kind. But also, NASA continuing its refusal to do something for the oldens and deciding to have a nose <laughs> round the outer solar system and beyond. Mm. Because, you know, they'd already sent out two pioneer space probes bearing plaques about information about Earth, but only last month they launched two Voyager space probes, each featuring a gold-plated copper record containing the greatest hits of planet Earth with Carl Sagan as your selector. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah it was curated yeah, yeah. by Carl Sagan. What a shame this wasn't on it. <laughs> Unfortunately, the record opens with an introduction by Kurt mm. Waldheim, oh. who was Secretary General of the UN after being a massive Nazi. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then there's a load of people around the world saying hello, and then there's a big wodge of world music, animal sounds, and classical ramble. But there is Blind Willie Johnson and Chuck Berry, so, you know, there is that. Yeah, dark was the night, cold was the ground has now left the solar system. Yeah. <laughs> Sagan did try to get John Lennon involved in the selection process, chaps, but he was too busy lying on a bed out of his tits in New York. <laughs> and uh, Sagan did want Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles on that record, but EMI wanted a cut because they're fucking minge bags. So, you know, if, a, if an alien does hear this record, the only British contribution is the Fairy Round conducted by Richard Holborn, which, you know, essentially makes it sound like a right bunch of foppish medieval cunts to the rest of the universe. Universe. So, cheers, Sagan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, another thing around this time, I do remember, well, first of all, I was living in constant fear that the sun was going to explode any second. Because uh, right. I'd read that somewhere. I was like, fucking hell, you know. But also, yeah, there, there was some footage. I remember my brother said, oh, this proves it now, aliens, UFOs or whatever. And, um, yeah. and it was these kind of large, huge, looming lights on a kind of dark, um, you know, on, on, on a dark cityscape. And... Um, and I was like, you know, for two weeks, I thought, well, that's, that settles it, doesn't it? You know, and then turning mm-hmm. on the sky at night and Patrick Moore going, yes, and these images have been doing the round, and I can assure you that it is, in fact, the planet Venus. Yeah. And that kind of like, you know, I think he was, he was so certain about that. I just felt a bit deflated, really. And I never really oh. reacquired my sort of ufological um, ardour. The thing about the Voyager record is I, I can just see some aliens just getting this and just thinking, fucking hell, look at these backward hipster cunts with their vinyls. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's all mini-discs yeah, like, yeah. round here, mate. Yeah, mini-discs, yes. Yeah, let's go round there and kill them mm. and eat oh. them. And why did you destroy the greatest medium of all, eight-track cartridge? <laughs> Shall we have a go at trying to call some aliens in? Because I've actually found the uh, the actual words that they use every March the 15th to, to call oh. down aliens. Yeah. yeah. Would you like yes. to hear them? Yes. Okay. Calling occupants of inter and pop crazed youngsters at home, you know, join in with us. Oh yeah. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft that have been observing our planet Earth. We of IFSB wish to make contact with you. We are your friends and would like you to make an appearance here on Earth. Your presence before us will be welcomed with the utmost friendship. 
We will do all in our power to promote mutual understanding between your people and the people of Earth. Mm. Please come in peace and help us in our earthly problems. Give us some sign that you've received our message. Be responsible for creating a miracle here on our planet to wake up the ignorant ones to reality. Let cool. us hear from you. We are your friends. Your friends. <laughs> <laughs> Did it work? Hang on. Let me have a look. Now, there's a squirrel going down the road. Well, you, you don't know what form they would take. Yeah, it's all quiet in Lower Sydney, I have to say. Uh, oh. Never mind. Next time. Yeah. Didn't do it on March the 15th, you see. Yeah, no, there you are. So what do you expect? Anyway, we get the video of this, and oh, what a video it is. It's, it's essentially a recruitment video for Heaven's Gate, isn't it, this? <laughs> Just makes me want to put on some red Nike trainers and get into a bunk bed and die. <laughs> well, when, when do you not feel like doing that, let's be honest? Yeah. I mean, we're not getting the full seven-minute version, but we're, we're getting enough of it, aren't we, to, to, to understand it all. It's all massively cosmos, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we got Karen and Richard floating about in space, asking us to have a bit of a think about aliens and wanting to be their mates, uh, which is utterly ruined by the illustrations of the aliens that pop up halfway through, <laughs> which are fucking proper H.G. Wells shit-up material. <laughs> yeah. These are not ALF or Baby Yoda, are they? <laughs> no, it looks like it's from the Osborne book of UFOs. Yeah. Mm. I mean, we have to wonder if all of this was um, impelled by a genuine fervour to make kind of, you know, interplanetary contact, or was there a, perhaps a, just a speck of bandwagon jumping? I don't know. I mean, the thing about the Carpenters that people seem to forget, myself included, the vast bulk of their singles output have, have been cover versions. They're, they're essentially M.O.R. Waddy Wadda. <laughs> Top of the world, yesterday once more, only yesterday... Goodbye to Love. They're the only original songs that have charted over here. Mm. And their new LP is nothing but other people's songs. Mm. I mean, they even do a full version of Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, for fuck's sake. Ugh. Yeah. Other people's songs are scrubbed until they're squeaky clean. Mm. But, I mean, look, David's hit on this already. The, the What is the most uh, sort of annoying and bland about the Carpenters is also what's most interesting about the Carpenters. Mm. Because it's so extreme, the whiteness of it, the, the, like the full cream mayonnaise lava flow of of it <laughs> is sort of interesting look and also we had a cassette when i was a kid right mm. might even have been an eight track in fact of the carpenter's greatest hits and that was the only music that we had in the family car when i was young right. so when Fuck. we went on holiday um and we're in the car for extended periods of time which to a small child it felt like periods of time so super extended that scientists should have given each one a name. Um, the <laughs> Carpenter's greatest hits would go on. So it's absolutely a foundational mm. and, and formative memory for me, sitting in the back of a Simca rolling around North Wales, right, looking out the window at some wet hills and slate and absorbing the sound of the Carpenter's. Before I could really understand or grasp what music was or how songs worked, you know. Mm. At that age, it's just like someone's taking control of your brain chemistry and is flicking levers and you don't quite get it. Like, it's not a picture, it's not a story, it's not something you take in visually or cerebrally, 
but also it's not like a song song like you sing at school where it's like it's this engulfing wave of texture and mm. feeling and mysterious associations and mm. connections and you just respond involuntarily to this play of light and shadow in your brain you know and this was the carpenter's greatest hits right this wasn't bitches mm, yeah. brew or tago mago this was not an annihilating <laughs> sort of overwhelming introduction to the power and mystery of music but it taught me something else as well which is that music sometimes could be that powerful and affecting but sometimes it could be like inert and smoothed off and fundamentally banal to the point where it just sounded silly you know and i didn't understand that some of this music was specifically produced to have no effect on you and to just Mm. glance off you know and not leave a mark all the records like top of the world and jambalaya Mm. and sing you know this sort of creepy ned flanders music that they did which mm. is where the, the the edges were so soft it was almost sinister yeah i was just going to use the, you know, the word sinister yeah and that there's yeah. something kind of absolutely quite appalling just lurking beneath the surface and then in terms yes. of obviously their dysfunctional lives you know and in a sense anorexia is almost a sad metaphor really for the sort of hyper perfection perfection inverted commas there that they sort of achieve in their music yeah and they left you clues as well because occasionally they'd do something like rainy days and mondays or mm. superstar mm. or um goodbye to love and i could hear those songs i could hear they were sickly smooth like mm. all the others but they also had this weird power to induce feelings which you hadn't asked for you know mm. and you would immediately recognize at some primal level even though at five or six you hadn't experienced regret or Mm. loss or anything bittersweet you know but even on these records i mean they were very they were still very careful they weren't daring records but Mm. the the sonic suggestion of them still prods your brain into producing certain chemicals associated with melancholy but whenever they do that brian wilson trick of you got spacious piano chords and a French horn in the distance with loads of reverb on it, you know. Mm. It's really an instinctive response. In these songs, you could you could feel that something wasn't right, you know. There was something... It was mm. this weird airless music coming out of an unfathomable world of pretend smiles, you know, and mm. yeah. like hidden horrors behind doors that are always locked, you know. It was like... It was all tied aesthetically and spiritually to this kind of religious american suburban falseness you know and denial Mm. of humanity like it's like they were cracking up but they were just incapable of creating any kind of emotional artifact which didn't have a white picket fence around it yeah you know and it's and there's something genuinely intriguing about that you know like Mm. and the creepier it is the more intriguing it is and at the time i was always a bit freaked out by the the creamy platitudinous warmth of her voice as well mm. you know mm. and the way every track sounds like it's recorded inside an airtight sandwich bag you know mm. there was something <laughs> mysterious about that it used to re- remind me of the other thing that used to creep me out which was the radio 2 jingle singers which is very close yes. to you know yeah you know what they sound like it'd be like yeah radio 2 and there's like a slow yeah. harmonized major seventh or something at the end and they used to creep me out because I'd hear it and think, when did this happen? Like, mm, yeah. why does this sound so eerie? What what sort of music is this? And 
I always got something similar from that, yeah, the rictus grin of the Carpenters' music. It was. Yeah. It's the Pam Singers, isn't it? Yeah. 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 From Dallas. Yeah, yeah. Have you heard their version of the emergency broadcast system? No. Fucking hell. Four-minute warning. Not quite. It was a test that the radio stations had to do once a week that just basically said, this is a test, you know, if you if this was an actual emergency, you'd have to, you know, do this and that. Don't panic. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, they did their own version in their own inimitable style for uh, for a certain radio station. Oh, wow. And uh, only played it a couple of times before the uh, FCC banned it, but quite remarkable. That's, that's worth a link to. Yeah. Video playlist. But yeah, that eeriness. You know, you'd, you'd hear it on Radio 1 and 2 all the time, but you always thought, this doesn't fit, because this is American. Mm. Even though there was so much American shit being played, it seemed a step too far for me. Mm. And we're still in that, that pre-Freddie Laker era where everything American is very other. Mm. Yeah, it's all got that weird sort of fuzzy glaze on mm. it, like the love boat. Yeah. The, I mean, for me, there was always a sort of metaphorical sense of the carpenters of things like Angel Delight and Instant Whip and, and Smash and these things. That, <laughs> you know, I'm not one of these people that sort of hankers for like nature and authenticity and soil and all this kind of stuff. But there's such an eerie lack of that in the carpenters. They are this kind of scientifically created confection of some sort that bears no relationship, you know, to nature that is this simulation of it that's unearthly that has no connection to the earth Klaatu a very weird band for someone like the Carpenters to cover isn't it yeah well it's a bit of a shame for Klaatu because apart from this the only thing anyone remembers them for is that some journalists thought it was the Beatles Yes. Under a false name. Like, despite the fact that it didn't sound anything like the fucking Beatles. I mean, the, no. the, but in the 70s, American rock media were obsessed with the Beatles and mm. the yeah. possibility of a Beatles reunion. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like they were going to come and save us all, you know. Mm. Despite there being mm. no evidence at all that the Beatles would have reassembled and made great music in 1975. Mm. I mean... Yeah, they would have got free as a bird out of the way 20 years earlier. <laughs> yeah, but it became a kind of sport to suggest that certain records were actually by the Beatles recording in secret under a pseudonym. There was a few of these, right? Despite audibly not having the Beatles singing on them, I mean, famously the NME reported on this Klaatu business with the headline, Deaf Idiot Journalist Starts Beatle Rumour. Um, <laughs> it says it all. It's like one of the great no-bullshit headlines. Mm. Like, when, you know, when um, Edith Sitwell in the 20s did uh, Facade with uh, Modernist Music by uh, William Walton. And uh, mm. one of the critics, who was not really used to this sort of uh, this avant-garde approach, wrote the headline, Drivel They Paid to Hear. <laughs> which I, was, I always wanted like on melody maker when you'd write a review and it was a, the headline they put on it was always a weak pun yeah, on the band yeah. name or something mm. I mean, you should have had something a bit more direct i'd like to have you know written about cast at the london astoria and next week's in the headline uh shit some morons queued up yeah. for <laughs> but the thing is that Klaatu, never played up to it themselves but they were fucked by Capitol Records who did yeah. and they lost a lot of credibility as a result because uh, you know the record company was running around going ooh 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 wonder who this could be you know and it's like oh fuck off mm. but it brings home how vaguely 
most people listen to music, right? <laughs> it's like eating a raspberry and think you've eaten a tomato, you know what I mean? It's what mm. who would hear that you listen to Clark? It doesn't sound like the fucking Beatles. Yeah, as far as a lot no. of people consider, as I said before, you know, the seventies, the entire seventies were a, a void where the Beatles should be. Yeah, it really was. And of course, chaps, we're only a few weeks away from Vrillian pitching up on Southern TV, aren't we? <laughs> Why didn't he just cut into that Looney Tunes cartoon by saying, I've been observing your Earth. <laughs> Anything else to say? Yeah, it just struck me. I should probably say that I really like this record. <laughs> I don't think I've mentioned it. Despite its babyish insistence that first contact would resemble the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind, 1977, mm. rather than the film Prey, 1977, <laughs> except not as sexy. I just got one little <laughs> shout-out to uh, yeah, a friend of mine, Apology, really. We just tormented each other with, like, physical insults at this time. And um, this fellow, Patrick, his, his ears were just a little bit pointy, so we just sort of oh. jeer at him every day. We've been observing your ears. <laughs> we think they look like Mr. Spock's. <laughs> drove the poor sod mad. You were his friend. I know. Well, yeah, it was banter. <laughs> so the following week calling occupants of interplanetary craft nipped up one more place to number nine its highest position the follow-up sweet sweet smile would only get to number 40 in february of 1978 and they'd have to wait over 13 years to return to the top 40 when a re-release of merry christmas darling got to number 25 in december of 1990 by which time karen carpenter had succumbed to heart failure in february of 1983 and 44 years after the release of Calling Occupants, there has been no official record of extraterrestrial life hollering back at the Carpenters because aliens are ignorant cunts. <laughs> yeah, I said it. Yeah. Come and do something about it if you don't like it, aliens. Come and have a zap if you think you're hard enough. <laughs> oh, but of course there was that Carpenters TV special a year later, wasn't there, Taylor? Oh yeah, you can't you can't talk about this record and not mention Space Encounters. Mm. A lot of thought went into that title. Yes, there was so much of this space shit around yeah. in the aftermath of Star Wars. Right, everything had to be space for about three years, like to the point where you'd see a TV advert for DFS. And it yes. would be like a three-piece suite floating in space. <laughs> and the voiceover going like, come to DFS, Earthling, and yes. encounter the lowest prices Ooh. in the galaxy. <laughs> and it, for about five years, it was just relentless. Yeah. It was just as the actual space program had ground down to the mm. point where the only off-Earth possibilities that anyone was exploring was like fucking TV satellites and mm. the the space shuttle going round and round like one inch outside Earth's atmosphere. We've been living in a post-space age since 1972. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, shit. I mean, of course, this is the era of uh, KP outer spacers. Mm. <laughs> yeah, pickled onion flavour. Lovely. You've sat through that Carpenters thing, though, haven't you, Taylor? Because that's the commitment yeah. you give to chart music time after time. Yes, yes. Well, this was it. The Carpenters, they weighed in to the space craze with uh, mm. Space Encounters, which is an, a, an hour-long yes. space-themed uh, TV special brought to you by Clairol Herbal Essences Shampoo. 
you'll mm. swear that you've got more hair. Um, <gasps> which, you know, inevitably it makes the Star Wars holiday special look like Tarkovsky's Solaris. I mean, aside <laughs> from the fact that the Carpenters circa 1978 are about as well suited to a, a wacky knockabout pantomime as Pink Floyd circa the final cut, right? Mm. It's, not, it's just not right. No. And it's like all these things. They've built all the sets and the costumes and they've hired a studio and gone to all this trouble to do that. But then they thought it was okay if the actual script was written by a chaffinch and a dead <laughs> guy. Like nobody, mm. nobody ever cares about writers, ever. No. So what happens is this sub but Rogers alien, right, Nickel Rogers, comes to Earth <laughs> and he, he beams down into the Carpenter's recording studio because mm. his race want to learn how to make music with warmth and feeling. <laughs> uh, which, when you've travelled millions of light years to get here, seems an avoidably catastrophic miscalculation. Probably by his co-pilot, who's a mini-skirted bimbo. Um, Suzanne Summers. Despite being second in command of an intergalactic spaceship, mm. she's thick as shit. Um, so... The Carpenters teach him how to make music that sounds how air freshener tastes. Um, <laughs> and then he beams them up to his ship where, first of all, Karen and the bimbo co-pilot do it on Harry Belafonte's Man Smart, Woman Smart. Yes. It's a good old battle of the sexes moment. Mm. Like just, just slightly undercut by the fact that they spent the previous half hour showing us that one of these women is so calamitously unintelligent that you wouldn't leave her alone in a room with a potato. <laughs> um, and then there's an inevitable romantic duet between Nickel Rogers and, and the grotesque straining mask of Karen Carpenter's happy entertainer face mm. um, uh, before the aliens fuck off home in time for the adverts and we end with a version of calling occupants that really makes you think mm. specifically uh, about what you're going to be doing when it's finished mm. <laughs> that's about it but if nothing else the audience seems to be enjoying whatever it was they were watching when their laughter was recorded in <laughs> 1965. It's the most choking late 70s white American entertainment, you know. Yeah. It's like a, it's a plastic cup with an inch of cold coffee and 12 cigarette ends in it, you know. It's like just don't pick it up and try and drink from it by mistake. It, you can't get more of that late 70s malaise. It's like being asphyxiated in Norgahide and Gabardine. If you think that late 70s Native American chief was upset about pollution, right, show him this. He'd try to eat his own legs. Just what has happened? What have they done to our country? Pass the fucking firewater. I have mixed feelings about this in a sense, because these days there's a kind of protective tier of creative consultants, etc., etc., whose job is to ensure that things like this never, ever happen. Um, but as well as this ridiculous, they also repress the sublime as well. So I'm not quite sure we were perhaps better off back then. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'd rather have this than, you know, the Carpenter's is sponsored by a hair gel company. Mm. Yes, please. <laughs> what if the aliens sent us a record, though? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they already have. Yeah, mouldy old dough.
carpenters and calling occupants of interplanetary craft. We liked that one, didn't we? Yes. You bet we did. Hey, a bigger bunch of lunas you're never likely to meet. The Baronites, a new entry at 23. And live it up. Everybody has their little troubles. Yeah. As all of you will know by now. We cut back to Pow, suddenly flanked by two women. With the camera pulled back to reveal he's tucked his t-shirt into his jeans because it's the 70s and everybody is still thin. I think Stan Bowles was the only person in Britain in the 70s who went about with his shirt untucked. <laughs> Can't think of anyone else. Mm. With his free hand delicately holding the mic lead, but unfortunately over his crotch, as he asks a girl in a flat cap if she liked that. She did. <laughs> he then says, Hey! A bigger bunch of loonies you're oh, never likely to what meet. Yes. What a yeah. cunt. Well, having been a warden at Broadmoor Secure Unit for 11 <laughs> years, I can confirm this. Oh, those loonies, the Baronites. <laughs> he throws us into the direction of live in trouble by the Baronites. Or live it up, as he thinks it's called. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, fuck me. Yeah, yeah. And then he picks it up at the end and goes, oh, that was live in trouble because someone's obviously told him he got the title wrong. Yeah. He's thinking of the other comedy genius of the era, Russ Abbott, isn't it? <laughs> We're actually dealing with live in trouble by the Baron Knights. We dealt with the Baron Knights in chart music number 34, and this single, the follow-up to the Frank Spencer song, which failed to chart in 1974, marked their return to the charts for the first time since an Olympic record got to number 35 in November of 1968. After nine years of non-chart action while they tried to be a proper band with their own songs, they went back to taking a sideways look at the hits of the day and debuted this medley at a club in Tenbear on the night that Elvis died, which led to a deal with Epic. It entered the charts last week at number 42, and this week it soared 19 places to number 23. And here they are, in the studio, for their first Top of the Pops performance since they played Here Come the Bees in October of 1967, 10 years and one month ago. Fucking hell, and 10 years and one month was a fucking eon Mm. in pop terms of the 70s, don't you think? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But that, it's just that horrible. He doesn't even say, you know, Peter Powell. It doesn't. He doesn't even say, "You a bigger bunch of loonies you're never likely to meet." <laughs> I mean, you know, you actually yearn for the sort of wildian, elevated dryness and aphoristic wit of Noel Edmonds at this point. Mm. You know, you genuinely do. You actually, I find myself hankering for Noel. Good lord! I know. I mean, it's that that that, that bad. So where do we start with this? Let's get the look out of the way because, as always, the Baron Knights have come dressed as a supporting. Cat- of oh no it's Selwyn Froggart at a dinner dance haven't they <laughs> red velvet hunting jackets over white walls Vionetta shirts with massive condor collars fuck me mm. they are huge mm. if there was such a thing as air conditioning in the 1970s if someone had turned that on in the studio they're going to be smashed against the back wall aren't they <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah no it's it's um I mean I'm just can't really believe it. it's a bit like watching Seinfeld recently and it's just mm-hmm. like because I lived through all of this at the time and didn't think anything that was untoward about the way that they dress and then it's like 20 30 years only think 
fucking hell. I mean, how yeah. did we kind of, <laughs> how did we manage to keep our focus on anything at all other than these appalling mullets and, and yeah. trainers and stuff like that? Or in this case, yeah, these, you know, ghastly collars and what have you. It's- yeah, they look like John Pertwee just regenerated, but something <laughs> went horribly <laughs> wrong. Yes, yes. <laughs> so the song, or, or songs, if you will, they're putting down a marker for future years. This is the Baron Knights we're going to see on top of the pops every year, round about this time for the next three years or so, mm. doing funny versions of the pop favourites. Yeah. They start off with a pop at the old sailor with an interpretation of You Make Me Feel Like Dancing, which got to number two in November of 1976. And then they move on to Float On by the Floaters, which of uh, course got to number yeah. one in August of this year. Yeah. First things first, there's a missing tune in there, isn't there? Yeah. Do you know what it is, David? No, I do. Long ago. Outside a chip shop in Walthamstow stood a young rocker named Greasy Joe. Oh. Put on his helmet and said, let's go. Oh. He was keen. Hey, he drove down the high street like Barry Sheen, <laughs> doing his best to look very mean. Mm. Oh, my goodness. Till he saw Anne yes. on a new machine. Angelo by the Brotherhood of Man, oh, which also wow. got to number one in August. Yeah. Before Elvis died while he was having a shit and ruined everything. Yeah. And that's the fucking best tune on the whole thing. There is a version mm. on YouTube where they do Angelo, mm. and it's like it's sort of edited into this clip, but it fades in and out, and they're wearing different coloured smoking jackets in it. So, oh, really? Yeah, so I think it's an edit of two performances, I'm assuming... Uh, they did this on top of the pops twice because why yeah. wouldn't you ask these heroes back again? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, that's that's weird because I do remember taping this at the time, you know, with my little kind of mono cassette recorder, mm. and um, you know, somewhat uncritically, you know, I you know I included this in selection, but I don't remember that that Angelo bit. I must admit. So they passed the bloody tower. At a hundred miles an hour. Yeah, I used to love it, yeah. That went down a treat on the playground, that song did. Yeah. Probably, well, the least appalling of the bunch, you know, mm. it's about as good as it gets according to their own lights. My tailor took my pants in, but he left in all the pins. Yes, yeah. yeah. You know, the, the, the general conceit is that the old sailor is such a high-pitched voice because he's got yeah. tailor's pins jabbing into his testicles. Yeah. Then the, there's float on. Oh, fucking hell. I mean, I was just sitting there and praying that they just didn't do it in blackface because it was blackface <laughs> central, wasn't it? They didn't just sort of come on. But then I suppose that's the thing with the medley. I think if it hadn't been a medley, then I think that cork would have been kind of smeared mm. right across, you know. But uh, never mind, you know, there's a little bit of mycophobic comedy instead. <laughs> My name's Michael. Yeah, of course, we're the homophobia cancer, and I can't stand girls. If anyone touches mm. that drummer, I'll scratch their eyes out. Yeah. Um, Standard uh, 70s fair isn't it irish people are stupid yeah. and homosexuals are amusing it's it's, it's just really sad you know like people you can't say anything these days yeah well when you could yes. this is yeah. the shit that people said yes exactly yeah when you stop being able to say that stuff people had to kind of yeah, think yeah. a bit like come up with something different that was maybe yeah. a bit funny david mm. your alicia would she be au fait with the idea of the irish joke no no and this is the it's thing completely gone hasn't it yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the whole thing with a lot of, you know, sort of contemporary comedy and like that is that, you know, it's not that young people, that, ooh, they'd like to laugh, but they you know that they shouldn't. You know, it's nothing like that at all. They're just absolutely left blank by it. It's just like, what is this? You know, this yeah. is this is appalling. And, you know, and, and, you know, there is a generational gap. I think there are people that, 
you know, with something obvious like the whole Faulty Towers thing, so with Manuel or whatever. I mean, I'm a generation that actually just still think it's, you know, funny, but you wouldn't do that nowadays. Whereas I think mm. nowadays I think, what are you doing? This is horrible. Yeah. You know, this yeah. bears no relation to reality. Yeah. Yeah, nowadays yeah. that section of this record would go, uh, hello, 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 I'm Michael. I'm passionate mm. romantic and oppressed by you. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That'd work. <laughs> is it the th- one thing you can say for the Baron Knights is that they can at least come up with parody songs where the supposedly humorous words do fit the meter of the original mm. and actually scan, yeah. which is yeah. apparently harder than you'd think, considering that mm. most song parodies you hear have the flow of an early Manic Street Preachers record. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. you've got to give them credit for that. And yeah. the other thing you can say for them is they do make the Grumbleweeds look like a bunch of awful cunts, but yes. then so <laughs> do the Grumbleweeds. The, the main <laughs> problem is that all the time they've spent on that stuff is not matched by the time they spent on the actual jokes because it's like float on is probably the most easily parodiable song in history and the, mm. that's the best they can come up with right there's a yeah. gag that isn't a gag an anti-irish gag that also isn't really a gag and then mm. a, a homophobic gag at a playground level with again no actual mm. gag in it but it's this idea that people with no real sense of humour have from spitting image to whimsical indie comedians that's something which would not raise a titter if you said it or wrote mm. it down suddenly becomes hilarious if you put it in a song whereas in fact the truth is pretty much the opposite of that you know like there's half decent jokes that just die of embarrassment when you set them to music mm. you know mm. you can only make a funny song work if the humour is very, very dry and, you know, the Baron Knight's humour, whatever else you want to say about it, it's at least damp. <laughs> and it's such a grim face audience, as grim face I've ever seen on top of the pot, you know, <laughs> barely raise a titter. They all look like they're waiting for a coach to take them to Doncaster or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's a brilliant bit in the... During their amusing reworking of You Make Me Feel Like Dancing, just as Pete Langford, who is the... The small curly one. He's like, mm. the, like one who looks like the drunken baker. Yeah, or the runt of the litter that also produced Keith Harris and Ben Dover. Um, <laughs> just as he sings, he took my pants in, pants in just the other day. There's a spectacular display of silent disapproval from this rather <laughs> sour faced girl in the crowd who rolls her eyes like a cartoon dog and looks around at her mate with a stinking expression of bored <laughs> contempt although she's still shifting from foot to foot to the throbbing beat of the barren nights while she does it mm. i think they used to turn the hoses on the audience if they stopped <laughs> uh, i mean that's yes 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 that's a bizarre thing they having to sway along to it but, but it's um, a shame because how many songs or song fragments which begin my trousers get people talking aren't great mm. this yeah. is the only one <laughs> mm, mm. it's like you were saying earlier on you know you know the, the jokes shit they're just sort of like placeholder jokes isn't they okay just have that and then so we think of something good and they never do yeah it's it's um yeah. i mean you can't blame the, the, the audience or something like that, but but just generally with, with with the audience i suppose it's not just this program but this entire era that i suppose they can't have them guffawing away i mean there were probably people who could find the country that would actually laugh to this stuff and give out full proper k 
cannibal Benny laughs, but um, mm. they can't be done. Everything has to be kind of lukewarm, the response. It's almost like some sort of BBC protocol that doesn't yeah. allow for people to get really, really excited. I mean, fucking hell, it was the yeah. mid-70s. People get enormously excited, but everyone... It's almost like perhaps the audience is specifically selected, a bit like a jury. Says, Have you ever heard of David Bowie? No? Okay, good, you're in. So now they're, you know, they're actually selected on the basis of not having much interest in pop music, just so they don't get too excited mm. and, you know, bubble over the top in terms of what's considered acceptable on top of the pops. And that's what Peter Powell is. It's one-man enthusiasm machine. And he's having to sort of generate it all alone, which, I mean, makes him look even more of a kind of sort of pitiable specimen. <laughs> yeah. It's a shame with the Baronites. They were quite well regarded as a pop comedy group in the 60s mm. when yes. they first came roaring out of Leighton Buzzard yeah. doing parodies of the hits of the day. And those records aren't funny either. But mm. I think in those days, people would just respond to the competence of the parody more than anything mm. else, yes. right? And their mm. laughter was just a show of appreciation for that. Like It's like delighted chuckles at the novelty of it rather than actual belly laughs yeah. at the idea of what would happen if Mick Jagger had to work in an office or the Dave Clark <laughs> Five join the army which is what those songs mm. are about which, and, and that's the other thing those records weren't really piss takes because they were obviously fans of all these groups mm. but they were the only cabaret act at the time who were young enough to be into the Beatles and the Stones and bother to well, the only band to ever support the Beatles and the Stones, the Barrow. Is that Knights. true? I could believe it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But people yeah. would hear that and appreciate it and just laugh like a reflex. It's weird. Oh, how imagine, can you imagine if the Baron Knights did Altamont? <laughs> <laughs> All those old angels would go, oh, let's put our knives away and have a good chuckle. So that they'd be too busy rolling in the aisles to exactly. uh, administer exactly. any kind of, you know, <laughs> impromptu execution. Yeah. Wow. God, there's a whole parallel turn of history there, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that would cheer the whole day up a lot, you know. We'd still be in the 60s now if that had happened. Yeah, yes. We're just, yeah, the dark heart of the 60s would have been kept at bay, yes. Yeah. Awesome. Good old-fashioned cabaret chuckles. Uh, yeah. And plays on words. <laughs> but by the time you get to their late 70s chart renaissance, the, the that novel is gone, you know, mm-hmm. and they are just a bunch of competent old hacks and this is the first run out for their new formula but they use the same formula on all these singles you have like yeah. a triptych of hit song parodies linked mm-hmm. by a bit of uh, self-penned boogie which sets yes. up each section in the in the style of a cabaret comic saying wouldn't it be funny mm. <laughs> yes. if tommy cooper met larry grayson mm. um <laughs> and then, then they just repeated yeah, it which probably happened loads of times <laughs> yeah in the um, bbc bar yeah yeah so th- so they they did uh taste of aggro never mind the presence uh, the not unracist food for thought mm. um if mm. you know that one um She's only really worth hearing it or worth still watching the video just to imagine what kind of reception that would get on Twitter (laughs) these days. Um, Now, we've asked the question before about the Baron Knights. If if they're doing three cover versions on a single, how are they getting paid? Mm. The usual answer is, obviously, they slip out one of their own songs on the B-side. But in this case, they've given us more of the same on the uh-huh. other side. So there's a cover of D-I-V-O-R-C-E, oh. uh, which is about a dog shitting up a tree instead of pissing against it. 
Mm. Oh, the, the, the bluer stuff, yeah. Yeah. A, a pretty straight cover of Loving You, where um, the drunken baker goes on a killing spree amongst the wildlife. <laughs> and a cover of Lucille involving what can only be described as bummable. <laughs> yeah, his, his girlfriend, they go to a fancy dress party and she's come dressed up as a cow and then she drops something and, oh, mm. hilarity ensues. You see, you say that and you think, there's no way that cannot be hilarious. <laughs> so, it's only Pete Langford, the drunken baker, who's getting any money out of this single because he's the one who writes the linking devices. Mm. But the Baronites don't give a fuck because their bread and butter is the cabaret circuit. And by yeah. this point, they could well be the busiest cabaret act in the UK. I read an interview round about this time in the stage where it had got to the point where they're begging their management to give them a few days off before Christmas so they can play golf. <laughs> <laughs> They've just completed a triumphant three-night stand at the Talk of the West in St Agnes <laughs> they've got a full week at the night out in Birmingham coming hey. up and this okay. performance and the one a fortnight from now is essentially going to ensure that they'll be booked up right into 1979 and beyond leaving the rocking berries the black abbots and the grumble weeds choking on their dust <laughs> oh good gracious yeah. yeah the main problem with the Baron Knights is they're easier to take the piss out of than the the things they're taking the piss out of. Yeah. It's not that you have to be super cool to be a piss taker, but it has to come from some sort of anger or irreverence or contempt or, or joy or something vital, you know. Not just the automatic chuckle response of a bunch of rancid professionals, you know, who don't <laughs> feel anything ever. You know, we certainly don't get that kind of dead reaction on the single. There's uh, lots of laughter, and that someone goes "ah" when they do float on, uh, and, and they sound suspiciously like the members of the Baron Knights reacting to their own song, <laughs> creating ah, that chicken yeah. in a basket atmosphere. Yeah, well, they, all, all of those, they, they, it sounds like the seeds roar and alive, you know, all of these records. Mm. They're not, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, that effect <laughs> is quite familiar. And of course, the other thing about the Baron Knights, you, you, you just couldn't have a Baron Knights today, because back then, everybody knew these songs. Yes, absolutely. You know, so when the Baron Knights pitched up and said, oh, you know, let's have a bit of a laugh with this song, everyone in that audience, which would be dad's age, would immediately know. I mean, it's it's a bit like you don't have impressionists anymore because nobody knows who the fuck anybody is anymore. Mm. It's just like, you know, you can't say anything. Do you Gareth Williamson? You know, it's yeah. like, it's not going to work, is it? You know. Who's that standing over there by the nipples table? Oh, it's PewDiePie. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah. it would get worse for the Baron Knight. Mm. After the hits dried, they did two Christmas TV specials. But here's the thing. They were on Channel 4. I know. Oh, my God. Like, in 1982 and 1983. Lenin bombing a Rastafarian era Channel 4. Yeah, no there they were. Mm. Like, sandwiched in between Brent Community Action Theatre's salute <laughs> to Enver Hodger and yeah. uh, <laughs> advice on how to be a lesbian after the nuclear war. It, uh, <laughs> suddenly, you've got these glistening hams with their <laughs> shortling mock rock um, doing mm. songs about how 
factory workers are lazy and overpaid and yeah. mm. a version of bohemian rhapsody about how his mum's really fat you know um <laughs> wasn't the usual channel for fair yeah. oh and they threw in their version of lucky number by lena lovitz which is about being chased by a sheep oh fucking hell and yeah one of these specials did even include that hilarious video for food for thought which nowadays some uptight stick in the mud lefties would try to say was racist no doubt Mm. the sheer british shitness of these programs is really something to behold you know (laughs) would they have that little shit triangle in the corner during the (laughs) a brown triangle (laughs) it's like a shot on video tv cabaret Mm. shows with they got little sketches filmed in a fucking field presumably just outside blast off buzzard so they could Mm. sleep in their own piss stained beds that night (laughs) and there's a bit that they're on stage and and lovable anvil faced duke de monde does a big mor ballad and he gives it the big intro right like hey well we've had a bit of fun tonight but this is where we take things uh a little more seriously. So, obviously, being a veteran viewer of fine British club comedy of the golden age, mm. I was expecting something wacky to happen, to yeah. undercut it, mm. right? But no, it really is just, and this is me. But in this case, it's, oh, and up. this is me, a cunt. Mm. Um, <laughs> and that's your yeah. Christmas. You know, have a nice 1983. You know, fucking hell. Oh, I say, God. unplug the telly. Put on the ZX Spectrum and have a game of Emlyn Hughes cunt soccer. Mm. <laughs> no, 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 wait, that'd be 1982. 1983, God. it would be Emlyn Hughes cunt soccer 2. That was yeah. the sequel. It mm. got his, just, he had new graphics. Or the shaky game, of course. Yeah. Just because the 70s ended in the five-year diary doesn't have to mean they have to end for real. No. A perma 70s. Mm. So, the following week, Live in Trouble jumped nine places to number 14, and a week later it got to number seven, its highest position. The follow-up, Back in Trouble Again, which covered Bohemian Rhapsody, Telephone Man and Space Auditor, failed to chart in January of 1978, but they repeated the trick to greater success with A Taste of Agro, which got to number three in December of 1978, and Never Mind the Presents, which got to number 17 in December of 1979. Yeah, saddest of all, if you type their name, into Google or YouTube these days, you get as far as Baron, and they're only the second suggestion that pops no. up. Yeah, after Baron Trump, uh, oh. who I believe was <laughs> named after them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you ask me, they've only got themselves to blame. <laughs> Live in trouble. Terrific. What a nice bunch of lads, the Baron Knights. Can you spin like that? Oh, not bad, not bad. Hey, we are the champions, Queen. I paid my dues time after time. I've done my sentence but committed no crime. We cut back to Powell with two more women, both with proto-Trisha Yates hairdos. He then asks the girl on his left, in a baggy pink roll neck that looks a bit foreskinular, if she can spin like one of the Baron Knights did, and they both do so. He then says, hey, 
because he's Peter Powell, and introduces We Are The Champions by Queen. We've covered Queen many a time and oft on chart music, and this, their ninth single, is the follow-up to Good Old Fashioned Lover Boy, which got to number 17 in July of this year. It's also the lead-off single from their new LP, News of the World, which came out last week. It entered the charts at number 30 a fortnight ago, then soared 17 places to number 13, and this week it's up 7 places to number 6. As the band are getting ready to kick off their 1977 world tour in America, here's the video, which was shot at the New London Theatre in front of specially invited Queen fan club members who were also treated to a dress rehearsal of the tour. Mm. So, chaps, here we are, Top of the Pops, another Queen video, because it would be another five years before they deigned to appear on the Top of the Pops stage. And the excuse has always been that since Bohemian Rhapsody, they've refused to mime on the show as it would compromise their integrity but (laughs) I believe there's another reason I direct you and the pop craze youngsters to the book entitled Top of the Pops Mishaps Miming and Music Ah. by Ian Gittins and the following quote from well I'll leave you to decide who (laughs) it is I introduced Queen doing Seven Seas of Rye, and they were a very important band, but I was in one of my moods. As soon as they started miming, I put on a janitor's coat, got a brush, jumped on stage, and started sweeping up behind them. Brian May was doing a big guitar solo, so I picked up the brush like a guitar and walked towards him, and we soloed together. That had never been done before with a group like Queen. Mm. Mm. Would you care to guess who that was? I don't know. He got a beard. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You're getting warmer. Somebody who, needless to say, always had the last laugh, definitely. It's Travis. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit ungrateful of Queen not to appreciate his comic contribution. (laughs) I mean, putting aside the reason that that had never been done to Queen because it was their first fucking single. (sighs) And in the two separate performances that are available on YouTube, I can't see the cunt anywhere. So uh, I don't know if he was lying or not, but you can imagine that it happened. Or maybe it was a dress rehearsal or something like that, and he leaves out that uh, key detail. But is it any wonder they don't want to get involved with Top of the Pops if that palaver's going on? No, I mean, I can understand. I mean, people aren't really talking about video at this stage, but I think they deserve artists perhaps just protect their own concept and not have it kind of compromised by the kind of naffness of appearing on stage on top of the pops where there's all kinds of factors out of your control. Yeah. I mean, Kate Bush, I mean, she did appear on top of the pops, I think, in a sort of later yeah. stage of her career, you know, where you know, with just a couple of dancers and it looked hideously kind of budgetary compared with set pieces mm. that she'd um, put together before. Right from the beginning, really. Yeah, I understand that. I understand that on their part. I mean, with Queen, yeah. generally, I always had kind of mixed feelings about them, in a sense. I mean, on the one hand, mm. you know, I mean, like my friend Andrew Muller once described them as gale force rubbish. And I, I get an element <laughs> of that, really. And I think, I mean, for one thing, the, the thing I hate to the point it physically hurts is Brian May's guitar. That horrible tuning mm. sounds like you're torturing Badger's genitals. Like, <laughs> bing, 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 or plucking pubes. Bing, bing. 
horrible stuff. <laughs> Mercury, I find, you know, absolutely preposterous, but then that's the sort of sense of an indisputable, unabashed star. I mean, that's kind of key to the whole thing, really, that wonderful rampant mm. shamelessness. I mean, I do love that story um, in Danny Baker's Going to See on a Sieve, I think it is, you know, just when he worked in a record shop. I mean, this was very early on, just before Queen broke, and Freddie Mercury comes in, you know, with a couple of the other geese from Tween in tow, and he gives them, you know, their, their debut album to put on, and, the, you know, there was no geezer who owns the shop. He just plays a couple of minutes of it, just rubbish gives it back to them. <laughs> you know, and Freddie Mercury is obviously <laughs> absolutely indignant at this kind of snap judgment. Mm. He goes out in front of the shop and he just shouts at people in the precincts or on the street, whatever. Attention all shoppers. Do not shop in this retail outlet. The owner knows not at all what he is talking about. Not one whit. You know, something like <laughs> those lines. Attentional <laughs> shoppers. I mean, I absolutely love that. <laughs> and this is that early era, Mark One era of Queen. I mean, look at this absolutely preposterous outfit he's wearing, this kind of black and white, like, mm. down to the navel thing. And those, you put me fame yes. and fortune, and if it, fame and fortune, if it goes with it. You know, that kind of Rick as a young yeah. one sort of preposterous. Like a two-toned mime artist. Yeah, 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 definitely. It, oh, I could just imagine him doing a mime routine to Ghost Town. That'd be brilliant. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's it's that 70s era of Queen, pre-Freddie Mercury, presumably getting exposed to the sort of late 70s New York, you know, gay scene or whatever, because, you know, this is kind of, you know, preposterously effete, you know, anti-man Freddie Mercury. And then in the, yeah. the 80s, he comes back as this macho moustache, you know, it's, it's fistfucker Freddie back in, in, the, in the early 80s. It's an absolute <laughs> transformation. There are two Freddie Mercuries out there. Fisty Mercury. And the only other thing I think is, is I just wonder how cynical artists are or premeditative when they call the song something like we are the champions knowing the kind mm. of future royalties or whatever they'll engender through being used in sports shows or whatever in triumphalist events of that mm. kind of nature i mean you know can imagine that we are the runners up yeah. it's like with spandau ballet you know and i'm sure that the first draft it was just like bronze Ooh, always <laughs> believe and then said, you know what we can go better than this okay yeah silver yeah. no no even better oh yeah. yeah yeah daily thompson's not going to pole vault in slow motion to no. that Think uh, again. Have it gone bronze? <laughs> not bad in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> yeah, that's I it. mean, my first reaction to this song, which still lingers today, is a sense of outrage that when I heard it for the first time, and it wasn't a cover of the theme tune to the TV show of the same name, and mm. you know, the video didn't consist of the band investing shorts doing a Fonz double thumbs up, and then <laughs> and then running about on an obstacle course before Ron Pickering turns up and shouts, "Away you go!" <laughs> and the band all jump into a swimming pool. <laughs> really upsetting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Taylor. Well, uh, Queen. My question to you is: But what if you weren't the champions? Uh, mm, think on. Good point. Well made. Yeah. So I sit here and this song plays, but I can't hear it. It's like the mm. judder of the fridge or the, you know, yeah. or the constant pings on my phone from The Athletic. <laughs> it's there, but it's only a rustle in the corner of the consciousness, you know. Not yeah. because it's understated, you understand, or no. insufficiently demonstrative, but because it's been repeated to the point where it can be ignored. Well, perhaps where it can only be ignored, right? A lot of the time, the key to fully appreciating older music is to hear it as though for the first time but obviously in this case that's impossible it's like thinking mm. is the funeral march a good song <laughs> don't know i mean yes. you hear it so often <laughs> and usually not on a happy day it's impossible to tell your your critical response uh, from your instinctive flinch you know mm. but but let's have a go 
So this record uses some quite appealing musical tricks Mm. but in the service of a song with a fairly nauseating tone and although you're clearly not meant to take it 100 percent seriously you are expected to respond with genuine awe which is an expectation Mm. i never appreciate that much you Mm. know and i mean if you set yourself up the way queen do in this period with this much flash and pomp i want to see you howling into the face of god You know, not this shit. Because in a way, it's remarkable how unexpectedly relatively boring Queen really are once you've heard Mm. a couple of tunes. It's just the vocal histrionics and that very small room guitar sound. Thousands spent on increasingly sophisticated studios to make it sound like he's played in a wardrobe. Um, (laughs) And that's it. And beyond that, they're... They're just about the scale and spectacle and a version of camp that isn't too unmanageable to sell. Mm. And you get a little bit of what Led Zeppelin give you and a little bit of what Sparks give you, but all in the form of astronaut food. You know, you don't (laughs) have to chew it or heat it up with your brain. It's easy to get down, but it's not necessarily satisfying. And, And it really pains me to sound so much like a, kind of script following music critic there but that's the Mm. worst thing about queen they only deal in the obvious and they bring out the obvious in you you know Mm. and it's never a good time when a group are this hard to think about and then thinking about them produces so little you can really spend a long time pondering on queen and still not really have that much to say and it's not because they confound critical thought or you know they change the rules as they go along man or anything that you know any Mm. good reason why a group can be hard to think or write about it's because they take up so much space and then when you pierce the outer shell it's just the same all the way through there's nothing Mm. happening in queen music after a certain point there's musical movement and action but it doesn't really do anything except parade up and down. Mm, you know, yeah. It's not that it's terrible. I mean, I like a few Queen tracks. I like the B-side of this record, in fact. We Will Rock yeah, You. That's probably yes. my favourite. Yeah, it's also been heard in too many other contexts. But when you actually listen to it, it's very compact and direct and intense and weird. And it's sort of a bit close up and uncomfortable like freddy's right up in your face you know and it just sounds like pure undiluted wrongness you know Mm. whereas this is like one part wrongness to 700 million billion parts the atlantic ocean Mm. the (laughs) irony is that for a band that were all about scale they're actually better the smaller and nastier and weirder and more stripped down and and Mm. and spiteful and perverted they sound you know and the further the music shifts and bloats to this non-human scale you know like giant doric columnated pomp for the sake Mm. of it the easier it is to ignore even when the lead singer is dressed as a bottle of sheridan (laughs) it's just it's just so easy to just just let it wash over you you know yeah and we will rock you put another minute on that you've got a fucking massive hit single that but big fuck up by queen there yeah but i like it and that's the late 70s version of rock on isn't yeah, it? yeah but yeah. i like that i like the fact that it's so short and it just finishes and you're like what mm. what was that it 
and so you have to play it again. True. It's strange with Queen, and yet somehow, and I can't really quite put my finger on it, I mean, it's it's really all about Freddie Mercury, you know, whatever essence or quality there is in mm. Queen. It's about him, this unabashedness. Yeah. He was the only person that grasped Live Aid, and he just had, you know, there's a certain kind of quality that I don't, it might be illusory, it might not actually be anything admirable, it's not even something I necessarily particularly appreciate, but I, I'm just swayed by the idea that there there is really, really something about Freddie Mercury. One question that hardly gets asked about Queen, because probably because it's such a fucking stupid question, but I was watching this and I thought, how much of the Mercury tongue is in the Mercury cheek here? Mm. Queen's lyrics are never seen as the important thing about them. But here, he's laying it on with a fucking trowel, isn't mm. he? Oh, you know, you've given me fame and fortune and everything that goes with it. I thank you all, but I did it. Mm. I've suffered for my art. Yeah, well, I would say it's 50-50. I would say having his cake and eating it, yeah. Yeah, well, it's, but it's mm. but it's but that's the camp aesthetic, isn't it? That you mm. find something utterly ridiculous and you undermine it, but at the same time, it is actually great. You yeah, do yeah. also mm. think it's great. Yeah. I think it's the same here. He's serious and he's also taking the piss. He didn't mm. really do interviews as such, did he? I mean, he kept a bit like Prince. He kept his, you know, sort of cards yeah. close to his chest. So I think perhaps in, in order to sort of maintain, you know, that kind of having your cake and eating it, because if he spoke too much, if he became too discursive, then he might give the game away. People kept asking him when he was going to get married. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> but the problem with Queen is, is that the other glamorous person is stuck behind some drums. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the thing about Queen, that uh, from about 1975 onwards, they were always there. Mm. I can't remember anyone in my school at the time being massively into Queen. And for that reason, I've always had it in my head that they were a bit of a middle-class band. You know, Queen are the band that the posh grebs on the nice estate found a, an entry point with. And I've always wondered why I thought that, and it hit me while I was watching this. It's Freddie Mercury's half a mic stand, isn't it? Mm. Which he used right from the beginning of Queen's career. And I realised that at the time, while I was using the warming pan that was on the wall as a base, (laughs) there'd be other lads of a higher class using their dad's golf clubs as a Freddie Mercury mic substitute. (laughs) Probably the driver. I haven't played golf for fucking decades, but, you know, if I picked a driver out of my golf bag, there's one fist going up in the air. (laughs) You know what I mean? See, what interests me here is that decades ago you played golf. I know, yes, I was thinking that, yeah. You don't mean crazy golf. (laughs) I'm just thinking you're plus fours there all of a sudden and you're little kind of... No, 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 no. Back in the 90s, me and my mates were well into PGA Tour golf on the Mega Drive and inspired us to have a go and and it was fucking mint have a bit of a walk have loads of spliffs crack (laughs) summer to fuck up with a stick Mm. pretend to be Freddie Mercury fucking mint way to spend an afternoon yeah 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 there's not quite the Arnold Palmer spirit there but yeah there you go no no not really no yeah so where were Uh, we Queen of course yeah 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 News of the World was framed then and now as Queen going back to basics even though you wouldn't fucking know it from this single Mm. and as everyone knows they recorded it at Wessex Studios directly next door to the Sex Pistols who were putting together never mind the bollocks and as you can imagine chaps much locks ensued mm. johnny rotten was dared to crawl on all fours into queen's studio right up to freddie mercury who was playing piano and say hello Freddie," and uh, <laughs> you know quite possibly thank him for pulling out of that interview on the today show with bill Hunt <laughs> yeah, in the yeah. previous november mm. yeah apparently johnny rotten and brian may got on really well mm. 
Right. And of course, we all know about Mercury calling Sid Vicious Simon Ferocious. <laughs> but very little has been said about Sid's side of the story. So allow me to quote an interview with John Tobin on Radio 1's Rock On Show, mm. which came out round about this time when he noticed the interviewer was drinking out of a Queen mug. Is that a Queen mug? Ugh. I saw Freddie Mercury in the flesh. Pictures just can't convey how revolting that bloke is. <laughs> He's absolutely hideous. He's like an old Turk. Oh. He's got a great blue shadow that comes up to under his eyes and this disgusting voice. He warbles away like, Oh, the ballet is rather good this season. He's absolutely awful. I've never met anyone like him. Hmm. So there we go. He's like an old Turk. Mm. <laughs> oh. Yes. Yes, I, I think that some of Sydney's attitudes were a touch unreconstructed, uh, definitely. Mm. Um, Very much so. Yes. Very much so. Pakistani brethren, I think, came in for the rough side of his tongue. Ah, fuck Sid Vicious the cunt. Anything else to say? Yeah. I hate the way that people talk about Queen, especially Americans, like they've mm. somehow ghosted into this canon of unimpeachably brilliant classic rock that everybody loves right mm. like there's yeah. the beatles Jimi hendrix the stones and fucking queen you know it's been forgotten mm. it's not even forgotten it's been overwritten that while they existed queen were a horrible joke yeah you know anyone who was alive just in the 80s just remembers them hanging around montreux with their vests and and moustaches you know eating and drinking the the money they'd made in south africa i mean certainly that was all they were associated with by that point they were for people who like mm. dire straits and go west you know they were like yeah. pure stadium stodge and i'm all for reevaluation, but there's nothing much to reevaluate. really they were a competent rock band who put on a show but i'm not going to be gaslit into thinking they were genius when it's obviously mm. like 10 or 15 good tracks and the rest is wallpaper paste you know yeah i've never listened to a queen album and never will no yeah the only Why one you, you can get through is sheer heart attack which is not right. that bad but generally i think a lot of people just can't separate scale from skill um mm. and it's you know i mean it's no offense to queen even because 10 or 15 tracks is more than most people manage right definitely um, yeah. there's a lot of other groups who managed it and people don't talk about them as though they invented oral sex you know mm. but i guess it, it, the terrible truth for people like us uh, is that rock history is now in the hands of american kids on youtube who react mm. to it uh, with yes. no grasp of context, you know, mm. it's like no, Phil uh, Collins. Oh. Yeah, wow, who who is Annie Lennox? What a mm. voice! <laughs> and mm. and Queen are sufficiently obvious to pass that test, you know. Mm. And worse, I don't think the thing that endures in that context is, you know, the humour and the spectacular absurdity of Freddie's performance or any of the good stuff. It's just the crushing weight of everything, you know, mm. which which modern people respond to because at least it's something that their deadened hearts can feel you know yeah. not, not no just the weight not just and not just the weight but the the windiness of it all as well yeah 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 it's it, it i think that's what makes sense to 21st century people no hmm. time for losers oh. like share mm. subscribe <laughs> 
So the following week, We Are The Champions stayed at number six. But the week after that, it began the first of three weeks at number two, held off the summit of Mount Pop by this week's number one, A Mull of Kintyre by Wings. The follow-up, Spread Your Wings, would only get to number 34 in March of 1978. But in 2011, a team of researchers at Goldsmiths University who were studying the sound waves of hit records deemed We Are The Champions the catchiest song ever, putting it above the likes of YMCA by The Village People and The Final Countdown by Europe, even though Goldsmiths doesn't actually have a science department, so I wipe an Alsatian's arsehole with what they have to say. Number six, Queen and We Are The Champions, best thing since Bohemian Rhapsody. And now, a little bit of beauty on top of the box. Dorothy Moore and I Believe You. This is Megs and Co. Dancing to that song. I believe you When you say that you will reach into the sky And steal a star so you could put it on my finger we go straight into a hoopy wipe effect while Powell, off camera, essentially tells us that everything Queen have done since Bohemian Rhapsody until We Are the Champions has been cat shit, before telling us that it's time for a little bit of beauty as Legs and Co. prepare to emote to I Believe You by Dorothy Moore. Born in Jackson, Mississippi in 1946, Dorothy Moore was the lead singer of the Poppies, a girl group who were the original backing singers for Irma Thomas and Freddie Fender, before branching out on their own and having minor hits in the mid-60s with Lullaby of Love and He's Ready. After going solo in the late 60s, working with assorted labels, she finally hit the jackpot when her cover of Misty Blue, a country song originally recorded by Wilma Burgess in 1966, languished in the vaults of Malaco Records for three years before shooting up to number three in the Billboard charts and getting to number five over here in August of 1976. This is the follow-up to her cover of the 1961 Billy Walker song Funny How Time Slips Away, and was written by Don and Dick Adrissi, a duo in the Alessi mould who were having minor success at the time in America. It's also the lead-off cut from her new LP, Dorothy Moore. It nipped into the top 40 a fortnight ago at number 38, and this week it's risen five places from number 26 to number 21. And as she's in America and there isn't a video, here come Legs and Co for a flounce about. Well, chaps, last episode we discussed Big Tank Chess and here's Flick Colbert playing Sexy Lady Croquet. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I love uh, at this point, Legs and Co are being kept well away from the audience, right? Mm. They're often pre-recorded in an empty studio earlier in the mm. day it's like otherwise they think it'd be like that scene in apocalypse now where they fly in yes. the playmates <laughs> of the year doesn't bear thinking about <laughs> despite the fact that for this one they've been dressed in uh, ankle length green leggings underneath a yeah. loose dress but the dress yeah. is off the shoulder 
and they've all mm. got silver chokers and Valkyrie style silver bicep bracelets. It's uh, yeah, a runner's been sent down to a sorry shop in Shepherd's Bush, haven't mm, they, for material? Mm. Well, mm. it looks like their top half is attending a banquet in a castle where <laughs> bearded men stare meaningfully at them across the table with one eyebrow raised and their bottom <laughs> half is pushing a pushchair around Wandsworth Park holding a caramel <laughs> latte it's mm. I mean impressive multitasking but it's not the most coherent image you know no but there's not that much to love or hate about this particular routine apart no. from Jill's painfully sincere expression at the start as she interprets the line you will reach into the sky by pretending mm. to reach into the sky Ooh, i mean yeah. i suspect that this yeah. is one of the less considered and less well rehearsed legs and co routines yeah maybe put together in a bit of a hurry you know yeah, yeah. It's one of them standard ones where they just walk about in yeah. formation. Yeah, there's That's a lot right, of yeah. aimless swanning about. And also quite a few of those moments where one of them realises they're slightly off their mark and does a yes. little hurried high-heeled trot to speed up a bit and get back in line. <laughs> Once seen, mm. never unseen. Yeah. Well, and, you know, that fixed radiant smile just gets a little bit grittier just for that one second. Uh, yeah. But I like that. I like when there's a tear in the fabric like that, you know, and you can yeah. peer through this semi-erotic reverie and uh, get a glimpse of them, you know, two days earlier in a long room in a concrete <laughs> building in Acton, you know, nine o'clock in the morning in November. Yeah. One of them's drinking a box of Just Juice through a straw, you know. Just Juice? Mm. In 1977? Oh, no, no, no. Kellogg's yeah. Rise and Shine, Taylor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With still little bits of grit at the bottom. No yeah. Doubt. I think Just Juice was of the future. But you can imagine the scene, can't you? Come on, Jill. Really reach up into the sky, love. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Rosie, Rosie, stop moving your head like a goose all the time. <laughs> They're running through the familiar tropes, aren't they, in this particular routine? Yeah, I, I agree. I suspect mm. this one was uh, a bit of a rush job. Um, but then again, I mean... You've got to think, my granddad again. You know, he's he's this this is basically there to kind of to lower his heart rate after Freddie Mercury because <laughs> yeah. it's not like in Seven Days Jankers. He's thinking, you know, he wants his ass dipped in aniseed and pursued across rough terrain by famished bulldogs. <laughs> you know, he's he's got a, he's bloody great girl of a man dressed like that, giving me feelings. Whoa, no, no, I mean, he, you know, he didn't say that. You know what I mean? That's you know, he's yeah. very exercised. He was always very exercised by these glam boys, these glam men, and I think that yeah. I, and unfortunately. I think that, you know, the idea that, like, um, pants, people, legs and co would kind of up the kind of heart rate, I think it would it would have lowered his, you know, really. And I think that was the mm. idea, this kind of balm, really, because, you it's know... It's something balm. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 the usual unerotic gyrations, really. I mean, Taylor said semi-erotic. Well, I'd go yeah. all the way to un- unerotic. I mean, and I think that's, you know, again, it's deliberate. It's setting a cap on... Anything too intense, you know, that's kind of mandatory, really, at BBC. Yeah, because the record's about making love. Well, yes, absolutely. Mm. And I mean, you know, and I can't account for all tastes, but to me, they're very anti-masturbatory legs and co. Pants people. <laughs> I mean, unless you get off on a woman wagging a finger at a dog or something like that. <laughs> well, no, round about this time, legs and co are doing a sex. Mm. This time, they're not. I mean, the, with the sorry material thing, the, the overall impression is if Naya's in Dagee, Naya Jeevan did a fashion show mm. and then realised that there aren't enough Asian models in the UK. Mm. So they've had to make do with Legs and Co. <laughs> it's a nice enough song. You know, it's the sort mm. of thing that Patty Boulay had knock out on the two Ronnies. Yeah. But it's not what I want at the age of nine. And it's certainly not what the dads want. No. 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 
Well, I mean, it's okay. And it's, we always complain that there's a particular kind of uh, smooth pop soul record from, especially from the 70s, that sounds absolutely fine and is clearly more enjoyable than, than Live in Trouble by the Baron Knights. <laughs> but but yeah. it doesn't really touch the sides. And it's almost undiscussable because there's no particular significance to it and there's nothing hanging off it or sticking out no. the sides of it to grab hold of you know what i mean no. it's just a reasonably nice record and uh an acceptable soundtrack to tony blackburn's cum face and <laughs> mighty <laughs> chest beating roar as he issues forth into tessa mm. wyatt's eye um <laughs> a little sooner than expected but he had no choice because he suddenly remembered the next song on the tape was the wombling song and uh, <laughs> took, took the least worst option hmm. yeah. but the thing about this record i'm unimpressed by the lyric i believe you when you say you'll fill my body with your soul and love will grow yes. into a brown-eyed little girl who looks like we do. Even now, even in the 70s, they're, they're, they're having to take that route, the brown-eyed, handsome man route. Mm. But of all the things mm. that one might have been asked to believe in the 1970s, surely this is the one that requires the least credulity, right? It's not exactly the Enfield mm. poltergeist, is it? Like, so you're saying, oh, what, no. if we have sex and I get pregnant, we might have a kid that looks like we do. Yeah, well, you know... It's like saying, I believe you when you say if you lob a bottle of milk off the multi-storey car park, it it will not survive the fall and, and milk will go everywhere. So, like, oh, well, I'm glad it's good to have mm. your trust, you know. So I much prefer the line, I'd live in a cave if you wanted to, because it makes me think of uh, Dorothy <laughs> Moore and her, her boyfriend living like the hair bear bunch. Yes. You know, uh, or or smiling lovingly at each other while absolutely plastered in bat guano. Stay at home every night, never quarrel or fight. Oh, we uh, don't even bite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I'm, I'm sure that records like this aren't even made as additions to the kind of the great soul canon or anything like that. They are purely about the programming. They exist because there is a need, you know, doing a program like Top of the Pops for, you know, let's just calm down a little bit, you know, and we can't have like mm. the nipple erectors, buzzcocks, and the snivelling shits all in sequence. You know, we've got to have uh, <laughs> a little bit of respite, and I think it's really just functions as respite, mm. and no more. I think that's why there was commercial yeah. demand for records like this. Really, what should have happened is a, a nice little film clip of Dorothy Moore yeah. sort of flouncing around a garden, you know, holding roses to her face and all this kind of stuff, leaving Legs and Co to do Orgasm Addict, <laughs> <laughs> dressed up as tissue boxes <laughs> or something. Yeah. Anything else to say about this? Yeah, I noticed there was an interview with her in this week's Record Mirror. Oh, yes. Also featuring an on-the-road piece with the jam in Dachau. Oh, God, we didn't even mention that. Yeah. Yeah, their tour manager is very fond of um, leaning out the window at passers-by shouting, we won the war. Yeah, yeah. great. Yeah. Witty stuff. But yeah, there was an article on uh, Dorothy Moore, which was headlined, Dorothy's more than just a thick hick. <laughs> That's all I know about Dorothy Moore. <laughs> You'd like to hope so, yeah. Apart from uh, mm-hmm. Misty Blue. That's all yeah. I know. She's more than God. just a thick hick, and she believes her boyfriend when he tells her where babies come from. Mm. Low bars to get over, but 
still both definite positives, you know. And, I, you know, I suppose this record is too on balance. You know, it's all right. Yeah, man. it'll do. So the following week, I believe you dropped two places to number 23, but rallied the week after to number 20, its highest position. But it would be the last dent that Dorothy Moore put into the UK charts. A year later, I believe you was covered as a single by... Carpenters. The Carpenters. Mm. But it only got to number 68 on the Billboard chart and wasn't even released over here. And now, well, what have we got? So it's status quo and rocking all over the world. This is at number five. Hello, blue eyes. Hi. Hi, hi. Let's get down to this one. Yeah. We cut back to Powell with two more women. They're obviously being let in two by two, just like at Santa's Grotto. These two look almost new wave compliant with shorter hair and blank expressions. After telling us that Legs and Co. dance so beautifully, he introduces the next single. But when it starts, it sounds like he's been instructed by the gallery to chat up the women. So he says, hello, blue eyes. Hi, hi. Let's get down to this one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. See, by this point, there's this middle section of the episode, Peter Powell's links get really creepy. It's like oh, it's God, suddenly yeah. this tender softness creeps in, right? Mm. It's like he's going, oh, they dance so beautifully. It's like he's doing one of those afternoon TV ads, you know, for a donkey sanctuary. Up to 15% of your donation will reach Miguel or someone like him. Won't you please give? And you think, thank God for a change of pace, but then no, because just the way he says the title of this record makes me want to crawl back into the womb. (laughs) Anyone's womb, I don't care. Just, But it's that, yeah, that little squeak at the end when he goes, yeah, fucking... (laughs) Piglet, oh, with these yeah. violet Elizabeth curls. It's like, oh, you need to <laughs> kick up the seat of the pants, that little stinker. I strongly believed he's being egged on by the gallery to be a bit more alpha. Yeah, mm. yeah. He's standing with women, but his free hand is still clinging onto that mic. It's not being snaked around anyone's waist or shoulders or, or anything like that. <laughs> and it's like, oh, this isn't right. You've got to dip your bread in, mate. It's top of the pops. This is what you do. Yeah, but he's the only person in the studio operating at that energy level. You know, that, that's the mm. weird thing about it. Yes. Because actually, that's the thing, you know, when you're Edmonds and you're Travis or whatever, you know, they are, and Bates, you know, they are actually in keeping with that slightly kind of lukewarm level of enthusiasm. But, mm. you know, he's truly trying to sort of G things up, even in his, his appallingly white-trousered way. This one happens to be rocking all over the world by status quo. We've covered the overlords of heads down, no nonsense group masturbation a few times on chart music, and this single, a cover of the 1975 John Fogerty single, which failed to chart in the UK, is their first new release of 1977, and the follow-up to Wild Side of Life, which got to number nine for two weeks in January of this year. It's also the lead-off cut from their ninth LP of the same name, which comes out next week. But all is not well in the Quo camp. 
After hiring Pip Williams, the former guitarist of Jimmy James and the Vagabonds, who arranged a fluty bit in Kung Fu Fighting, the Ramadan Ooh. number one of 1974, yes. as their new producer. And while Rick Parfit really likes a touch of class he's added to the production, Francis Rossi and Alan Lancaster think their new album is, quote, Poxy. <laughs> the single entered the charts a month ago at number 32, then soared 15 places to number 17. And since then, it's stealthily and nimbly picked its way up the side of Mount Pop. And this week, it's nipped up one place to number 5. As the band are currently making their way to Cork to begin their 99-date Rocking All Over the World tour, which shamefully fails to take in Africa, North America, South America, Central America, Asia and both poles, we've been treated to a clip from the video. So, boys, here we are again, 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 again. again. Why don't we do it again? Yeah, I mean, a mm. song like this, to me, it's it's hard. In terms of, like, discourse, it kind of, you just sort of slide off it like a kind of grease plank of wood or something like that. I mean, it's not something that can, mm. it's, it's, just a, it's just a fact of life, a, a song like this. It's not so much a kind of artifact, really. Yeah. And it's, it's tricky to find things you know, to say about it in a sense, because it's, it's, it's... Well, let's find those I know, things, yes. Oh, yeah, don't worry, yes, yes, don't worry. I was absolutely shocked when I found out this was a cover, because it is the most quo song ever. Mm. If you fed a strip of denim into a computer and waited for the spools at the top to spin about, <laughs> this is a song that would be spat out the other end. <laughs> yes, it is. It is essence of quo, yes. Ode quo. Ode quo, yeah, fucking definitely. hell. That's what denim yeah, should yeah, have yeah. been. Yeah, definitely. The advert for Ode quo would be a denim shirt opened up and a woman's hand sneaking up and then being slapped away so uh, <laughs> so the bloke could have a polish at the uh, end for men who don't have to try and so they don't <laughs> yes. this record although as far as i know it was not where quotidians or whatever their fans <laughs> call themselves uh, lost the faith is certainly the point where an objective listener can tell that status quo are no longer accelerating remorselessly towards some kind mm. of greasy, high-speed motorway wipeout mm. and no. entry into rocker Valhalla. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're, they're going through the quotient. Mm, very they? much. Yeah, well, worse than that, they're losing speed. They're losing mm. momentum. They're, they're, and they're drifting into this motoric Muzak, mm. you know, yeah. dressed up in unlaundered denim, but with freshly washed hair. Mm. This sort of sounds like Paper Plane or Down Down or One Eyes mm. Records in the same way that a man in a gorilla suit sort of looks like a gorilla. But <laughs> if you watch them fight over a banana, you'll soon see the difference. <laughs> and it's the same here. And, but the fault is not with the song. If you listen to John Fogarty's original, the logic is is different. He made sense of, of this song, right? Mm. Okay, if you go and listen to the other single from that John Fogarty LP... Uh, which is called Almost Saturday Night, which is one of Edwin Collins's favourite singles. And I love it too. Um, And then after that, you listen to his version of this. It all falls into place, right? Mm. If you can stomach the sort of shit-kicking, down-home, 
plaid shirt feel of it, which not everyone can, mm. you understand that this song is just a sort of less musical version of Almost Saturday Night. It's like a straight shot of moonshine, right? It's really, right. It's, it's pure pop in a way. John Fogarty's kind of hairy and he's like Woody from Cheers, you know, and he's got bits in. <laughs> but his good stuff has a, a basic roughness and attack and simplicity which is totally joyous and wide open you know Mm. but then you listen to this after listening to that and the first thing you notice is the vacuum packed laboratory conditions sterility of this record you know Mm. so obviously quo are equally gritty and astute in their presentation but yeah there's the the sound of their records from now on is is edgeless and yeah. automated. It's mm. that repetition which is never hypnotic. Mm. They sound like a huge expanse of formica stretching yeah. off into infinity. You know, <laughs> I guess that's what what Francis and Alan found poxy, and I I have mm. to agree mm. with them. I mean, yeah. it's not really so much rocking; it's trucking, really, and it's not so much that they're going <laughs> all over the world or even around the world. They're just going around in these circles, these kind of decaying loops, really. <laughs> and it's interesting, that, you know, because obviously, you know, people like Noy have been doing the whole motoric thing, but there are edges. There's like peripheral details or whatever. There's a sense of like impetus. There's a sense of like the paradox of being of stasis and momentum and all that kind of stuff going on there. And this yeah. is just, yeah, I mean, there's repetition and there's repetition, put it that way. This is B-road motoric, isn't mm. it? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Fun, fun, fun. After B-46. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They've left just enough bits of straw in it to trick you into thinking that it's organic and mm. soily, you know, and it's, it's got an odour of piss, you know. But... <laughs> Really, you can see where all this is heading and the flatness and the the weariness and and the sort of sodden thump of this record are status quo's new direction. Mm. Yes. I mean, you compare it to the jam, right? Like the spindly early jam that we saw here. Mm. And, you know, in the broadest possible sense, they're playing the same kind of music. It's rock and roll. It's simple guitar. But whatever else you say about the jam, they are free of stodge. And they're full of fresh air and ideas and movement. And we can sit here in the justifiably cynical 21st century and giggle about the the hyperactive, incoherent optimism and idealistic energy of the young jam, you know. Mm. But then or now, who would choose this? Who would choose the zonked-out, silent toe-tapping of this record mm. over the, the speedy three-hour conversation over one cup of coffee in the local calf that is the modern world? You know, even if yeah. most of what's being said in that conversation is a little bit silly, you know. That's not mm. the point. Mm. One of them is at least obnoxiously alive, you know, and the other one moves like a zombie. Mm. I mean, there's only an 11-year age gap between Francis Rossi and Paul Weller, but it might as well be 40. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in, in lots of ways. Mm. Like I say, it's tricky. I mean, it's almost aspiring to this kind of down-the-lineness, does exactly what it says on the tin, you know. This is just the straight stuff, no frills, straight down the line. You know, there's that sort of pretentiousness in a sense about it, you know. But it's not really those things. I mean, there are other people, I mean, like, 
Motorhead make them sound well frilly. You know, you can be yeah. much, much straighter than status quo. <laughs> Suicide, the same year. Ghost Rider, that is getting right down to the absolute electric wire of things, you know. But that's, mm. you know, that there, there are certain kind of straightnesses that are a bit too much. Yeah, I think the really upsetting song is that they go on about rocking all over the world, but they don't even talk about the world. Mm. No, no. Yeah. It's, just, it's just that they like it. They're rocking all over their world. Yeah, I mean, for fuck's sake, why don't you add a few world music sound effects in? Why don't you have a bit where there's some Chinesey music mm. and then some nose flute from the Andes? Yeah, yeah. A picaresque tour of the Americas and the Orient. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd add in the. Uh, the ambient sound of a Persian market. Yes. <laughs> I always think we should do that on this podcast. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> I mean, like, you, you know, rather than, like, the sound of low-flying police helicopters and yeah. kids screaming at each other out on the estate, you know. Yeah, and the well cunt across the road doing his fucking soaring again. <laughs> oh, honestly, man, he's there all the time. He's soaring up planks of wood, and he never uses them for anything. He hasn't built one shack yet. Mm. across the road what's he using them for mm. he's just being a fucking annoyance mm. yeah. well i said that's a metaphor for status quo really isn't it you know they just produce yes. sort of series of planks of wood to no particular mm. end mm. yes well it's played just David. a little too neat <laughs> <laughs> so anyway the video that we get it, you know it's your bog standard band pretending to play live promo that we were kind of getting used to by 1977 but with one major difference because you know you're looking at it and there appears to be very little sight of the recently deceased alan lancaster because you know he's relocated to australia at this time and clearly he couldn't be asked to drag himself around the world for this so uh, what have they done chaps did you not notice this not on the first viewing no no <laughs> it is a dummy isn't it mm. yes they've, they've <laughs> replaced him with a dummy in yeah. an alan partridge's wife style and fashion <laughs> yes. it moves as well man it's proper animatronic mm. the bbc clearly didn't approve of that did they? because yeah. the only time we see him on this episode of top of the pops is when they do a sweep round the back of the stage and we just see his electronic arse going left and right like he's <laughs> he's had a hip replacement and he's jogging on the spot <laughs> and the first time i saw it it's like something fishy about this yeah yeah and then i checked it up mm. and yes they have a proper proto animatronic horror <laughs> and you see him in the full video <laughs> looks like they've gone around the back of fucking madam two swords and they've lobbed out a jason king dummy <laughs> and yeah they're using it and he's there with a bass and his fret hand is forming a V sign, which could well be construed as a message from status quo to their missing bassist. <laughs> well, you described him as the recently deceased Alan Lancaster. You mean recently yeah. deceased as of the time of this recording, yeah. of course. Yes, If he'd yes. been the recently deceased Alan Lancaster at the time, that at least would have been a good excuse. Yeah. Although it would have been a little grotesque. It'd be like, just is. But the great quo conspiracy theories of Alan is dead. You know, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but if they'd had any sort of modicum of wit or conceptual sense, they'd have like had animatronic models for all of them and bung that mm. out, and it would have been in keeping. Yeah, well, maybe Rossi ought to think about that now. Mm. <laughs> Just as a footnote, I saw a thing the other day. It was a, an article from an old music paper from mm. uh, 
1968 about the supposed rock and roll revival of 1968 which seemed yeah. to be mostly just lady madonna as far as i could make out mm. apparently there's all these all these bands playing 50s type rock and roll and so in this article you've got all these musicians like the move and stuff hailing the revival of a 50s influence sound you know and then mm. the last paragraph in it says but one popster who's hoping it won't return is status quo's Rick Parfit. Quote, I hope rock doesn't come back. Since the days of rock, pop has progressed so much as a musical art form, and it would be very retrogressive to return to such an old sound. We should be looking for new sounds instead. Unquote. Yeah. But he's a voice in the wilderness, concludes the cheerfully unnamed writer. How delightful. A man of his word. A match, yeah. Yes, a matchstick man talking there. Yeah. So the following week, rocking all over the world, hauled itself up to number four. And a week later, it would commence a three week stint in the number three slot. Rossi and Lancaster's disillusion with the LP ensured that no further cuts would be taken from the album, meaning there was a nine-year-long wait for the follow-up again and again, which got to number 13 in September of 1978. In the summer of 1985, of course, Quo were invited by Bob Geldof to be the opening act at Live Aid, specifically because he wanted Rockin' All Over the World to be the first song played that day. And three years after that, they put out a version called Running All Over the World as a tie-in with Sport Aid 88, which got to number 17 for two weeks in August of that year. God, status quo inspiring the youth to run <laughs> away from them in, in circles. Status quo, you know, and rocking all over the world. We're rocking on the very best show on television. This is the biggest party in the whole lot, and this is David Bowie, one of the best, the 24. How? With two more 70s lovelies, one with the most flick-back hair ever, reminds us that we're rocking on the very best show on television. This is the biggest party of the whole lot. Before introducing us to Heroes by David Bowie. (laughs) We've done David Bowie loads on chart music and this single, the follow-up to Sound and Vision, which got to number three in March of this year, is the lead-off cut from his 12th LP of the same name, which came out a fortnight ago. Co-written with Brian Eno during his Berlin period, the lyrics, according to Bowie at the time, are about an anonymous couple he saw snogging by the Berlin Wall while he was in the studio. Before it was released at the end of September, Bowie was already out and about plugging the shit out of it. Even though a promo video had been shot in Paris, he performed it on the last episode of the Granada TV kids show Mark, nine days before Mark Bolan was killed. Then he performed it on Bing Crosby's Merry Old Christmas, a month before Crosby died. 
It entered the chart at number 27, and a week later he went for the hat-trick when Dave Lee Travis introduced him singing live over a specially recorded backing track. But sadly, Travis lived. (laughs) So here's a repeat of his performance a fortnight ago. His first appearance in the Top of the Pop studio since Gene Gina in January of 1973, and only his third overall appearance on our favourite Thursday night pop treat. First things first, chaps, Peter Powell is the absolute Enola Gay of the B-bomb, isn't it? <laughs> Fuck's sake. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But um, again, the, I mean, the girl on the left of him has a real sort of kind of go-now vibe about him, and I don't think that's entirely mm. down to the creepiness of Powell. I just think it's that just no. people, even people that were on a show like that in those days, it was almost like a collective shyness. It was just a general attitude, you know, the stars are the stars, and we are but the humble audience, and all that kind of stuff. There wasn't... Yeah, don't look at me, I'm no one special. Yeah, absolutely. And it's almost like in parallel in football, the way that, like, fans... In this era, they would just wear scarves and, like, maybe sort of, you know, rosettes or something like that. They wouldn't actually wear replica shirts with that tender implication no. that they clearly had dreams and aspirations of being players themselves and would do something as darkly mm. precarious as wear the actual shirt or, in some cases, yeah. full kit. You know, you'd see Liverpool fans in the absolute full kit. Right about that time, the only person who was doing that was Brian Glover in Kez. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that reticence is partly, you know, a humility that mm. we have lost as a people. Mm. But it's also, because this was a more violent time where it was a really good idea not to put your head above the parapet yeah yeah yes. absolutely if you didn't have a bodyguard and a limousine just just keep your head down eh? Mm. yeah oh yeah yeah you were on telly the night you must think you saw yeah. that uh, yeah, extroversion yeah, yeah, yeah. would get your fucking head kicked in that's right and that even went on into the 80s mm. because you know i mentioned in a previous episode of chart music that i auditioned for the central television workshop oh, yeah. didn't get in and failed to be on your mother wouldn't like it yeah. uh, since then I've known loads of people who were in that and were on telly and all that kind of stuff they told me that their lives were just made fucking hell by mm. it yeah, yeah. and they just said yeah you just wouldn't go into town mm. on a Saturday because there'd be a load of youths coming up to you going oh you're on fucking telly you must think you're summer mm. yeah yeah mm. yeah I believe this phenomenon continues to some extent in that I'm told male porn stars avoid the local pub Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, this song, I mean, fucking hell, Mm. what a mountain to scale. People go on about it as if it's one of his biggest hits, and he's currently promoting the arse off it, but, you know, let's look at the chart position so far. Number 27, number 26, number 25, and now number 24. What's going on? (laughs) Is this something to do with RCA pressing plants around the world still hammering out Elvis vinyl? (laughs) <laughs> because, you know, he's just died and there was a massive surge in demand for Elvis LPs in the wake of his death. And that's been compounded by a trade union dispute at RCA's plant in County Durham yeah. only last month. Yeah, I guess it's one of these songs, and there's two or three of them tonight, actually, that um, really tr- you know transcended their times. And it's like, you know, they, the performance in the charts at the time is just incidental because um, they really kind of, in their own way, even up, and include rocking all over the world in that, they kind of belong to the ages, really. And Bowie mm. has that wonderful sense of self-possession. It's Bowie, in his David. 
Yeah, fuck's sake. Oh, 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 yes. Oh, bow, wow, 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 wowie. Yes. Yowie, bowie. <laughs> um, you know, he has this wonderful sort of self-possession. You know, he's, he's in the moment, but he's kind of belongs to the ages. I mean, you know, he has a sort of mm. timeless appearance about him. You know, there's not, apart from possibly his, the sleeves on his shirt or whatever, it's a kind of pretty timeless mm. look he's got there. He's just wearing a standard shirt, but he's, mm. um, he's unbuttoned his sleeve, yeah. hasn't he? And they're hanging down. I just, I just admire his whole demeanour in this song. I mean, if you contrast it with the ludicrous histrionics of, Freddie Mercury early on, mm. that kind of willful preposterousness. You just get the feeling here that Bowie, Bowie, wow, wow, wowie. He's pretty conscious of the massive and exact precise weight of his importance, but he just carries it really modestly, very lightly indeed. Yeah. He's sort of radiating this quiet, supremely confident benevolence, really. is absolutely at ease mm. with the idea of sharing himself with the world. Yeah. And I mean, this is 1977, and he's such an important... You know, we've talked about this before, really, in terms of um, kraut rock and everything like that, and the fact that he kind of gives it his blessing, and that sort of changes so many things. But he's so he's in the process of, mm. of redirecting rock culture or subculture from from west to east. You know, he's meeting Kraftwerk yeah. and contemplating working with Michael Rother out of Noy. But I always think that with Bowie, it's there's always an essential Bowiness about him. You know, he's meeting mm. and he's always in between. He's, he's well observed. Yeah, David. he's meeting Ralph Hutter. But he's also meeting Bing Crosby. You know, he's signposting crap rock, but he never imitated crap rock as such. I mean, no. he's generally classic. I always think of him as a classic artist. This is classic in the sense of being immaculately sculpted and balanced and built for durability and no built-in mm. obsolescence or faddishness or anything like that. Um, yeah. And I think the only... I would, I would just say, if, if I could go back in time and, and, and tell him anything, I'd just say, look, just leave it here, mate. Don't bother keeping pace with the times or signposting the times as we're going to the 80s mm. catching the tail of the zeitgeist fuck the zeitgeist just do yeah. what you do you know a bit of sax Tony yeah. Visconti at the controls you know aloof from the fray don't be worrying about the bloody pixies or drum and bass because I think belatedly no. he did come to that sort of sense and I think that was why he was kind of yeah. more universally exalted whereas during the 80s he was, to be honest, he was a bit of a laughing stock, you know, after this moment. You look at a wonderful moment like this, and perhaps he should have just sort of stepped back at that particular point. Ever since the early 70s and right up to 1982, he's an RCA man. And apparently Colonel Parker would threaten to end Elvis's deal with RCA at a stroke if they ever signed anyone that he saw as competition. Yeah, that was shaky was on Epic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, so at the moment, their roster is Boer, Iggy Pop, Hall & Oates, Harry Nielsen, Baccarat, and fuck all else. Mm. But, you know, Elvis did save RCA. There's a story that they were having a board meeting on August the 16th of this year, and they're absolutely in the shit. And someone runs in and says, oh, I've got even more bad news. Elvis has just died. (laughs) And someone just jumped up, you know, threw his papers in the air and went, fucking yes, we've made the month. Full steam ahead to the printing press. Uh, So Coe said, "Uh, I've heard Elvis is dead. And the guy's like, his eyes shiftily go from size. Oh, Really? Oh, what terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Talking of Elvis, this song has become Bowie's American trilogy, hasn't it? Mm. It's that one song that from here on in has to be on every set he plays. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, like David was saying, I really like this neither young nor old um, seedy Robert Redford version of Bowie. Mm. It's like before yeah. he climbed back into the clown suit for uh, Ashes to yeah. Ashes. You know, it's like he's dignified, but mm. he's the opposite of boring. You know, mm. it's like mm. he's like it's just it's thirty-ish. You know, in front of a decolorized mutation of the LWT logo, 
uh, mm. in his chunky dad jeans, you know. And it's funny because yeah. in 1973, David Bowie comes on top of the pops and it's like this freak has materialised from another planet. Yeah. You know, the everyday world of of Y fronts and power cuts, you know, and he's... Mm. he's, he's tank tops. Yeah, he's going to electrify and pervert everything. And in 1977, mm. David Bowie appears and it's like a real normal person has just mm. walked mm. into this creepy pantomime of peter powellism and mm. you know souped up variety show nonsense and he's surveyed the yeah. scene and lifted one eyebrow and he's visibly above the fray here in mm. that he's yes. thinking adult thoughts but not the boring ones no. mm. and he's slightly bemused by all the trashiness and he's not concealing a quiet smirk but it's not in a snooty way he's just an intelligent mature man enjoying an amusing evening out before he gets back to the serious work and it's fair enough he doesn't need to be here like you wouldn't have got no. paul mccartney or the stones or even queen into the mm. studio to do their latest song in front of no. 50 lank-haired adolescents, you know, shifting from <laughs> foot to foot like they need a piss. Mm. But while Bowie clearly considers himself to be above the reality of Top of the Pops in 1977, he doesn't consider mm. himself to be above the concept of it. So here he is, you know. He's a mature artistic rock musician who still understands the thrill of the game, which is as rare as a newspaper article about the who which spells all their names correct <laughs> the only regret is it means we don't get to see legs and co dancing yes to like dressed as odysseus spider-man kevin keegan um, <laughs> bob fish out of darts you know uh, uh, merlin <laughs> reese all the heroes of the time you know lord mm. boothby uh, <laughs> david berkowitz um <laughs> youth of joys you know. oh yeah no. he's singing this live over a specially pre-recorded track that was knocked up that very week fully complying with musician union regulations which is a bit of a shame because just imagine what the top of the pops orchestra could have done with this one <laughs> <laughs> but by uh, appearing on top of the pops yeah. it, you know as we've seen he's done a kids tv show he's done a show for the oldens and here he is on top of he's very keen to sell this record isn't it is that because he's finally enjoying being a pop star again or is he being pushed by rca to remind people that there's more to them than elvis or is he worried that the spotlight's moved away from him i think that yeah there's definitely an element of the latter i think there i mean i don't think that bowie really had anything to worry about in terms of punk no nonetheless i think that he was you know, he was, he was a little bit sort of nervous, I suspect, by nature. I do remember a tale of him when John Wilde at Melody Maker reviewed one of the Tim Machine albums. And the last line was something like, sit down, man, you're a fucking disgrace. And he was absolutely mm. devastated by this review. I mean, to me, you're David Bowie, who gives a shit? But he was. Yeah. And his press officer had to kind of read it out to him line by line and sort of like, and hold his hand, as it were, you know, to kind of, I don't know, it's not so bad. <laughs> it was it was bad. But, you know, it's, it, it's kind of sad to think of an artist being that kind of thin-skinned, I guess. And, you know, he, he probably was. And so I imagine that maybe punk did unnerve him, despite the fact that he was absolutely adored. So, yeah, this single is seen as one of his best isn't it well when we started doing this podcast 16 years ago come michaelmas <laughs> i remember everyone thinking how is this going to pan out if we keep on going and the big hitters mm. start turning up over and over 
will it become yeah. tedious and repetitive? And I remember thinking, only if the records are tedious and repetitive. Yeah. Now, if they're not, then no. And there's no better illustration of this than in the sequencing here, right? We go from trying to talk about status quo for the third or fourth time, trying mm. not to say the same things about endless formica and hamster wheels, to getting to talk about david bowie for the third or fourth time and immediately filling up with too much to say all of it different yeah. from mm. the last time we did him because it's a different mm. david bowie record exactly and while this record like the quo record is based on repetition and momentum and locomotion that one by the time it finally collapses feels like it's used up half your life mm. this one this is cut to three minutes precisely, I guess, because it's a repeat clip. And just that fact, it leaves you feeling half full because mm. the song is not a grind. It works by building momentum and then setting up contrasts and emotional switches within mm. that momentum. So when it's cut short like this, it actually feels unfinished because it's going somewhere as opposed to the yeah. way you can cut the, the quo boogie off by the yard you know mm. like lead piping yes. it's like you know what, what do you want 15 foot there you go same as the other 15 foot right was here it's like you've dived into this this rushing lurid blue river of this record and then someone's hauled you out mm. with a boat hook after 300 yards you know it's like mm, yeah. yeah i was on my way to the sea <laughs> it's just you just you want to hear the whole thing it gathers moss as well. There's a sense of that, I always feel about it. I mean, yeah, you could go for an aquatic mm. analogy, but there is a sense of, you know, a rolling stone gathering moss. It's a real sort of physical, sort of tangible, furry feel to it almost, you know. Mm. It's almost like the classic Bowie record in as much as when you break it all down joylessly, mm. there's not much here that hadn't already been done by hands, that's rhyming slang for German bands. Mm. Um, but nothing that Bowie ever did was original in that sense, right? Mm. It was always all collage and mm. cut-ups and rearranged stuff that was already there. But that's okay if you do it well, because imagination is much more important than originality. Mm. It's something people don't always get about music. You don't have to be original if you've got imagination. And I've always smilingly admired the way he cleverly presented that like uh hey this is me this is actually a true reflection of me the restless questing artist in a <laughs> postmodern world of echoes and shadows and reflections you yeah. know this eclecticism is actually the natural state of the true artist in the 1970s that was a neat trick for mm -hmm. a man who had every ability in spades except the ability to sit down in an empty room and create something completely new out of nothing mm. right but it's okay if you're this good a singer and this good a songwriter and this good a performer and this good a catalyst for bringing the best out of other people and you've got this many ideas it's fine you can take everything from other people and make it into something of your own you know mm. in a way you could say that bowie was an interpreter of other people's ideas in the same way that Frank Sinatra or Ella Fitzgerald or Elvis Presley were interpreters of other people's songs, mm. you know, which is a very long way from shameful. It's not like he was some hollow jackdaw, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm. Because he was never totally original, always or almost always incredibly imaginative. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah. I mean, I'd stick my neck out and say that in terms of like your relationship with your source material, which isn't necessarily your own, he is something of a world apart from the Baron Knights. <laughs> Controversial. Mm. Well, I know, you know, yeah, that's what it's all about. The hot takes. So the following week, Heroes dropped one place to number 25, stayed there the week after, and then tumbled down the chart. The follow-up, Beauty and the Beast, would only get to number 39 in February of 1978, and he'd have to wait until June of 1979 for his next major hit, Boys Keep Swinging, which got to number 7. Despite its piss-poor chart position, Heroes would go on to have a prolific afterlife, featuring in Bowie's set at Live Aid, his performance at the Freddie Mercury Tribute Concert, the concert for New York City in the wake of September the 11th, and as the intro music for the British team at the London Olympics. It became the most streamed song on Spotify in the week after Bowie's death in January 2016 and the highest placed of the 13 Bowie singles, which entered the chart at number 12. Fucking hell. So there's this, rocking all over the world, and we are the champions. The three Mm. most key songs of Live Aid are all on this episode of Top of the Pops. That's fucking insane, (laughs) isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And in 1999, Tony Visconti admitted that the anonymous snoggers by the wall were actually him and a backing singer while he was still married to Mary Hopkin. Oh, man. That's taken a lot from the song for me. Yeah. With Bowie covering up for them. Oh. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Bowie enabler. Yeah. We could be sneaky bastards just for one night. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I don't see anything particularly heroic about shitting on Mary Hopkin. Uh, not at all, no. <laughs> no. Music and the charisma of David Barry at 24 with Heroes. Nine hits in all so far. This could be the next one for them. It's Shawadi Wadi. They've got a brand new hit out to be. It's called Dancing Party and it goes like this. Finally on his own, drops a second B-bomb before informing us that the next group are on the cusp of their 10th hit single. It's Dancing Party by Show Waddy Waddy. The Wads are always welcome on chart music, and the last time we chanced upon them in chart music number 47, they were having a big tinsely slap-up meal in the 1977 Christmas Day episode to commemorate You Got What It Takes getting to number two in August of that year. Held off number one by that classic Hispanic suicide anthem, Angelo, by the Brotherhood of Man. (laughs) This is the follow-up, and in a surprise move, they've elected to do a cover version. (laughs) In this case, the 1962 Chubby Checker single, which got to number 19 in September of 1962. 
It's just missed out on the top 40 this week, entering the charts at number 41, but Top of the Pops clearly doesn't give a fuck about that, waving them straight into the studio for a bit of Leicester sexual rock and roll. <laughs> oh, Shawaddy Waddy, welcome uh, back. We've missed you. Wants. Yeah, how many episodes is it now? Like one? <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the fact that at the beginning they've got that group huddle going, which is decades in advance of like every sports team in the world. Yes. Uh, yeah, the group Puddle, that's excellent. I was initially, I was gonna, I was gonna come in with like, you know, all guns blazing about how come, you know, the black guy, the drummer isn't allowed in on the bonding session at the beginning, you know, but mm. um, of course, somebody has to hold down the beat and the drummer, yes, so I think we can let them off, you know, not, yeah. not a racialist bone in their bodies, I think. No, 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 safely, no. safely say of the wads. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it's a dancing party you'd want to be at, isn't it? You know, yes. The village hall, the orange squash flowing home by quarter to eight in the evening. I mean, it's got that vibe about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I've said before, if you did put a gun to my head in 1977, number one, I'd shit myself and run off. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's what my dad's mate used to do. Every time I used to go around his house, he had this big gun on top of his tele that mm. um, acted as a lighter and he pointed ah. it at my head and I would absolutely oh, quiber times. while my dad laughed. Mm. Oh, dear, you know dear. what I mean? Oh, that's, that's grim, yeah. But um, no, show Waddy Waddett, my favourite band at the time. So I would have been absolutely fucking delighted to see this on top of the pops. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a tune as well. You know, I was very au fait with Chubby Checker at the time because I think 1977 was the year that I yeah. had a rummage through my dad's record collection and pulled out Less Twist again by Chubby Checker. Mm. Took it to the Westlake Junior School end of term summer disco and demanded it get played. And oh, what a fucking reaction from the youth. Yeah. It was just like Cool Herc putting on Champ oh, for the first yeah. time ever. Mm. You know what I mean? Absolutely. <laughs> Another cover version, but unlike the Baron Knights and the Carpenters, the Wads have wisely put out one of their own compositions written by all eight members of the band on the B-side. They're, they're a true workers' collective, <laughs> a Leicester commune, mm. because, you know, they did start their career off with original songs like Hey Rock and Roll, but they're very quickly floundered about in the 30s. But in May of 1975, they did a cover of Eddie Cochran's Three Steps to Heaven, which got to number two. And after going back to original stuff and re-floundering in the 30s again, they, of course, got to number one in December of last year with Under the Moon of Love, and they've now gone full covers for the rest of their career. Yeah, when you're completely fucking talentless, it's a wise move. <laughs> one of the things I like about his performance is the radicalism. I was talking earlier on about like how the audience feel like they are there is such an incredible divide. You know that punk mm. is supposed to come to kind of narrow the great divide between the yeah. humble audience and the superstars. Mm. And here they are mingling with the audience. And you don't yes. really get that off. I, 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 the only, the only other person I remember seeing do it. Well, the Rolling Stones kind of in the late sixties when I was a kid. It really terrified me. They sort of yes. like the audience sort of. You know, there was a real kind of you know, breakdown of the division between, you know, the crowd and the band, and which I thought was all a bit terribly delinquent when I was five. Mm. And Gilbert O'Sullivan did it. He once sort of, like, got up from the old piano and started dancing around in the crowd. You know, and it feels like you're really breaking down a wall when they do yes. it on top of the pops. Yeah, it's, it's like, it's of... like Hey Jude in reverse, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And when you think about it, chaps, it, it's weird seeing a load of men in Teddy Boy outfits capering about and having mm. fun with the audience when, you know, you consider that Teddy Boys were the Weetabix of their day yeah. and the current version in 1977 are still fucking nasty bastards that's oh, yeah. that's really strange isn't it yeah yeah it's, it's it's a very kind of 
laundered version of Teddy Boyism in 1977. Mm, they yeah. the shit yeah. out of punks, you know. Yeah, there have been a few yeah. young punks watching this who would not have seen this as a, a group of yeah. lovable, lovable party yeah. people living it up. Mm. No. No. Um, it's like a band in the early noughties calling themselves Skin Heady Headdy and doing cover <laughs> versions of Screwdriver and Foreskins <laughs> records in, in different coloured Doc Martins. Yeah, Skin Heady Headdy. I sent a future top ten entry there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this looks like a pre record from the previous week because it looks like a different audience. Um, because it's 1977, of course, two of the kids are wearing massive Jubilee tinfoil top hats. Mm. With writing on the side that the Dave Bartram puts on when he's getting involved with the audience. Did you notice what yeah, they said yeah. on them? Was it "Hello Mum"? "Hello Mum" on one side, and on the other side, "Vote Fonze." Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and the other hat that a mate was wearing just said "Cool It." Mm. Happy Days is absolute apex by 1977. I mean, I never got to see Shiwadi Wadi. Well, I did. I, I saw them in 1987. Yes, I, you did. Like before, when they supported Einstein and Neubauten. Yes. And absolutely won our hearts. Um, mm. But I do remember around this time, um, the only other cultural impact of Shiwadi Wadi was uh, a friend of mine, Carl Pease. He sagged off football in order to go and see Shiwadi Wadi play. Good Lord. And um, as I think Leeds. And the teacher, who was also the geography teacher, next day just spent the entire lesson talk about dark sarcasm in the classroom. And he was just like, so... You'd rather see um, Shuadi Paddy play. You'd rather see Shuadi Paddy play and play football, eh? Shuadi Paddy, eh? Not football, eh? Oh, Shuadi Paddy. And he was just going on this the whole time. He thought it was a pretty witty, witty stuff, you know, the idea that it could be an Irish tribute band, uh, no doubt. But, um, yeah, Shuadi Paddy, eh? 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 No matter what you're football, eh? Shuadi Paddy. That's cool, man. And it was just it was relentless, you know, and, and about that level of wit and searing. It was excruciating stuff. Poor old Carl Pease, you know, burrowing his head in his desk, you know, trying to keep his head down. But, um, Oh. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, they they had an impact. Yeah. We're used to seeing Shawadi Wadi bouncing about on the top of the pop stage in different coloured drapes. We certainly are. Like a bag of rock and roll skittles, but mm. not this time. <laughs> They're all no. in red. Yeah. yeah. Even the seat yeah, lad yeah, yeah. is in red this time. Mm. Why? Yeah. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Maybe someone left a red sock in the communal Shawadi Wadi washing machine. Or <laughs> if we're deploying the show Wadi Wadi gay drape code, they're all into fisting at the moment and have spent the afternoon jamming their arms up each other's arseholes in the top of the pops dressing room. Well, yeah, but, yeah. but I actually contend it's to commemorate their third LP, Red Star, which comes out a week tomorrow. Red mm. Star? Yeah, the, the cover looks like a, a parcel. It's not. It's not a communist thing or a mm. tribute to Belgrade. No, no, no. no, it's a parcel. I mean, but what a parcel it is! <laughs> mm. I mean, look, we, we were talking about repetition. Um, mm. I don't understand why you would buy this record if you'd already bought a Shwadi Wadi record, mm. especially if you'd bought Under the Moon of Love the previous yeah. year. Uh, just play that again. Let's have a ball at the hall tonight. Boom, boom, under the moon of love. Absolutely. And I mean, in terms of this podcast, it's like, you know, there's that famous story about how when Alex Ferguson was managing Manchester United, uh, that he'd mm. kind of give him these team talks before every match, except when they were playing Tottenham Hotspur, where he'd just walk into mm. the dressing room, shrug and say, lads, it's Spurs and walk out again and they'd always win <laughs> always win getting yeah. a bit like that we might as well just come on and go lads it's Shawaddy Waddy 
And just, yeah, nah. everyone knows exactly what we're talking about. But Taylor, I mean, fucking hell, you could say the same thing about Shaking Stevens. And look at the fucking tangents we've gone off with him. It's true, it's mm. true. But luckily, on this occasion, I don't have to say that much about the record because uh, instead I can give you a book report. <gasps> uh, about <gasps> 10 years ago, Shawadi Wadi lead singer or a lead singer dave bartram <laughs> the one who looks like joy sarney with slightly shorter hair um <laughs> he wrote this book called the boys of summer which is a memoir of shawadi wadi's disastrous 2005 tour of british holiday oh. camps um yeah. described to him on the phone by the agent who set up the tour as not quite as upmarket as the rival butlins camps mm. he doesn't specify the company but he does tell you where these places are so with five minutes on yeah. google you can work out they were haven holiday parks uh, right. so in fact not quite as upmarket as the rival pontins camps uh, no e.g pontins breen sands subject of a memorable itv news expose which i watched on youtube the other day it's very funny but it's one down from that <laughs> it's the kind of places that would hire shawaddy waddy in 2005 basically <laughs> now first of all i don't care who you are you're gonna be impressed when you open any book and see that it has a forward by amanda holden Oh, definitely. You know I mean? I, I, unless you're Les Dennis, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so that's good. But the problem is that a book like this is all about the author's voice, right? These stories are only as funny as the way they're told. And mm. it has to be said, Dave Bartram's dad joking exclamation mark heavy prose style is not really a beautiful thing. I don't think he's used a ghostwriter because he, he makes no. quite a big deal about writing it himself, but he really yeah. should have. I mean, fucking, I'd have done it for 50 quid and a night out with Amanda Holden. I mean, you know, <laughs> reckon I'd have had a chance, you know. <laughs> I'd have told her that I know Dave Bartram out of Shawaddy Waddy. She'd have been eating out of my hand. Uh, but, yeah, it's one of these situations where someone writes a book about themselves and they're the worst thing about their own book. Mm. Um yeah, the writing style is very stout yeoman of the bar, isn't it? It is, mm. yeah, which gets very wearing. Um, mm. And it's also a little bit, needless to say, I had the last laugh. I had the last yeah, yeah. laugh. I, that's what I found. And it's that kind of like Alan Partridge thing of like, and then his jobs were behind the bar. He said, ooh, I don't, ooh, I don't think you be doing that, you know. Mm. Yeah, and I don't recall a single story in this catalogue of calamity where dave bartram comes out looking silly or mm. in the wrong mm. or yeah. makes any kind yeah, yeah. of mistake uh, yeah. even yeah. the bit where he tells us all about his terrible hemorrhoids it's not really yeah. self-deprecating he's just passing on information which we will presumably find interesting because mm. it's about him uh <laughs> let me give you a little illustration of what oh, i mean please here. do um he spends quite a lot of time describing a kid's magician who's also on at one of these camps who's got mm. a dog which barks after every trick, right? Mm. Which he thinks is one of the funniest things he's ever seen. Um, <laughs> the memory, he says, has long remained with me and frequently rears its head to silently amuse my warped sense of humour and cause me to snigger 
much to the puzzlement of those in my company at the time. <laughs> now, if you can imagine 336 pages, all written in that style, it's like an extensive course in how to write badly. Mm. Right. You know, some people who are articulate and can spell and, and punctuate and aren't completely thick always think that means that they can write yeah it's why it's the most undervalued specialist skill hmm. like if you start singing and it's terrible people will tell you to stop and no one will employ you but if you start writing and it's terrible a lot of people can't tell and if you start writing mm. and it's good a lot of people also can't tell so yeah i mean i'm not in a position to lecture anyone i've written plenty of rubbish in my life but i've done it for long enough that i know the things you shouldn't do yeah. Right. There's an awful lot of POVing in this book, which does not stand for point of view. It stands for popular orange vegetable. Um, <laughs> it's a, a famous story sort of shared among journalists of, of, of some hacker to write an article about carrots. And they use the word carrots and they use the word carrots again. And they use the word, it gets to the point you have to start reaching for synonyms or mm. finding roundabout ways to say these things. And by the end of the article, they were reduced to writing the phrase the popular orange vegetable. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, Dave gives us one of the greatest POVs I've ever read in a scene where he's walking through a caravan park and he mentions the caravans and then he says something else about the caravans and then he doesn't want to say the word caravans <laughs> again so he refers to them as wheeled homes <laughs> an exquisitely awkward phrase which hasn't left my head since i read it wheeled homes i mean i heard the audio version of this and i do must confess i lost a little bit of the kind of the goodwill and respect that had accrued after they oh. um, blew neubauten off the stage oh <laughs> well there's potentially a very funny book in it yeah. obviously mm. because spending weeks on end in some of britain's shittiest holiday camps yeah. is an intrinsically funny situation yes. and also operating at this depressing basement level of rock and roll is mm. clearly funny in itself but what's funny about it is the atmosphere and detail which is all the stuff that dave can't do no but unless lots of really really funny things happen to you it's not automatically going to be funny mm. as a collection of anecdotes which is what dave does mm. so uh not wanting to take up too much of your sweet time here's a very brief selection of highlights from the book <laughs> so uh please come on this journey with me <laughs> the first place they play is uh, inevitably has recently hosted a Shawadi Wadi tribute band. Mm. Um, most writers would see that as a, an open goal. Mm. But rather than explore that personal humiliation for laughs, Dave just mentions it in passing yeah. and instead goes on his first flight of fancy. Here we are. <laughs> I wandered back to the reception area as prior to the gig, I'd received a phone call from the duty manager who'd said he was looking forward to meeting me <laughs> and asked if I'd pop in to say hello upon <laughs> arrival. Behind the front desk was an anorexic-looking girl who informed me that he was on a call but wouldn't be long if I'd be so good as to take a seat. My eyes were immediately drawn to the pallid woman who clearly had an aversion to the fare they served up at the camp. Mm if not to anything nutritious in general. Mm. There's something eerie about very skinny people that gives me the creeps, <laughs> p 
Perhaps it's the angular bones that jut out beneath a thin sack of skin that renders their appearance as almost deathly. But whatever it may have been, rather than engage in a conversation about her daily dietary requirements, I took the option of perusing the notice board, which listed some quite fascinating forthcoming attractions. Well, this is page 14. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, punching down on women with potential eating disorders isn't the mm. most engaging of uh, tacks. Well, you may say that, David, but, you know, don't let it be said that he uh, concentrates on his ghoulish preoccupations. And uh, (laughs) look, because Dave can do comedy. Listen to this, right? This is when they play that place with the magician and his dog, right? And during the set, (laughs) wait till you hear this, right? It's quite the yarn. Uh, The the dog wandered onto the stage while they were Just like Altamont again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dave takes up the action. (laughs) In the midst of the hilarity, I quickly improvised and ranted (laughs) into the mic, who let the dogs out? To which the crowd instantly responded with barking noises, something akin to the answer (laughs) backs on the original Baha Men recording. (laughs) It was a while before anyone was able to regain their composure and complete the show without further incident. But the receptive punters had lapped it up, and we had rounded (laughs) off a good day in fine style. (laughs) And then, just when you think no more laughs can possibly be squeezed out of the dog story... On the next page, mm. he gives us a top ten, an indented top ten, mark you, of all the songs they should have played that night, as suggested by members of Shawadi Wadi after the <laughs> show. And it's like Hound Dog, Elvis Presley, Black Dog, Led Zeppelin, I Love My Dog. <laughs> no. It's just a load of songs with dog in the title. There's not puns or anything. Mm. Like He put this in a book. I think after this, people are going to be racing back gratefully for my Rick Buckler joke. <laughs> <laughs> he has a running joke through the whole book where he wants some fresh fruit. <laughs> but the camp shop never sells it because, he strongly implies, all the punters are fucking subhuman peasants who only mm. eat chips and, like, super kings fried in lard. Um, so at one point he gets very excited because he thinks he sees some oranges through the window. So he goes in. The popular orange fruit. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. So take it away, Dave. I went inside, eager to see if I was right, and picked up a plastic netted bag containing two solid wooden rackets and a bright orange ball. The pallid assistant looked across and said they're eight pounds 99 i explained to her i'd mistaken the ball for an orange to which she sharply retorted i think you need an optician's not a supermarket Mm. nothing super about this store i snapped back and strode out with my door demeanor intact well, that definitely happened, didn't it? I was going yes. to say, Danny Baker's got a series on his podcast called Now That Never Happened. <laughs> everything that you've said so far will be absolutely prime. Yes, no doubting the veracity of this particular rock and roll <laughs> legend. <laughs> what else happens? Dave goes to the gym and gets a personal trainer. Yes. But his personal trainer's gay. Oh. And uh, obviously, he propositions Dave. Um, mm. That's another story. Yeah. 
course. Watch your backs. Uh, well, I think he does a bit more than that. Oh, does he? I can't remember. Well, he gets his cock out and dangles it in front of his face while he's oh, does lying he? on the I floor, even, yes. I didn't even remember that bit, sorry. <laughs> that, there's, there's just so much gold in this book, it just it, it just washed right over <laughs> me, that. Mm. Right. My personal favourite passage from the book, he's still on that fresh fruit search motif yes so here's another deathless vignette (laughs) irritatingly the shop was closed but reopened at 7 p.m with an appalling schwarzenegger impersonation i posed hands on hips and said i'll be back Yeah, that's the closest Dave gets to being self-deprecating, mm. by the way. It's just Dissing sh- his own sh- sh- Waddy's reputation is just in ruins for me mm. after this. Oh, you wait. <laughs> Dave's hemorrhoid hell. Yes. He goes to the doctors, only to find that the wonderful NHS could do nothing for me, with no doctors sitting until the following Monday morning. So, after muttering some curmudgeonly un-PC comment, I hobbled off in search of a chemist. Uh, David later transpires, reads the Daily Telegraph. Right. Um, what his intro tape is the Dam Busters theme. Mm. In Perranporth, they're put up in a caravan next to some Eastern Europeans. Right. Dave picks up the story. There had been much media speculation in recent weeks about the growing number of asylum seekers being allowed entry into the country. And perhaps the government had enforced some new legislation that temporarily placed those seeking UK residency into empty caravans in the country's seaside resorts. But whether or not that was the case here, we figured it may not actually be a bad idea. The din became almost unbearable as glasses and bottles clinked together and then a CD of wailing gypsy-type music began blaring out through the open door. To cut a long story short, in the end, Shawadi Wadi have a ringside seat for a bare-knuckle boxing match between (laughs) two of these Eastern Europeans, one of whom is called Ivan, brackets, pronounced even. Um, so. <laughs> You're right. It, it's, it's so I'm sad. Right. There's some fucking great stories clearly here that there, and he's just not telling them. Mm. Well, you say that, <laughs> but here's something which may be of interest to the pop crazed youngsters. <gasps> for varying reasons, I've long had an intrinsic dislike for that vast majority of DJs <gasps> the band have so often had the dubious pleasure of working alongside. Ooh. Don't get me wrong. In my humble opinion, there have been many talented protagonists of the decks over the <laughs> protagonists years. Protagonists of the decks. <laughs> such as Emperor Roscoe, yeah. Tommy Vance, Kid Jensen, Ooh. and more latterly, Steve Lamack, who all <laughs> share, brackets, duh, a genuine appreciation for good music and consider their playlists to be infinitely more important than filling the airwaves with inane verbal diarrhoea. But those apart, 
In our eons of experience, we've shared stages with a whole multitude of egotistical dummies, <laughs> most of whom bear no responsibility whatsoever for the tunes blasting out from their mixing consoles and turntables. <laughs> One episode in, of my career, of which I'm not particularly proud, was back in 1978 when the band was invited to record a song with the high-profile Radio 1 DJs of the day. Ooh. The studio was littered with such names as Tony Blackburn, Dave Lee Travis, <laughs> Noel Edmonds, Diddy David Hamilton, Simon Bates. There was a face for radio if ever I saw one. Oh, he's what God made him, sir. And many more. But the session itself was, to put it mildly, an eye-opener, with the celeb DJs resembling a clan of hyenas released into the wild for the day as they bitched and henpecked from the word go. <laughs> Such was the unremitting nature of their jawing that at one point I was forced to rudely request that they pipe down and concentrate on the task in hand, which Ooh. was to deliver, in unison, a football-style chorus that provided the song's monotony hook and which would be dubbed over the backing track that five of our members had prepared a couple of days earlier the record new wave band by jock swan and the meters was made to mark the frequency change not the actual meters of, of radio one from 247 metres to 275 and 285 metres. <laughs> and despite receiving a fair amount of airplay, it was a mercy that the band's name remained anonymous as the <laughs> awful release justifiably sank without trace. Oh. Anyway, I won't spoil the ending of this book. Um, <laughs> they, they, they get sacked from the tour because Dave goes on stage with a novelty elephant head which belongs yes. to the camp, which is against mm. regulations. But needless to say, he has the, yeah, last, the last laugh. That is the ending, but trust me, nothing has been spoiled mm. here. Y you missed out the bit where um, one of Show Waddy Waddy shits himself in the van. Oh, God, yeah. When they're just yeah, outside yeah, yeah. a service station, but there's a traffic jam, and yeah, he uh, fills his drain pipes. Oh, <laughs> he needed his gutterings cleared <laughs> after that. But yeah, the uh, the book concludes on a happy note with Show Waddy Waddy's mm. retirement <laughs> and the mm. warm glow of Dave being able to report that one of his many named antagonists from earlier in the book was later arrested by Northamptonshire police for indecent exposure, which probably <laughs> served him right. Yeah. Uh, it's terrible. After all of this, I've kind of radically revised my opinion and now think that Schwaddy were a load of awful <laughs> shit who should never be seen or heard again. That's terrible. What are we going to do in future chart musics? In the light of all of this. The Boys of Summer by Dave Bartram. Published by <laughs> Phantom Books. F-A-N-T-O-M. <laughs> available in all good... Well... Mm, yeah, no, available yeah, on the mm, internet. <laughs> with a forward by Amanda Holden. <laughs> so, the following week, Dancing Party soared 24 places to number 17. That week's highest new entry.
And two weeks later, it would begin the first of two non-consecutive weeks at number four. The follow-up, a cover of the 1958 Dion and the Belmont single I Wonder Why, did even better, getting to number two in April of 1978. Held off the top spot by Matchstalk Men and Matchstalk Cats and Dogs by Brian and Michael, and the rest of their 1978 output, A Little Bit of Soap and Angel Eyes, both got to number five marking seven top five singles on the bounce the, the scales have fallen from my eyes they really have with the wads mm. i begin to think that perhaps neubauten were the better band on the night now now that i kind of think about <laughs> it well maybe not all right fair yeah well just wait until you read neubauten's book about their disastrous tour of the whole season circuit david <laughs> <laughs> Bl- blixer barveld yeah needless to say i had the last laugh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shorty Waddy, and that's their brand new single. Give me three other hits today. When I'm the moon of love, Saturday night. Very good. And now it's number one time because it's brand new. It's Abba and the name of the game. Pow! Surrounded by five girls, keeps doing that thing he's been doing all episode. Suddenly crouching down as if the camera's got a ray gun mounted on the top and jumping back just a little bit. He's a bit nervous. Would you say that's nerves or is it just him just being an unstoppable force of energy? Yeah, he, he doth leap too much, really, doesn't he? Definitely. Mm. I think he's definitely masking a kind of craven fear. Mm. Yeah, and he, of course he's not concentrating because he's actually got a low-grade Agnetta look-alike standing right next to yeah. him. Uh, <laughs> completely ignores her. Call yourself a professional. Fuck off, back to hospital radio. Uh, where mm. you belong. You've got to get stuck in, Peter. <laughs> yeah, oh, it, it's just the inanity. Inanity, though it's just virulent it's like a plague a one-man plague of inanity <laughs> you know you can imagine that you know if this has been untreated unvaccinated you know centuries ago there'd be you know, a pal in every village of some <laughs> geezer going around with a wagon ringing a bell shouting bring out your inane it's just <laughs> dreadful how did it ever tolerate it he then drills the kids on their knowledge of show waddy waddy hits and they all pass with distinction. <laughs> he then pivots to this week's number one, The Name of the Game by ABBA. It's the late 70s, so of course we're going to talk about ABBA again. This is the follow-up to Knowing Me, Knowing You, which got to number one for five weeks in April of this year, and, like practically everything else in this episode, is the lead-off cut from their forthcoming LP, ABBA The Album, which is due out in five weeks' time. It also features in their forthcoming drama doc, ABBA The Movie, which will also come out in December. It entered the chart at number 20 a fortnight ago, then soared 15 places to number 5. And this week, it's effortlessly knocked Yes Sir, I Can Boogie by Baccarat off the summit of Mount Pop. And here is the video. Mm. Oh, chaps, where do we start with this? I mean, hands up, cards on table, all the Danny Dyer cliches. I think this is their best single. I agree. It's a definite toss-up between this and knowing me, knowing you. David, usually 
an unfairly billed as an ABBA sceptic. You get in first. Okay, yeah, I mean, I do have this sort of reputation for regarding ABBA as kind of, I don't know, Formica Nazis or whatever. But it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's you know, it, 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 it's a bit more complicated than that. I, I was forced on occasion to play devil's advocate and it's kind of stuck mm. with me, which, you know, perhaps serves me right, really, for yeah. that kind so of... Serves you right for being a whore for television, David. Yeah, exactly. A, a, yeah, he has a whore of contrarianism, definitely, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, for, oh, and that appearance on that documentary, which I showed every six months, I think a million people watched it. How many pence did I get for my appearance? Zero. So no. Not like, at least I sold myself. I didn't even sell myself. I gave it away for nothing. Yeah. But, uh, there you hey, go. You got your name out, though, David. I did. I got some exposure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very useful, yeah. And the name was The Man Who Is Wrong About Abba. Yep. <laughs> yeah, just what a kind of up-and-coming 50-year-old journalist needs. Um, absolutely. <laughs> but, um, no, I, 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 I think this is really, really good, particularly the intro, which is just absolutely exquisite, crystalline. Yes. It's among... Possibly it's my favourite passage of ABBA music. Apparently it's inspired by um, I Wish, but with the kind of funk surgically Ooh. removed, which is which is absolutely fine. I mean, you know, that's yeah. ABBA's going to ABBA, and that's no problem with that. Also, I think this is the only... I, read some, I, I remember it was sampled by the Fugees. And yes. For that song they, in that, uh, the Muhammad Ali documentary, When We Were Kings, it's used at the end there. Yes, Rumble in the Jungle. That's right, Rumble in the Jungle, that's right. And apparently that's the only time ABBA had been sampled. I know, I that's mental. Yeah, I found that absolutely extraordinary. I don't know whether it's like, you know, the rates they charge or whatever. I mean, in a mm. sense, people like Simple Minds, I'd say on New Gold Dream, in a sense, well, they, I don't know, they, they don't sample ABBA, but they kind of echo ABBA in all kinds of ways. Whatever. Tell you what, any old school hip hoppers could do worse than listening to uh, Hey Hey Helen. It's a very mm. nice run DMC type beat in that. Just mm. go in spare. Okay, yeah. yeah. As for the video and everything like that, I mean, I suppose it's become a sort of almost like a French and Saunders type cliche, you know, the way that they kind of all hmm. kind of interact. It's a usual ABBA video, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, they're all sitting around, they're all flirting with each other and then feeling a bit sad. But, yeah, you know, that's fine. It's ABBA. Yeah, it looks like they're contemplating a possible bit of a swing, you know. Um, mm. You know, sort of Frieda and Bjorn, Benny and Bjorn and Frieda and Agnes or whatever, you know, whatever combination. But, uh, yeah. you know, there's there's an air of that. I think the one yeah. thing that, that, that perhaps was educative about this track for me was that um, I learnt finally the meaning of the word bashful. Because right. I'd always understood the word bashful to mean like, you know, like the Bash Street kids, you know, somebody yes. was like, you know, bash them up, you know. And I think I'm really into them. I'm a bashful child. Oh, okay, fair enough. You know, because I used to, you know, you hear my mum or whoever saying, you know, use the word bashful. That Isaac, he's very bashful. I says, no, he isn't. I'd batter yeah. him. You know, yeah. he's not bashful. Not need little get. He's not bashful. <laughs> I'm bashful. I'm more bashful than he is. You know, so yeah. I mean, you know, so, so it was helpful to me in that respect, definitely. Yeah. So you th- you thought you initially thought Frida was saying, you know, she puts herself about. Well, I mean, I think I realised then. She, you know, she's game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think I kind of realised that uh, I've got it wrong. That's <laughs> not the first time I got it wrong about Abba, but um... in this case, they're having a nice game of Flashbell, which is mm. the Swedish version of the German Mensch Ager dich nicht, which is roughly translated to. Don't get angry, man. <laughs> yeah, it's nice that we do actually learn the name of the game. Mm. Um, mm. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a Swedish board game where everybody wins and then you all have sex and then kill yourself. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Fun for all the family. Yeah. I mean, out of all the 70s games that they could have played, man, it's a bit disappointing. Yeah. I mean, Mousetrap was going on. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, but it's they don't they don't need it. They, yeah. they, they've reached no. a state of Nordic calm. Mm. They don't yeah. they don't need all this stuff flashing in front of their eyes. Mm. It's <laughs> but it's fascinating how many ABBA videos are just film of some adults sitting around hanging yes. out, you know, mm. looking yeah. relaxed or tense. You know, there's like mm. a bowl of fruit on the table. It's a little bit chilly, but you're all in knitwear. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, some conversation and a quick round of fjord spell. You know, checkered yeah. curtains, pale light, no telly. It's mm. Nordic yeah. Blanc, really, isn't it? It's, uh, you know. It's reminiscent of a caravan holiday in the rain, isn't it, where everyone's stuck inside playing pontoon with matchsticks? Mm. Yes, it mm. is, except with a standard of living high enough that, that you're not too worried about it, you know. Well, that might well be a caravan that they're in, but a really massive one. Because <laughs> they've got a better standard of living than us. Mm. Mm. And they don't go to Chapel St. Leonard's or Mablethorpe. <laughs> well, this, I mean, this video is it's sort of in the vein. Of the Know Me, Knowing You video. Except except if that one really is Ingmar Bergman, this one is like an episode of Doctors. Mm. It's you <laughs> yes. know, a bit less intense mm. and a bit less yeah. carefully put together. But, you know, I'm surprised to hear that you think this is their best single. I mean, I really love it, but I'd put a few ahead yeah. of this. I'd say Dancing mm-hmm. Queen, Know Me, Knowing You, yeah. SOS, oh, yeah. Winner Takes It yeah. All. Possibly Mamma Mia. There's no consensus yeah. opinion on the greatest ABBA single. It's, it's personal, isn't it? Mm. And for me, this is it. If you mm. were an ABBA single in that company, you'd be pleased to finish sixth. Yes. <laughs> like Arsenal. You know. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Hurtful. Hurtful. Just outside the Champions Hurtful. League of uh, ABBA singles. Yeah. <laughs> but it is amazing. Mm. Whenever you see footage of ABBA in an house as we did then, you're just looking around going, oh, what have they got that we haven't? Mm. And I'm always reminded of the publicity shot that I saw that was taken around this time where they're kind of like sat at a breakfast bar and on the table they've, they've got a holder for crisp breads, which did my fucking head in when I first saw <laughs> it. It was like a kitchen roll holder, but stubbier and with a wider base. Mm. And I asked around and someone said, yeah, it's a crisp bread holder. <laughs> You know, for for certain massive crisp breads with big holes in the middle. Yeah, for the brot. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah because even then, at the age of nine, it, I was quite a continental lad. And every time I went out to the co-op in Bullwell with my mum, I used to mither her for things like crisp breads. Yeah, you yeah. know, Not mm. not because I like them, but they seem massively exotic and the and the sort of thing that a go-ahead household should have in their yeah, cupboard. Yeah. Even when she caved in and uh, we got some, you know, I'd only have a couple of them with an entire triangle of dairy on them before they got long. But <laughs> that wasn't the point. Mm. The point wasn't to eat them. The point was to have them in your house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of like a bottle of Perrier in your fridge a few years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah in your completely spotless kitchen with hardly anything in it. Mm. Oh, I just remember my, my poor old mum in the 70s. She used to go on these occasional diets, and it consists of a no. bit of crisp bread and a huge lump of cheese. <laughs> uh, cottage? Say, no, 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 just regular cheese. Oh, that's cheese. where she went wrong, Exactly, then. yeah, yeah. Never worked, but, uh, yeah. I mean, the poor, in these videos, they always seem to be very much downplaying, you know, it's not like kind of lifestyles to envy or anything like that. Mm. They always look like, you know, there's a national pub strike and they're just trying to find something to do with themselves, you know. No, but beer's so expensive in Scandinavia, Yeah, that's it? true, yeah. Apart from Denmark. Yeah. So it's like they can't go to the pub. Yeah, yeah, because it's too expensive even for ABBA, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it's always like Benny never gets his round in. No. Yeah. 
No. I mean, the other great thing about this video and the single, to my mind, is that it it gives Frida a fair go Mm. because she was always pushed to the back in this country. Mm. You know, I never forgave Not the Nine O'Clock News for having her portrayed as Griffrey's Jones in that video for Super Duper. And the lyric, one of us is ugly, one of us is cute, Uh, one of us he'd like to see in her birthday suit. And fuck that, Frida's (sighs) men. I mean, in this video, Agnetta looks a bit like Bette Lynch about to go out on a picnic with Mike Baldwin (laughs) by a canal lock. But Frida, she gets the best line, tell me please, because I have to know I'm a bashful child beginning to grow. Mm. And it's obvious in the footage that Frida's got an absolutely filthy laugh, man. I I love to see that in a woman. Mm. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, well, the dynamic of it was always that Benny and Frida were like the rockers. You know, they were the mm. ones that you'd go out and, you know, you'd go out to some bar and you, you'd crawl back at two in the morning, you know. Whereas Bjorn and Anya <laughs> are very sort of, a little bit more sort of weird and neurotic and more mm. like the, you know, raising the family and uh, yeah. if you're mm. into that sort of thing. But people couldn't get past the fact that one of these women looked like the ideal of Swedish beauty. Um, yeah. And the other one didn't because she's not Swedish. She's no. uh, half Norwegian. I think the politest way to put it is half Norwegian, um, all things considered. Yes. Um, mm. But yeah, it's, yeah, I know she does. She does get a rough deal. There's some clips where Frida looks amazing, and there's other clips where she kind of doesn't because she would chop and change her look a lot. Mm. I sort of know someone. This is how bad it's got, right? I sort of know someone who's in an ABBA tribute band. Right. And I've seen pictures of them, and both the women are done out like Agnetta. <laughs> and that ain't fucking nah. right. Oh, man. no, no, that's true. Yeah. I'd say some, yeah. but I don't feel I know the person in question well enough to, to, to just put them right mm. on it. I mean, it's a bit rich people having to go at freedom and looks when you look at fucking Bjorn and Benny, I mean, you know, even as a kid, yes. I had a Joe Jackson-style grudge against this pair of little kind of shaved gorillas, you know, <laughs> punching well above their weight. But this song's fucking amazing, isn't yeah. it? It's yeah. like all their songs from this period. Like, the more you sort of dig into it, the more interesting it is as well. Like, the link between the music and the lyrics is really odd here. Like, the lyric is really uh, hesitant and helpless. And the music matches that. It's very sort of anxious until she starts singing about this bloke lifting her out of her rut and it rises up Mm. hopefully you know reaching out but then the chorus spills over into this creepy strident victory march uh Mm. with that triumphant trumpet which i suppose allowed people who didn't really listen to assume that this was more bright pink candy floss you know from cheery old abba uh bopping Mm. around in their comedy platform boots to no great effect rather than what it is which is an uneasy song about someone with no confidence surrendering to a love affair and it's accompanying terrifying loss of self-determination and putting themselves Mm. in a position of complete vulnerability to their more confident and experienced lover about whom we learn nothing so it's neither a happy song nor a sad song nor a cheerful or a bleak scenario it's all of those because the song takes place Mm. at a moment when literally anything could happen next but that ambiguity and that sort of that focus on specifically adult anxieties 
and neuroses is what defines this whole period of ABBA, this mid-period of ABBA between the pure pop years and that final sort of Liv Ullman period where, mm. you know, when they tried to sound like ABBA, they'd end up sounding like ghosts. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, and I think that's particularly, um, you know, that, very, that opening, that very hesitant, very brittle opening. And I think it kind of wonderfully... Um, yeah, captures the you know the character and the sentiment of the, of the song and the kind of that delicate mood you know and it's it's um, yeah, it's excellent. I mean, I went overboard on this when we uh, covered knowing me, knowing you in the Christmas episode mm. a couple of years mm. ago. Obviously, not we didn't cover it. That might not have sounded quite as glorious. <laughs> but it's, but this middle period is when they were at their most remarkable because they could still combine that relentless angst and uncertainty with worldwide number one singles you know yeah i mean there's a clip of them playing this song name of the game on some tv show somewhere and they're still in the white judo suits and the white micro kimonos and Mm. there's all these colorful (laughs) balloons being blown around in the background and everything's virginal white, like a, a sixth birthday party, you know. And it's all massively overlit. And it's because that's how you present the bubbly, wholesome family act, ABBA, you know, as yeah. opposed to how they were presenting themselves around this time, most mm. of the time, mm. on record sleeves and in videos, which was all uncertain glances and, yeah. and cold skies, but nobody noticed. So, yeah, once again, a completely worthy number mm. one. And what a fucking one-two punch, eh? This and knowing me, knowing well, you. Well, yeah, it's, a, it's a, a volley of blows around this point. Mm. So it's like a Street Fighter Two combination, ABBA, in 1977. <laughs> it certainly is. So the name of the game would spend four weeks at number one, eventually usurped by the long winter of Mulligan Tire by Wings. Amazingly, the UK was the only country in the world that rightfully sent it to number one. Even in Sweden, it only got to number two, held off Music Fjall, that's Pop Mountain, by Yes Sir, I Can Booge, which was number one in Sweden for 22 weeks. (laughs) Eventually knocked off number one in January of 1978 by... Uh, naughty 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 by Joy Sarney <laughs> I remember Elvis oh, Presley God. by Danny Mirror <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> fuck it up news travelled slow in Sweden <laughs> in 1977 <laughs> bloody hell Abba only had three number one singles in their own country don't you know Ring Ring, Dancing Queen Summer Night Sitter but two of their early LPs were number one in their charts before they split the singles in the LP charts in 1975. Mm. As the bloke from Alan Duell said to me, a prophet is not without honour, save in his own country. The following month, there were so many advance orders for ABBA the album in the UK that our printing presses couldn't cope and we had to wait a month after everyone else, by which time it had sold so many copies in Poland that it exhausted their entire album allocation of foreign currency fucking hell <laughs> the follow-up take a chance on me got to number one for three weeks in february of 1978 and as we've already mentioned in 1997 the name of the game was sampled by the fujis for rumble in the jungle which got to number three in march of that month but anyway fuck the fujis abba they're back mm. sort of mm. 
What do we think, chaps? What are we saying? I mean, I'm, I'm really not keen, and that's not out of any sort of anti-ABBA thing. Uh-huh. One of the great things about ABBA is that they kind of let it lie and that they'd left it pristine. No. I don't really like any revival. It's like when My, My Blue Valentine came back, I didn't really care for it. Um, well, the Pixies, you know, it's not even determined by people who I like or not, but I just think in their case, it's a wonderful thing. They've just absolutely let it lie. But they mm. would not let it lie. Yeah, but well, at least they're not doing caravan poles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the support act is going to be the Smiths. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Taylor. Well, I mean, it it sounds exactly like you would imagine the next ABBA album would have sounded if they'd made Mm. one in 1983 instead of splitting up. Except if they had made one, it probably wouldn't have sounded quite so retro or quite so (laughs) 1983. But I think it's quite pleasing just because, like most people, I was worried about what, was going to come out you know i was sort of vaguely mm. expecting something like chess but worse you mm. know boggle maybe yes. um, <laughs> but it's not that so good but what creeps me out is those computerized artificially de-aged avatars that they're mm. using mm. for the live show avatars if well they're will. sort yeah they're sort of great and sort of horrifying on so many levels mm. because i mean they're unnerving in themselves but also the combination of of ABBA being presented in this kind of holographic, uh, necromantic kind of way, coupled with mm. the the inescapable existential darkness in so mm. much of their music not yeah, not that's... King Kong song obviously, but a lot of it, <laughs> um, and then the nostalgia element for people who are now at the end of their lives or at least approaching yeah. that stage, which is the case for pretty much everyone who remembers ABBA. Mm. Um, you mm. put it all together and it's it's quite a death-packed experience, you know. Like, mm. I mean, more than watching the Stones shuffling around, you know, like old pit ponies having a <laughs> laugh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> looking like crows. I mean, that's one thing. But, <laughs> but watching the videos of these old crocs from ABBA having their stage movements mapped and motion-captured yeah. onto these virtual PS5 versions of their younger and more beautiful selves i don't think you're supposed to find it depressing or unsettling but i think Mm. almost anyone with a realistic view of life probably would and it sort of works because their best work is about this jumble of emotions and and moods but it's just that idea of of robot communion you know, I find it a bit... It's like, imagine this is a real gig and we're all young together again. Mm, you know, yeah. I, I don't look at that and and only see blue skies. But obviously, when... Like, I went on YouTube and I looked at all the stuff they'd put up for the reunion, all the sort of one-show-like celebratory interviews with them and mm. members of the... They just, you know... In fact, it's far bleaker than that because obviously it's all framed a hundred percent as a it's a lark for the oldens and it's a yeah. camp and office party and you know hen night and all this stuff and that's all it mm. is right and of course you listen to I still have faith in you their new song it's it's not like any of that at all right there's no. absolutely none of that in it all of that bubblicious sort of ultra commercial you know hey it's really cheesy stuff Mm. contrasts incredibly sharply with that song and this song you know and and yet face and manner you know too good for this Mm. world but also too weak 
Um, <laughs> yeah. It's very weird. I'd still like a beer with Benny, though, even now. Yeah. I, t- I told you about that waiter at his hotel who, who was impressing right. upon me what a great bloke he was. I can yes. really believe it. Laid back, but impatient with bullshit, you know. Mm. And he's still the same. And he hasn't gone any bolder, despite apparently having a comb over since 1975 you know yeah but you know these are the thoughts you think when you become the kind of person who sees old clips of john noakes on blue peter and thinks blimey doesn't he look young Mm. (laughs) you know that's us abba's audience fucking hell may god have mercy on our soul yeah it's funny actually um listening to taylor talk about the um yeah, the, the, these gigs. It's it's actually filled me now with a sort of eerie, grim fascination. I think I what perhaps would like to see it for about ten minutes. Um, you know, yeah. that ten minutes is all I could bear, really, because um, you do wonder if it is some sort of harbinger for the future. Yeah, yeah there's one thing. You know, I was talking about people coming back. I make an exception for Kraftwerk, whatever, because I yeah. think that if you look at their in, in their seventies heyday, I think they were always keen to create this total work of art, this Gesamtkunstwerk. And there just wasn't the wherewithal to do it, you know. So you've got these kind of no. crappy brown sort of stage curtains behind them as they're playing, things like that. And I think that <laughs> they, the justification for, for Kraftwerk doing what they're doing is they can present this kind of fully-fledged digital gazamkonfit with all the kind of graphics, et cetera, et cetera, which is what they would have loved to have done if they'd have been able to back then, you know, if, it's, if the technology had been up to speed with the, with the music. But, yeah, I can just imagine, though, that, like once the Ralph Hutter goes, that you know, I can imagine Kraftwerk carrying on as a touring proposition, uh, yes. with just sort of like you know, four four chaps, you know, um, you know, mm. and, and you know, perhaps if there is a future, or if anybody cares, you know, that somebody will perhaps sort of do a replication of like the Beatles or something like that, you know, sort of using oh God, yeah. holographic, you know, sort of skewed together things, you know. Um, so yeah, I mean, this could be the harbinger of like what's to come. That's upper always were. Well, that's right. I hope this episode hasn't been too much like Last of the Summer Wine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, strong resemblance, I'm sure. Well, yeah. I'm kind of in the middle between you two because as soon as lockdown kicked in, I, I completely bunkered myself in. Mm. And you know me, I'm not exactly a, a, a boy about town, but, you know, I, I used to run into the same people over and over again. And I started mithering about the people who I used to see who didn't particularly know and, and just fretting about them, hoping that they were doing all right. I mean, in particular, there's one old woman who used to just absolutely hammer it up and down the hills of Nottingham with a shopping trolley in a floppy hat with all flowers on it, her, not the trolley. Mm. I think we'd exchanged about two words to each other uh, all the time I've been here. But we were on nodding terms, and, you know, I hadn't seen her for ages. And about six months ago, I was in Tesco in town, and I just turned the corner, and there she was. And I just couldn't stop myself from punching the air and going, fucking yes! Yeah. I was so delighted. It's like, yes, you're still here, Duck. Well done. And that's exactly how I felt when I watched this ABBA reunion shit after I'd sat through all this Zoe Ball bollocks. Mm. But when they actually got to the music and I heard Frida and Agnetta's voices melding together again, it was like, yes, they're still here. Fucking brilliant. Good on them. I've got Mm -hmm. no interest in in going to to see Robo ABBA. Mm. But... You know, I've had a bit of a thought. About this, all this is it's going on near you, isn't it? Apparently. Oh, you mean London, generally? Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I suppose so, yeah. yeah. East London. Well, you know, 
Mm. Why don't you get your heads together mm. and put together a Brotherhood of Man puppet show as a fringe event <laughs> for people queuing up? <laughs> your two could do that, and I'm only going to take 20% of it's all fine, your own. Yeah. So how's about Let's that? Just sort of like tug a little bit of string for the kind of kick on kisses for me. Yes, tug the performative fall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. See, wow. what, what I'm going to do now, I'm going to be very clever and turn up there with a Guys and Dolls puppet theatre and I oh. owe you nothing. Oh. <laughs> oh, David Van Day's Abba. Yes. <laughs> yes. Beginning to grow And make me talk And you make me done it again the name of the game from ABBA and that's it from all of us here to all of you back home good night god bless and join us next week for another edition of Top of the Bops I saw her today I saw her face it was a face I loved Pow! Alone once more informs us that ABBA have done it again before telling us that everyone in the studio tonight wants us, the pop-crazed youngsters at home, to be blessed by God Almighty. Before saying goodnight and leaving us with needles and pins by Smoker. We covered Smoker and this fucking single in chart music number 23. As before, it's the follow-up to It's Your Life, which got to number 5 in August of this year, and is a cover of the Searchers song that got to number 1 in February of 1964. After making an appearance on Top of the Pops before it was even in the chart, it made a modest debut at number 48, then soared 26 places to number 22. And this week, it's up four places from number 17 to number 13. Now then, chaps, me and Taylor, we've already done this, and David, this band are practically your lot, so Mm. you say something about them, and we'll sit here and learn something. Oh, smoky. I mean... Yeah, I was brought up in West Yorkshire, and so I ought to have some sort of sense of affinity and kinship and loyalty to Smokey. Mm. But I didn't. I hated Smokey because I, ha- oh, hated, I hated West Yorkshire. I hate the fact that I lived there. I was- you hated yourself, didn't you, David? Well, no, I liked myself. I was all right. It was all these all other right. northern bastards I hated, you know, with their coarse <laughs> accents and what have you. you know? And there was just something about yeah. West Yorkshire at this time. I mean, all right, I'm not necessarily very proud of feeling this way but um i just thought it was like willfully ugly you know it wasn't like you know there was just the grim lot of these working folk it was that they actually liked this kind of mediocrity this ugliness this churlishness and mm. i just thought the whole place was toxic it was like a david peace novel or it's like drinking out of a coal scuttle and you know <laughs> a used one you know as well. and, you know and this place yorkshire was not where i belonged and smoky for me they were just essence of west yorkshire and if they'd been called Heckman Dwight, they couldn't be more West Yorkshire. <laughs> you know, and it just, just redolent, yeah. like grim, freezing days in what was laughingly called playtime at our school. You know, this school <laughs> looked like Colditz. You know, he's standing around in a freezing circle. Everyone's hawking up and spitting into a collective puddle and swapping stories about all the sex they'd supposedly had, even though they were only about 13. And I was <laughs> stupid enough to believe them, you know. My oh, virginity David. was a secret shame, you know. And, but just smoky, it was like, who would want this? 
this? Whose pop dreams are made of this? The Germans, mm. apparently, but I don't know. Yeah. And also, Smokey had been the name of my cat, so the reminder that my cat was dead. Oh. Thanks for that as well. Um, <laughs> but, but, and, also, and then one of the like, respites I had, you know, so at the weekend, so there's my granddad, Seven Days Jankers, but mm. Grandma, his, his wife, she, she was hip. She was a, she'd been a flapper. She was the hippest member of my family. She'd been a flapper mm. in the 20s. She had a radiogram. I probably mentioned this before. And yes. it was a whole stack of records, but one of them was Needles and Pins by the Searchers. And Lord. it gave me a kind of sort of silvery, slightly kind of nostalgic spite for kind of other places, other modes of being or whatever. Manchester. And then these fucking cunts, Smokey, get their fucking grubby northern West Yorkshire paws on it and desecrate that as well. You know, it's the absolute final straw. Yeah, they are the bird's eye beef burger of pop. Yeah, smoke Yeah. So, David, what you're saying is, if someone had said to you, "Do you like Smokey?" you'd have said, "No." (laughs) (laughs) Just, just about, just about. Yeah, yeah. And you know, really, to be honest, that's I. I don't want to waste further breath on them. Oh. Terrible, despicable, awful. But you know, yeah. perhaps, perhaps that was me as well. You know, in some respects. But yeah. I, I found it hard to divine the beauty in them that others did. Did they? We don't get to see them here in their Steve Marriott on stars in their eyes demeanour. We get some kind of weird rainbow-edged pool of oil effect. Yeah, rather than the usual uh, credit sequence with a sort of drunken fly point of yeah. view. It's yeah, it's these wobbly pulsating coloured lines mm. just to you know express the the psychedelic intensity of of smoky yeah <laughs> it's like the kind of thing that mario would fall into on rainbow road yeah <laughs> on the last bit of mario car mm. but i mean we we talked for, for like 20 minutes about needles yeah. and pins by smoky last yeah. time i mean i could say it all again 19 mm. minutes mm. too much for them yeah no, <laughs> you know, let's not do that I came across uh, a video on YouTube uh, the other week, Punch on the Road. Mm -hmm. Have you seen it, chaps? Oh, Oh, yes. An amazing BBC documentary Mm. from 1976 Mm. about a a band doing the grim slog of Will Tappers and Shunter's Land. And it's it's very clear that being smoky is the absolute pinnacle Mm. of this band's ambitions, isn't it? Definitely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's, It's the only conceivable ambition for a yeah. band like this who want to be pop stars because nobody else has ever followed that path mm. no it's not just oh yeah we're playing the clubs man it's like well look first of all this is a documentary of impeccable bleakness in mm. every respect because mm. it's shot on that murky public information film 16 millimeter film yes. with speckles on it mm. you know on yeah. days with mm. no sunlight do you know where your lad is tonight yeah he's, he's playing the red rose club in wakefield yes. um, it's these absolute chances i mean they're a show band mm. they're like this basically they're like the sort of group that i used to see at my dad's works uh sports and social club on a saturday yes. night that's what lower middle class people used to call a working men's club mm-hmm. <laughs> it's basically a working men's club with a bowling green out the front um mm. It's like when you used to buy a Rolls Royce and in the manual that came with the car, the cigarette lighter was referred to as a cigar lighter. Yes. Uh, absolutely true. Uh, yeah, it, cha- it changes your perceptions a lot, what we call things. Mm. Should have seen what it was called in the manual to the VW camper van. <laughs> 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 hey. But um, 
what that's what they are they're like the first group i ever saw live who were called distinction and they had uh, uh, matching flared, pl- powder blue suits and fender guitars these groups always played fender guitars for some reason and they mm. had you know cover they did covers of the eye of the tiger and <laughs> when you get caught between the moon and new york city you know and and at some point they'd say well, uh, Arthur's theme nah. the best that you can do no oh. yeah, by crisscross before he uh, <laughs> yeah. before he sold out and did uh, <laughs> yes jump <laughs> yeah. so he used to wear he used to wear his suit backwards <laughs> yes. he also had his beard backwards as well yes. on the back of his head um so distinction would do all those songs and then at some point they'd say Anyway, if you don't mind, uh, we'd like to do one now that we wrote ourselves. Yeah. And they'd put oh. more passion into that than of all of their others. So despite the fact that it was the worst song in their yeah. set. Um, mm-hmm. And Punch are exactly like that. They're all about 32, uh, but they look older than I do now. Yes. And they're all married. Uh, yeah. And yet seized by this bizarre conviction that they might actually make it big you know mm. in 1976 I, I ask you the worst possible moment um, yeah. this is it you know like <laughs> this one that's 30 married with four children and this is like yeah. you can't be doing this man this is ridiculous you know did you have a yeah. family meeting about this you know we don't hear what the kind of you know the poor wives think of this you know oh they don't have a say mate no it, it's absolutely shocking uh, as long as he puts money on that table at end of week mm. Mm. <laughs> the whole vibe was like that Paul Sykes documentary you know the boxer does the whole thing yes. that, that's grim yeah. you know these working men and it's this terrible sad thing you know these Poor sods, these drinkers sitting there watching this stuff. It's almost like a kind oh, of... Oh, with arms folded. Hmm. It's the opening shot, isn't it? You see the lead singer's massive meaty head yeah, yeah. in some flared white sub-Elvis costume, mm. really trying to please an audience that are unpleasable. And you get a shot from the back of the hall, well, from, from the back of the club. There's the band all togged out, looking extremely 1972, mm. and they're just seeing a row of folded arms. Absolutely, yeah. You know, they get blokes coming up to them and saying, oh, you don't, you don't applaud me when I come out of the pit, so I'm not applauding you. Mm. <laughs> and they say right at the beginning, you know, uh, hello to everyone over there, yeah. Oh, and yeah. everyone well, over there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you sit back and watch us work for you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, it's the idea of musicianship as graft. Mm. Yeah, and yeah. that's what you get off Smoker, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And obviously people sort of talk about you know, these audiences kind of being implacable or whatever, but I also read it as a sense of just collective class, low self-esteem, and that this kind of entertainment is all we deserve. Um, yes. You know, it's it's really, really sad. I mean, when, when Michael Rother and Klaus Dinger were in Dusseldorf in 1971 or whatever, 72, and, you know, they were thinking about forming Noi. I mean, their primary concern is, what can we do, distinction, what can we do that is actually distinctive from, you know, the conventional Anglo-American tropes and format, et cetera, et cetera? What, can, what sound can we devise that is yeah. generally original and therefore gives us, you know, a particular edge? And with this lot, it's just a sort of, we play our cards right, our names could be up in lights. And you know, yes. it's, it's just that. And it's just, it's horrible. Yeah, they spend their whole life inside a brown transit van <laughs> yeah. full of heavy denim mm. and mm. wire-frame spectacles and sort of flossy, over-the-ear, not-quite-greying-yet hair mm. just for the privilege of 
play in a workingman's club in Sunderland. Yeah, and there's like yeah, twenty glared at twenty people there. Yeah, yeah, it's sat behind the four mica tables and tin ashtrays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with, with their massive arms folded. Yeah, yes. while the while punch do morning of my life by the Bee Gees, <laughs> and then have a possibly staged argument in the dressing room. Yes. Uh, before the uh, chairman of the committee comes oh, around yes. and gives them their pay, which is 43 quid in yeah. one pound notes. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, even back then it didn't stretch very far, didn't that? Uh, well, they earned about five pound more than they did in the factory. Hmm. So they were up. Mm. Yeah. But not that long ago was a time when you could actually make a living as a musician without being famous. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And if you wanted to, you could live that life and cover your ass, yeah. pay for your kids' Leeds United tracksuit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not that it seems to have uh, made them particularly cheerful. I mean, no. there's all those interview clips with them, and they just moan about how miserable their lives are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, clip. the first thing they do when they drive up is look where the loading is. Mm. Yeah, and there's yeah. this there's this massive oh that goes up inside the van when they realise they've got to go up some fucking steps mm. with yeah. their amps. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Some bands mm. nowadays have to fucking pay to to play venues like yeah. that. Well, the, those venues don't exist anymore. Mm. They're not getting. They're, they're not getting forty quid now. I was going to say forty three quid. That's that's yeah forty three twenty twenty one quid. Um, yeah, yeah mm. it's hard to come by. Definitely. Yeah. Another thing is that it's from an era though. If and when all of this goes tits up, they can go back very confidently into the jobs market. You know, there isn't that kind. You know, into probably yeah. very secure and decent jobs. You know, and they can probably. You know, they probably felt secure enough in a sense to be able to abandon all of their. The jobs that they were doing, uh, yes. you know, there's no doesn't appear to be any kind of terror that you know that they once they embark on this, then there's going to be no way back for them into the um, you know into yeah. the workforce. Be a bit of disparaging banter over the lathe when they came back. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. Oh, here they come, Jimmy fucking Hendrix. <laughs> yeah, and that's about it, really. But this all all. In the same way that, that Punch go on about how miserable their life is, the only other thing they talk about is how hard they work for such little money, mm. which yeah. does appear to be true. But, yeah, mm. it makes sense because that's what their music's like. It's very yeah. professional and hardworking hard and, and horrible and mm. wearing. It's like listening to them. He's like a seven-hour drive on the M1 mm. sat on <laughs> yeah. a speaker cabinet. You know. Yeah. But it's what makes you feel so bad all the way through is that it's not enough for them. They do want to be pop stars. Yeah. And, but they are this very weird and nowadays unthinkable cross between rock and roll and cheap cabaret. Um, mm. And that never made it. That no. never, ever made it. These groups in their beer-soaked bar towel world, you know, like playing gigs to adults, <laughs> to yeah. married adults, you know, yeah. and mm. reading up bits of paper passed up to the stage, you know, like, so, well, the driver of an Austin Maxi registration yeah. number, you know, please yeah. move can, your car. Can you do Rolling Round River? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or last order's half past ten, you know, except wearing jeans, yeah. that's all it yeah. is. And talking about being pop stars, constantly, as if they're treading this this familiar path to rock and roll glory you know they do an audition for opportunity knocks at one point which was the route for bands like that well to release one single yeah Yeah. and get on teller and get more bookings yeah yeah i suppose suppose. and chaps wouldn't you know what song they do did you notice no so you think you know how to love me 
by Smoker. Oh. I, I watched it the other night for about the third time. And it just hit me. It's just like, hang on, I know that song. What do you know? Smoke Air. Of course. Mm. Of course. Oh, That's their yeah. presentation to the world. They're just trying to drop you a hint of, like, no, no, we're not. Like, just this bunch of old men in a band like you've never seen before. There, no. is, there is a precedent. Don't worry. Yeah, there's a heritage. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Got a world with two Smokies in it. Ooh. Like a world with six DLTs in it. <laughs> but this is it. Their only possible inspiration is Smokey. Yeah. You know? yeah. You have to blame Smokey for this. You do. I was just going to say, it's a, it, it's a, just a massive indictment of Smokey and their rubbishness that encourages poor, sorry, saps like this that they could make it. It doesn't seem such an unreasonable proposition if mm. arseholes like Smokey can. Yeah, giving them false hope with their yeah. wasted yeah. work ethic. You know, yeah, yeah. Perfect, really, you can't even watch it and take the piss out of them. You just think, yeah, you poor sods. I don't even think these will have been the best days of their lives. You know, mm. or, or if they were, God help them. You know, yeah. and I would imagine that at least one or two of Punch are very dead now because mm. that's how it goes. But if any of them aren't, I hope they can laugh about it. Rather yeah. than, you know, rather than telling themselves those stupid stories that 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 people invent for themselves after defeats, you know, mm. no, shake it off, embrace the cosmic joke, you know, yeah. you'll feel much worse and much better. The footage of the opportunity in Oxford audition, though, fucking hell, <laughs> it's yeah. worth watching just to see what the uh, the talent spotters on Opportunity Knox in nineteen seventy five stroke six look like. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a camp old man and a, a randy, bibulous old lady. Mm. It's exactly what you'd expect. Yes. <laughs> I mean, look, what what really sums up Punch is that one of them is called Malcolm Jagger. Yes. <laughs> I, I couldn't be any more perfect than that. His real name was Ziggy Jagger. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anything else to say about Smokey? Obviously not, because we've talked about another band entirely for the past quarter of an hour. Yeah. So I'll just say that the following week, Needles and Pins moved up three places to number 10, its highest position. The follow-up, for a few dollars more, would get to number 17 in February of 1978, and they'd have one more top 10 hit that year before diminishing returns set in, and they split up in 1982. And although Punch did appear on Opportunity Knocks in November of 1976, there is no further record of them, and we have to conclude that they failed in their attempt to be smoker. Mm. We should get them to do a, a comeback gig supported by Renia. Yes, yes, on the Scene All That Glitters programme. Yeah, animatronic holograms of Punch. The Renia documentary is fascinating because it, it was it was basically telling kids, you know, all being a band, but it's not going to be all glamour and getting noshed off by Britt Eklund. <laughs> Have you seen the follow up to that? Yeah, yeah, and they they they've split up. <laughs> Yes. They interview them and they go, oh, it was all shit. The thing was, even at their lowest point, Renia seemed to be having a better life than somebody who was working in a bike factory or something. For prog bands, there was the university and polytechnic circuit. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. For egg and chippers like Punch, <laughs> you know, there were the working men's club, but you, you could play music and be paid for it. Yeah. As long as you were happy to sit in a van for hours on end. Well, you know, and it, of course, music was more of a scarce resource back then. Yes. 
the, my, one of the things I loved the most about that documentary was the knowledge that just about 18 months later, uh, the fall were playing those places. Like, yeah. just perversely choosing to play those places instead of rock clubs. Mm. You know, going out there doing Roush Rumble, <laughs> No Christmas <laughs> for John Keys, mm. as heard on the LP Total's Turns, where, mm. in fact, Marky Smith does actually have to read out a bit of paper that says, Last Orders Half Past Ten. Um, <laughs> one of the yeah. great live albums. And that, Pop Craze Youngsters, closes the book on this episode of Top of the Pops. What's on the telly afterwards? Well, BBC One kicks on with the first ever episode of a brand new sitcom, or should that be sitcommunism, (laughs) Citizen Smith? Then James Bolam gets involved in 1920s wheeling and dealing in Gallowsfield in When the Boat Comes In. After the nine o'clock news, Frank Cannon discovers a Chinese hatchet embedded into a snowman in the middle of the desert in Cannon. Then Omnibus covers the history of the BBC Radio Features Department, followed by an examination of child pornography in Tonight. Then it's the weather, then regional news in your area, and they close down at midnight. BBC Two is midway through the current affairs show Newsday, following it up with Chronicle, the long-running archaeology series, which pisses off to the Andes this week to take a good look at the Nazca lines. That's followed by the 1955 version of Guys and Dolls, where David Van Day, played by Marlon Brando, (laughs) bets Dominic Grant, portrayed by Frank Sinatra, that he'll be playing gigs in care homes in 40 years' time. (laughs) They round off the night with late news on two, and they close down at 25 to midnight. Oh, 1977. You just could not get away from the NASCAR lines. No. ITV eventually gets round to K is for Kill, the latest episode of the new Avengers, where John Steed, Shaking Emma Peel and Coffee Wanker have been transported to war-torn France in World War II. Then it's Odd Man Out, the sitcom where John Inman inherits a stick of rock factory that isn't as bad as Take a Letter, Mr Jones. Then this week, News at 10, a regional politics in your area show, What the Papers Say, and then we go over to the Cauliflower in Ilford for the Northern Heat of Pub Entertainer of the Year, which is hosted by Frank Carson with a special appearance by Clive Dunn, and they close down at midnight. So, boys, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? Well, I'm standing in a freezing circle with a bunch of, you know, 15-year-olds now, you know, spitting into a collective mm. puddle. Um, but probably we're talking about the jam primarily, I think. The fact yeah. is, I would have actually taped everything. I do remember, in fact, having to cassette. You know, I'd got my kind of cassette mono recorder, like the previous yeah. Christmas. I would have taped everything on this, this show, the Baron Knights included, and listened to that cassette over and over. So you'd be watching this in your living room? I'd have watched it in the living room, but I've, I would have taped it off. The Tom, Tom, the Tom, no, I take it off the Tom Brown show, you see. You know, when Tom mm. Brown did the, it was on Radio yes, 2. Yes, Countdown, yeah. The Countdown on a Sunday evening. I'd have taped it all off that. And mm. I would actually listen to pretty much everything off of this. But the jam in particular, punk rock. Yeah, yeah we'd have been talking about the jam. Someone would be going, uh, my big brother's got the LP and he swears on this song. Mm. No, wow. no, he does. Honestly, mm. I've heard it. Yeah, you want to bet? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are we buying on Saturday? This is the modern world. And and actually, heroes. I think. Mm. Yeah. I think I'd consider 
everything except mm. Queen, Quo, Waddy and uh, Smokey, I suppose. Mm. Would certainly right. have bought the BKs at the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Big fan. Though the ideal for if you were a like a, an awkward kid, you could buy a piss take record and feel fine about it. It was a joke. It wasn't about love or anything. It didn't yeah. suggest any kind of vulnerability or it didn't suggest that you either fancied women or were gay, which were mm. like both really embarrassing things. So like, yeah, yeah. Just some old cunts have a laugh about float on. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Mm. I think, I mean, the thing about ABBA is that I, I, I like the ABBA thing, but I think I might have considered it too effeminate to buy it myself. I'd have probably had to bribe a girl you know to go in and to the store and buy it for me you know the way that you'd you know get adults to go in and get you some candelabra or whatever yeah it's mm. terribly i remember when it did, when i was 11 or 12 whenever it was uh and since yesterday by strawberry switchblade came out and i thought mm, it was one right. of the best records i'd ever heard in my life but i couldn't go and buy it because no. they, they were oh. girls and yeah. i was worried someone would think i fancied them even yeah, though yeah. i did <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> and what does this episode tell us about November of 1977? I think it is very much essence of 1977, in, in, yeah. as, as far as I'm concerned, you know, across the kind of the, the, the full gamut, really. In a funny kind of way, I think there's a sort of delayed impact um, with, with punk. You know, I think that's, you know, it's really kind of um, beginning to, you know, beginning to rumble around this kind mm. of time, you know, and I think that jam, you know, the jam are real kind of hard, but, but punk's kind of weird like that. Punk sort of. Coming, some people think it's, it's already over at this particular stage. Yeah, that punk had seemed to apparently come along to drive out because it wasn't necessarily um, Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Pink Floyd necessarily. No. It was the kind of slightly overblown, polished likes of Queen, ELO, ABBA, all of whom are on this um, episode, you know, and they're still very much intact. Yeah, and all of them disappeared, didn't they, by 1978? Mm. Never heard from them again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just don't get that way of thinking. I saw an interview with Genesis recently, mm. and it was like, oh, how Genesis coped with punk. <laughs> they were going on about, oh, yeah, we were really worried about punk. And I was like, like fuck you were. You know, mm. social workers and common room bores who dominated the, the record player aren't suddenly going to go, oh, look, there's this new thing. I'm not going to listen to Genesis anymore. No, no. Ridiculous. Yeah. Doesn't work like that. No, no. It's not like Jethro Tull were put on the breadline by the nipple erectors or anything like that. No. But what did happen is that a lot of these bands lost their sense of importance and relevancy and you know in terms of the way that they were perceived. And I think that they did smart a bit at that. But yeah, also it's like I mean you can see from this, nineteen seventy seven is never the nineteen seventy seven that people who were around in nineteen seventy seven tell you it was. You know. No. It's like yeah, no Elvis Beatles or the Rolling Stones, but plenty of shawaddy waddy left to go around it was it was it was just a decent year for music which happened while some other people who had nothing to do with this program were leaping around in small clubs doing something else you know Mm. there was never any problem with coexistence between the different forms of music it's you know apologies for the grown-up long perspective there you know yeah Sorry for telling the truth, pop crazy yeah, youngsters. Stop before mm. I reach the point where we're just a pale blue dot, a moat of dust in a sunbeam. Uh, mm. So why does any of this matter? But yeah, you know. 
Mm. It is odd to me to think that just uh, only just a few months later, I was kind of very conscious of the fact that um, 1977 had been the year of like, you know, John Martin, One World, Suicide's first album. People like Peribu were kind of knocking around, um, even Throbbing Gristle, you know, I just became aware of that kind of whole undertow of activity, which I was completely oblivious when this episode actually went out. Mm. Sweep it all away for Sid Vicious's version of Come On Everybody. Yep. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I just saw punk at this point as like, you know, just some other sort of, just something that was joining the general party, you know, come along. Mm. You know, there's a party going on. The Baron Knights are there. She Waddy Waddy are there. Abba are there. The Jam are there, you know, it's just all yeah. part of the same pop party. Yeah, a punky reggae party, mm, if you yeah, will. Yeah. Yeah. Without the reggae, because there isn't any in this episode. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> and that, me dears, is the end of this episode of Chart Music. Use your promotional flange website, www.chart-music.co.uk, facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast. Reach out to us on Twitter at chartmusictotp, money down the G-string, patreon.com slash chartmusic. Thank you, David Stubbs. And thank you, Al. God bless you, Taylor Parks. Cheers, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed this half as much as I have. <laughs> My name's Al Needham, and I don't give two fucks about your review. <laughs> Unless it's five stars on iTunes, please. <laughs> Thank you. Chart music. Broadcast system. This is only a test. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. The broadcasters of your area in voluntary cooperation with the FCC David Stubbs. Rock expert David Stubbs. Rock expert David Stubbs. Rock expert David Stubbs. Bringing you a hard-driving mix of hard rock and hard facts. Today, I want to talk to you about the daddies of them all. That's right. Jeff Wayne and his merry men, the Electric Light Orchestra. With me as my guest is a young lady who blotted a copybook last time out. Her name's Alicia. Got a little sassy. Got a little wise. Well, she begged me, begged me to give her a second chance. 
And so I thought to myself, what would Yellow's Jeff Wayne do? I think he'd be magnanimous. So I'm giving her that chance. What do you have to say to that, Alicia? Thank you from the bottom of my heart, rock expert. This is the happiest day of my life. Damn right it is. Well, Alicia, I'm going to fill you in on the Electric Light Orchestra. Lay some hard facts on you. If you were Yorkshire-born, you'd say, E-L-O, I never knew that. Oh. You come in there. Laughter. Brackets. No, no, you're supposed to... Never mind. Ruin the joke. He's a rolling, a rocking, a rocking, a rolling rock expert, David Stubbs. Why were Yellow important? Because Jeff Wayne saw rock and roll music, and he saw classical music. And he thought, I am going to mix the two. No one in rock had ever thought to do. Jeff Wayne was the first. Len? No, Jeff. Yellow were iconic pioneers. Doing something that had what never been... What about the Beatles? Huh? Huh? <laughs> All you need is love. That doesn't count. That was after 1966. They didn't know what they were doing then. No. ELO were the first, the very first, to mix rock and classical music. It was unheard of. Perhaps the finest example is their iconic hit single, Roll Over Beethoven, catalogue number CH56. What about Deep Purple? Huh? Deep Purple, concerto for a group and orchestra. Me and my friends listen to it all the time. All right, this is bogus. You ruined the catalogue number readout. It's the most important part of the show. Little lady, you are out of here. Join me next time when I won't be hassled by some error-prone, know-nothing chick who thinks the lead singer of the Electric Light Orchestra was called Lynn Wayne. <laughs> Women's lib. I'm embarrassed. Embarrassed. Catch you later, folks. Meanwhile... Take it away out! Rockin' and rollin', rollin' and rockin', rockin' and rollin' and rockin'! If you want to hear more from me, rock expert David Stubbs, subscribe to me on YouTube. Address HTTPS or colon slash slash www.youtube.com slash watch question mark V equals QKLEH dash OOFD 8M percent T equals 134S. I heard that. All right, chaps, I promised. And now I'm about to deliver. (laughs) From the book Starless by Fred Vermoral. It reads as follows. And uh, yeah, if you're having your tea or you're a bit squeamish, um, turn off now. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Stephen. I am 16 years old and I am a homosexual. After reading your advertisement, I decided to write and tell you about my secret sexual fantasy. It is with Bruce Foxton of The Jam, and it is as follows. I attend a modern comprehensive school, and I always imagine going to the toilets during the lessons and finding Bruce there, facing the wall, apparently having a piss, dressed in black trousers, grey jumper, shirt and tie. Anyway... As I have always liked Bruce Foxton, that sexy-looking fifth former, I decided to stand next to him to get a good look at his prick. As I do, I realise that he is wanking himself. And what an ace dick he has. It is seven inches long with a big red knob, and I can see his brown hairs peeping through. 
having good fun, I say to him. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing like a fucking good wank, is there? <laughs> At this, he walks over to the door and said that we'd better lock it in case anyone came in. Wouldn't want our wanking session disturbed, would we? He said as he walked across the floor, dick in hand, until he rested against the wall and continued wanking. <laughs> By now, my naughtinge prick is rock hard and I was enjoying a great wank. Facing Bruce, I watched him slowly pull his foreskin back and forth, revealing his lovely moist red knob. <laughs> Bruce started moving his blazer pocket and brought out a pack of cigs. He handed me one, and we both had a smoke and a chat whilst wanking off. <laughs> After a while, he says... Oh, balls, I'm going to have to take these bloody things off. They're aggravating me to death. And so he quickly pulls his trousers off, revealing his long, masculine legs. <laughs> then he takes the undies off, and everything he had showed. His long, seven-inch cock stood upright, just waiting to be sucked. In between his legs were a massive pair of really fleshy balls. Ooh. The largest balls I'd ever seen. <laughs> and then his dark, bushy, brown prick hair. <sighs> he was fantastic. It wasn't long before we were both completely naked. He turned round for a minute, revealing his bum. It was ace. It was smooth as silk and just the right size. I felt him slip down my body and take hold of my cock. He moaned softly as he gave my dick an expert sucking. After a few minutes, he withdrew and licked his lips. He sat on the floor, legs open, and said, It's your turn now. I opened my mouth and put his balls inside. His balls were so big, really a mouthful. Then I pulled away and started to kiss his knob and suck at the beautiful thing. Well, yeah, it was um, veggie sausages and dumplings for tea for me tonight, but I think that's off. Well... He was now so excited I could feel his spunk ready to shoot out, so I decided to let him bum me, <laughs> as there is nothing better than someone shooting their load into your bum. So I told him, and I kneeled down while he got behind me and slowly guided his weapon in. When after some lovely forcing he was finally up me, he started to let my bum wank him off. <laughs> Until finally, I felt the spunk shoot up, and I heard him moan in sheer ecstasy. You see, when uh, when Bruce came, he leapt in the air and went, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That was my secret sex fantasy with Bruce Foxton. I hope you enjoyed reading it. And then Peter Powell came out of the toilet and said... <laughs> hey! <laughs> <laughs>